everyone, and welcome back to Honor Majesty's Secret Podcast. I'm Jared Albrecht, the art sale artist, and I want to welcome you to a omnibus episode. What we have here is an extra long podcast because it's made up of four episodes. So yeah, this is a big one. And what this is, is a compilation of the four volumes that I made back in 2020. In fact, in the summer of 2020, I found myself with a little bit of extra time on my hands. And so I decided I wanted to do a deep dive into the world of James Bond video games. I was inspired by our network founder here at Honor Majesty's Secret Podcast, Mr. Van Allen Plexico. He had just done an audio documentary podcast deep dive into the history of football at Auburn University, where we both happen to have gone to college. But I really liked his format. I really liked his idea of reaching out to people and getting their experiences. And so I decided to bring that to bear on the world of James Bond video games, something I was passionate about. So I ended up doing this four-volume set, and it pretty much does Bond video games. Block one is from the 80s. Block two is from the 90s. Block three is 2000, 2010. And block four is 2011, pretty much forward, all the way to 2020-ish. There's a little bit of, oh, you'll find it when you get there. (laughs) But yes, if you're looking at this download and going, how long is this podcast? This is just a re-release of that entire series. I'm calling this an omnibus episode. So you're in for a long haul. Uh, if, if you uh, decide to take this quest, maybe you're a more recent listener and you missed this series back in the day and I want to welcome you to it and I hope you enjoy it. Or if maybe you heard it as it was coming out about once a quarter back when I was making them from the summer of 2020 to the summer of 2021. Well, if you feel like revisiting it, it'll be right here. I want to thank everybody who supports our network. Uh, we love you guys. We love building the James Bond family right here at Honor Majesty's Secret Podcast. And without any further ado, let's get into the omnibus. You're listening to the Honor Majesty's Secret Podcast production of The Digital 007, a look back at James Bond in video games. One, the 80s. Hello and welcome to the Digital 007. A look back at James Bond in video games, of course, brought to you by On Her Majesty's Secret Podcast and our fine Patreon sponsors. I'm Jared Albrecht, the yard sale artist, aka Death Probe, and I will be taking you through this journey through the decades to look at all the various incarnations of James Bond in video games. Let me tell you how this is generally going to work. I will give you some basic information on each game, and we're more interested in hearing from people who have played the games along the way. So wherever possible, I was out there hitting those internets, finding our listeners, our friends, people who rally around the show over at Twitter at OHMSPod, and I'm catching these folks and I'm talking to them about their James Bond video game experiences. So there's going to be a lot of that thrown in here. We're really just going to be looking at the fun facts, going through the timeline, and getting those interesting experiences from our very listeners. This has been an absolute blast to put together. 
So let me not waste any more time and get straight to our first game. Our first up is 1982. begins in 1982 with a guy named Richard Shepard. He founded Richard Shepard Software out of England and made the very first James Bond video game known to man. It was called Shaken But Not Stirred. This was one of those early text-based adventures. We will talk more about text-based adventures because we've got some interesting insights coming up on a couple more because this would not be James Bond's last foray into the realm of text-based adventures. But in 1982, Richard Shepard created Shaken But Not Stirred. It was available on the ZX Spectrum. It was definitely what you would call interactive fiction, which basically means you read a story on the screen as if you were reading a novel. And then at certain places in the story, you would get a chance to type in input words like go north, look left, open the box, things of that nature. And when you got the phrases correct, it would allow you to proceed further into the story. This was a very popular genre in the 1980s. And again, we will return to this genre. What makes Shaken But Not Stirred somewhat interesting is that it was never actually an officially licensed game. You have to keep in mind this was the early days of video games and licensing and legalities was still sort of in that gray area. So Richard Shepard took it upon himself to make a text-based James Bond adventure. Now, as you can imagine, I had a very hard time finding anyone who's actually played this game. It wasn't released in mass quantities because, again, it wasn't licensed. So the game itself is pretty rare. And I never did find anyone in all my searches who's actually played the game. But here's what I can tell you about it. The plot involves James Bond stopping the villainous Dr. Death from using nuclear weapons on London itself. There are some graphics included in the game, like a lot of text-based adventures would throw in pictures or small animations from time to time, but for the most part, just text-based, decision-making, very simple. So there you go, James Bond fans, your first James Bond video game, Shaken But Not Stirred, 1982, Richard Shepard Software for the ZX Spectrum. This game is so rare that I have gone to look for it on eBay, no one is currently selling it. No one's been selling it over the last several months. It hasn't even been sold on eBay in any kind of recent history. So this is a rare game, hard to come by. Again, it was mainly available in England. So good luck, collectors out there trying to find 1982's Shaken But Not Stirred. Let's move on to our next game. Welcome to 1983. 1983 was a good year to be a 007 fan because it was a double dose of Bond at the box office. Octopussy and Never Say Never Again battled it out on the big screen and video games were becoming so mainstream that James Bond himself did some gaming against Max Largo in Never Say Never Again, which even went so far as to include an arcade scene in lieu of the usual casino scene. But meanwhile, the Atari home video game systems had really taken off. The video game industry was in full boom, and over at Parker Brothers, a guy named Joe Goucher was working on a little something. 
Parker Brothers brings the hottest video games home. It's James Bond in a deadly game of four land and sea battles based on the thrilling Bond movie classics. Survive, and you become the master spy, 007. And Gyrus, not from the arcade. Nothing moves like Gyrus. It's galactic warfare as you're attacked by enemy ships, meteors, and satellites in a relentless search for Earth. Gyrus and James Bond 007 for these video and home computer systems. So James Bond finally got a licensed game. It was simply called James Bond 007, and it was created by Joe Goucher. This is back in the days when individuals would create games instead of large studios. It was available on the Atari 2600, Atari 5200, ColecoVision, Commodore 64, Atari computers, and the SG-1000. It is a side-scrolling, vehicle-based game. You get to drive a James Bond-like submarine car thing throughout the whole adventure. It uses elements from Diamonds Are Forever, Moonraker, and The Spy Who Loved Me. And it also had additional elements from For Your Eyes Only on some of the systems. Depending on which system you had, it would either have the three levels or the four levels, really just limited by the memory space of whatever system you were playing it on. Interesting side note, there was print material available. You can go and find it online where Parker Brothers was advertising for an Octopussy game on Atari, but it was never released. The ads were out there, but the game just never came out. But enough from me. Let's hear from somebody who's actually played it. Let's talk to Phil, the no-swear gamer from YouTube. The game James Bond 007 on a 2600, very rare game. It's not a game I ever saw during my childhood, but I, I'm doing my show on YouTube. I'm doing the notes for Gamer. And one day I found a lot of games on eBay, Atari games, that include some rare titles and mixed in was James Bond. And that was a game I was aware that existed by this point, but I never got to try. So I was excited to try it. But if you just look at the box, you you know, it's just like a silhouette of James Bond. Nothing too exciting. The cartridge just says James Bond 007. Not, nothing exciting. And typically Atari games have wonderful artwork. And this one, not so much. We had Octopussy. And if you looked at the ad for the original one, you know, you had this James Bond. It looked like a poster. It, it was very poster-like for the James Bond movies. And the box art was nothing like that. I'm guessing that if they would have released the Octopussy game, the box art would have been similar to what you saw in the ads and it would have looked more like a poster. That's just a guess. Parker Brothers, who made the game, they weren't really big on huge box art, but usually more than that. I pop it in. I'm excited to give it a try. And it plays like Moon Patrol. Moon Patrol is this old arcade game where you're this little moon buggy and you're, the screen's going you know, from right to left. You're constantly scrolling and, and you have to avoid enemies and shoot them. And this game's the same way. So you're driving the James Bond car, which this is like an all-in-one car. It's supposed to be like the Lotus, but it's one of these cars where you're able to jump really high, but you can't fly. And you're able to go underwater for a few seconds, but you can't swim, if that makes sense. You can't do this stuff. It's such an interesting kind of mechanic because in the movies, James Bond, he gets in a car. He's a race car driver. He's a stunt driver. He can just go in and out, hairpin turns. In this game, it's like you're moving through sludge. It is just very, very difficult to move around. Your mobility is really hampered. Every time you go underwater, the buoyancy brings you right back up. And that is just killing this game because you are given all these enemies. Almost none of them can you destroy. And you're having to avoid everything. It's like take Bond and put him in a clunker of a car 
and give them like a water gun and tell them to survive now. And that's basically what you have to do with this game. It's, it was such a frustrating experience. And what really kind of burns me is originally the game was supposed to be based on Octopussy and it had James Bond going through a train and it sounded exciting. And then they put you in a car where you're driving on sludge and it just took the James Bond mystique and it just kind of flushed it down the toilet. It is playable, but it is so difficult. I can't find anyone who's beaten the game. I'm sure there's people who have beaten the game out there, but I have not. And I've played a few games in my time and I couldn't get through. The game's supposed to be three movies in one on other systems. It's four movies in one. And I couldn't get through the second movie. I couldn't get through Moonraker. And just a side note, come on, Moonraker's right there. It is basically Star Wars meets James Bond. Why can't I play James Bond flying through space, shooting people, hopping in a shuttle, shooting these poison balloon canister things? That's exciting. Instead, I have to be through this sludgy car. But the music in the game, theme song in the 2600 game, very good for the system. Very well done. Phil the No Swear Gamer goes on to talk about the rarity of the game. And it came out at a terrible time because there was this big video game crash when we were kids. Games were going for like a dime a box. And that's why a lot of people don't know about this game because it came out during that time. That's why it's a relatively rare game, an unknown game. You talk to people about Atari, they'll tell you about Space Invaders. They'll tell you about the other, but they won't tell you about Bond because they didn't even know it came out. And with our very first official James Bond game for your home gaming systems, we leave 1983. We're going to skip over 1984. No movies, no games, but man, oh man, we are headed to 1985. (laughs) 1985 would give us Roger Moore's last outing as Agent 007 and Duran Duran heating up the charts, taking their hit song of You To A Kill all the way to number one. James Bond was everywhere you looked in 1985, and our favorite 00 got not one, but two games released during the Bond mania. I promise you we'd talk again about text-based adventures, aka interactive fiction, and that promise has led us to our first game of 85. And it was created by a man who would leave a much much bigger mark on the Bond universe in the years to come. So let's boot up some DOS and talk about Bond's second foray into text-based interactive fiction. So the first game we're going to talk about is James Bond 007 A View to a Kill. It was by Angelsoft and Mindscape Software, available on your MS-DOS, your Apple II, and your Macintosh. As previously stated, it is a text-based adventure or interactive fiction. So you actually read through a novel, type in commands, hoping to progress through the story. But what makes this one so very interesting is who wrote it. The man who would leave an indelible mark on the James Bond literary universe. The very first American author of the James Bond novels and the third continuation writer. It is Mr. Raymond Benson. After I graduated from college with a theater degree, I worked at the uh, Alley Theater in Houston, Texas for a year, and then I moved to New York City. And this was in the late 70s. 
before computers, well, computers in the home, that is, and Dungeons and Dragons had come out. And I had some friends in New York that played it. So I got involved and I thought it was fun and did a little of that. And in those early 80s, then the, the role-playing game, the James Bond role-playing game from Victory Games came out. And I started playing with that. And, I got, and you know, I was, I was a Bond fan. And during the, oh, those early years of the 80s, I was writing the James Bond Bedside Companion. I was researching it and writing it. It took me, you know, three years to do. But during that time, I got to know the guys behind the role-playing game, the Bond role-playing game. So I got kind of got involved. Then in 1984, The Bedside Companion was published. And suddenly I had become sort of this, you know, James Bond expert, whatever. I had an agent, a literary agent. It wasn't long after the book was published. It was probably around just two or three weeks after the book was published. And my agent called and said, Raymond, there's this company outside of New York that are making computer games and they have a license for James Bond and they're looking for a writer. And I thought of you. And I went, oh, and he said, are you into games? And I went, well, I'm, I'm into these role playing games. And he says, do you have a computer? And at that time, I didn't own my own computer. I was typing on a typewriter, electric, you know, selector typewriter. Uh, you know, and this was the time when PCs were just coming into the home. You know, you had the Apple IIc and things like that. And so I said, yeah, I'm, I'm real interested. And so he arranged a meeting for uh, the woman who was in charge, who would be the producer of the games, to come to a meeting with me and my agent. She brought an Apple IIc. It was really the first time I ever got to like play with one. First, she booted up Zork from uh, Infocom. And she showed me how this was a text adventure, you know, it tells a story as you play, you know, you were in the dark, creepy room and you see a sword on the ground. What do you do? Type, pick up the sword, you know, that kind of stuff. And she goes, we want to do, well, it was not only uh, James Bond, but they also had an, uh, the license to do Stephen King's The Mist, which was a novella at the time. It was a long time before the movie or anything. So this was just a, a novella and they wanted to adapt that into a game. And uh, would I be interested in that? Was I a Stephen King fan? Yes, I am. So I said, yes, I'm very interested. And they, I think they let me borrow an Apple IIc and some of the Infocom games. And I got hooked. I loved those Infocom games. And then I got the contract. So I went out and bought an Apple IIc. I needed one. I had to have one. Basically, my, I guess the advance paid for that. So yeah, and I started buying Infocom games. I loved them. I, I was really into them. All of them. Every one of them. I think I, I had the whole collection. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, in January of 1985, I started working for this company. It was called AngelSoft. They were based in White Plains outside of New York. So three days a week, I would take the train from Grand Central to White Plains. And then I would either walk or take a bus. I think I took a bus from the train station around to where their office is. And I would work in their office all day for three days a week and then work at home the rest of the time. AngelSoft consisted of a very small company. The head of the company or the, you know, the creative director of the company was a guy named Mercer Meyer, who had written children's books. And he had done their very first game that was going to come out. It was like a fantasy game. So I started first with the Stephen King work. So I worked on that, uh, and it was a very, very small team. There were two programmers, the producer, and me. So, you know, the programmers designed the engine, you know, how the whole text thing worked and all that. They were the technical side of it. 
And I basically wrote and I learned how to do the user code, you know, the if else statements. So uh, I learned how to write in that format pretty quickly. And so I wrote the first script for Stephen King's The Mist. Then I moved on to A View to a Kill. And they got a license to do two James Bond games. And uh, one of them had to be A View to a Kill because that was going to be the current movie out that summer, summer of 85. We got a script, I remember, and read the script. And kind of like the way I did the movie novelizations many years later, I would take the script and kind of break it down into how would this play as a game and uh, started writing it same way. And we actually saw a rough screen. The producer and I went into New York and saw an exhibitor's screening of the rough cut. It must have been around May of 85. And the score, the John Barry score was not yet in it. However, they were using pieces of his other Bond scores in its place. And the main titles had not been integrated into the movie. However, we did get to hear the Duran Duran song. They played it over the speakers first. And then, you know, it started with the pre-credit sequence and then kind of cut to after the title sequence. So we finished that one. By the time summer was beginning, we'd finished that game. And the next title was Goldfinger. I worked on Goldfinger all the rest of the summer. The View to a Kill and Stephen King's The Mist came out in the fall of 85. And Goldfinger came out in the spring of 86. And we will get to 1986 in just a moment. But first, we need to hear from Mike from New Jersey, who played these text adventure games back in the day on the old computer. So let's boot up that old machine and hear from our buddy Mike from New Jersey. I'm trying to remember where I even purchased the game. It probably it, like one of the big toy store chains. I, I, you know, Toys R Us had a section where they had some video games. They had, you know, the old uh, Atari cartridges and the fledgling computer games. There were a couple of computer stores that sort of in the back, undercover, behind the coat hangers. They had, uh, you know, the, the computer games there. And if you went Further back, you found people writing the walkthroughs for uh, for some of the uh, the text adventure games. I do remember it came in a it was sort of like a record album. It was like a folded cardboard folder, so it was a very attractive cover. The View to a Kill had a very attractive cover in that little cardboard fold that type of album. It was packaged nicely. In the text adventures at that time, the better ones had awesome packaging. I always liked the concept of text adventures. Or uh, as Infocom, which was the company that really promulgated the better of them, called them interactive fiction. So IF was sort of the uh, the key word back then. If somebody promoted their product as interactive fiction, right, you knew it was it was going to be a little bit better than the quote text adventure games. And and the whole premise, of of course, was you're reading a, a novel. It was not supposed to be sort of a choose your own adventure, which was a simple branching story. This was something where you couldn't get from chapter one to chapter two to chapter 17 unless you did certain things. And it wasn't necessarily something in serial fashion. So you can go from chapter one to two to chapter 15, bounce back to chapter four, whatever, depending on what you did, the sequence that you did things in. So that was sort of the structure of the better of the text adventure games. Once the Infocon games started to prove popular, there was just a 
bait of these text adventure games, these interactive fiction things that were out there. And most of them were pretty lousy. What I looked for were the games that were written by people that actually had experience putting three or four words together in a proper sentence. And sure enough, you had it with Raymond Benson's work that he did. Raymond's a writer. You could tell the the quality of the text, even though they were sort of parsed out in little bundles of seven or eight sentences at a time, the quality of the text was far superior than 90% of the junk that was out there at the time. That's the good thing of the games back then. The bad thing is of the games back then is that the interpreter or the parser wasn't exactly a natural language parser. It got better as the years went on, but frequently all these games started with simple commands there was a verb and a noun and you'd put them together and hopefully you had the right verb and the right noun you know go north go south go east go go up go down pick up the book pick up the keys right and you know you had to in many of these games guess at the exact wording that the author was looking for as opposed to being several options and i suspect raymond put a bunch of options as part of the description. So the interpreter that was used was a little bit more forgiving than most of the games that were out there. Now, the Infocom, they were the leaders at the time. Their parser was very sophisticated. And it was based, as I understand it, on algorithms that eventually became used in in some uh, artificial intelligence programs. And I don't know of the sophistication of the parser that Raymond's games use, but it wasn't as sophisticated as what you had in the, in the Infocom. So the good news was when you read the text that was on the screen, it was awesome. You know, you read any of Raymond's Bond novels, and I've always said of the continuation authors, Raymond's stuff stands out there as being the best. I think a case could be had that shoot me down for saying this, you know, his his writing and his Bond novels, uh, in many cases, could even be seen as being better than the original uh, Fleming novels. It really shone through, this type of quality. So wherever I got it, <laughs> they were these five-and-a-half-inch floppy disks that I put into an old IBM 88 machine. You know, you'd hear the clicks and the whirs, and it was actually pretty cool because the clicks and the whirs and the sounds that these old clunky machines made, you almost felt like you were going into some futuristic Q laboratory to actually start the thing. And we'll get back to hearing a little more from Mike when we get to 1986 to talk about the next text-based adventure. But between here and there, there was another game released in 1985. would bring a new game designer into the licensed world of 007 games, Domark Games. Domark had just started in 1983, so only two years before it nabbed the license to James Bond and video games. So that was a big get for them. And they would hold on to that license for eight years and six games. So we are going to talk about Domark for a little while. Domark was a small British company named after its founders and their original programmers, Dominic Wheatley and Mark Strachan. Their first outing in James Bond gaming was hugely ambitious. It was A View to a Kill, the computer game. 
It was available on the ZX Spectrum, the Amstrad CPC, the Commodore 64, the Oric, the Oric Atmos, and the MSX Systems. The game itself was comprised of three smaller games, and this is where the ambition comes in. There was a top-down driving chase through Paris where Bond is trying to capture Mayday as she floats down in a parachute. And I say top-down, but there's also a first-person view that's going on at the same time as the top-down view. Again, hugely ambitious. There's also a seek-and-find-style game to help Stacy escape the burning building in San Francisco. And finally, there's a side-scrolling adventure to stop Zoran's bombs in the mines. So it stayed very loyal to key moments of the film. But man, was there a lot of different style of gameplay. This is early in computer gaming. So it wasn't the best James Bond game you're ever going to see, but you've got to give them points for ambition. Also, this is the first James Bond video game that will feature speech, albeit that very choppy computerized version, but they did use Roger Moore's voice sample. Give it a listen. My name's Bond. And with that, let's talk with Matt from Darlington, who hosts at Bond Maps on Twitter for his experience with 1985's A View to a Kill, the computer game by Domark. So I bought the A View to a Kill game from a company called W.H. Smiths in the UK. I bought it for the Spectrum. I paid £10.99 for this game back in 1985, which was, at the time was about $14. Probably today, something like $40. So the game is split into three mini-games. First of all, it's Paris. Bond has to drive a car through the streets. Mayday floats above you in a parachute, and then you need to follow Mayday, catch up with her before she uh, lands. The big troll with this part of the game is it takes so long for Mayday to parachute to the ground that the game has probably been stopped due to the excessive damage you've caused with Bond driving around in his taxi, crashing into other vehicles and getting caught by the police. That wasn't a particularly strong part of the game. Um, part two was set in City Hall in San Francisco, where Bond has to rescue Tracy and find his way out of the burning building. This is a sort of platform game where you've got to find keys that open doors and find the gun and so on. There's little puzzles to solve along the way. Not so satisfactory. And the final part of the game was set in the mine, where Bond needs to find Mayday so she can help him get access to the bomb. Again, you need to find various objects, dynamite to sort of blow up some rocks, and then so you can get into a certain other part of the mine. I remember finding it super difficult to get Bond to jump exactly how I wanted him to jump. And I always ended up falling down a huge mine shaft that I couldn't then get him out of. But the game overall, the controls were absolutely terrible. And I was super excited to buy it. But playing it, the controls were terrible. The graphics were even worse, even at that time. Whilst you've got three parts of the game that do follow the plot of the film, when the main bad guy in the film, Zorin, doesn't even appear in the game, that's not really a, a strong movie tie-in, I didn't think. On the loading screen, you see a picture of Bond and Stacey. And of course, in those days, you know, you, you put your cassette into the cassette player and loaded the game off that. And you have to wait five minutes for the game to load up. So the picture of Bond and Stacey on the loading screen, this is a sort of black outline on a red background. It looked nothing like Roger Moore or Tanya Roberts. There was a gun barrel, though, you know, and that's pretty cool. So at the start of the game, the, the dots go across the screen and then the gun barrel thing comes in. But Bond looks like he's been really ill and lost a lot of weight. He looks so slim and so tall that Roger Moore being 57 or whatever it is at the time, it doesn't really look appropriate. However, there was speech, and this is at the time, 
to have some speech, audio speech in a, in, a, in a game on a very basic system on an 8-bit computer was pretty cutting edge. So at the end of the gun barrel, you heard the, my name is Bond, James Bond. My name's Bond, James Bond. But it sounded a bit like a Dalek from Doctor Who, really, rather than Roger Moore. So the game came on a tape cassette. There was three levels. And then when you completed the first level, you got a code. And then you loaded the second level in on your tape. Effectively, it's almost a new game. You enter the code from the first level, and that sort of gets you going in, in the second level. And then the same with the final level. You completed level number two. Level three, you need to get enter a code to use that. And I must confess that I never completed even one of these three levels, let alone the full game, right? And I remember feeling pretty proud of myself because what you could actually do was reset your computer and fast forward the cassette tape to the appropriate point where the level two or level three started and loaded the level in you wanted directly. And I thought, well, this is pretty cool, really. I've managed to get around finishing level one. I can go and play level two and level three, which is pretty cool, especially I've paid so much money for this game at the time out of my, uh, my pocket money. However... Whilst you could play all the levels, if you didn't have the code to enter to unlock the second and third level, whilst you could play the game, you were at a massive disadvantage, and it made it much harder to complete that level, which is presumably the reason why I never did. I played the game on the ZX Spectrum, which I think in the US was known as the Timex Sinclair. I think looking back now and doing a little bit of research, the graphics on that conversion are far worse than you would see on the Commodore 64 or on the Amstrad versions of the game, presumably because of the technological barriers of, of the spectrum at the time. It was the first Bond game I bought. I remember being super excited about buying it. You know, Roger Moore on the front cover. I, I remember it had a really sort of hard plastic case, a little bit more premium than, than other games available at the time. Looking back, this was 10 weeks pocket money for me. So this was a big investment. And my God, the disappointment after about 10 minutes of playing the game, particularly when you played other games at the time, both in the arcades and on the home computers. Oh, very, very, very disappointing. And I think this is the reason why I didn't then go on to buy many other games for the Spectrum from that point onwards. I was looking at, soon after that, the sort of Mega Drive and other sort of games consoles came onto, on, into, into play. And uh, yeah, that was it for the Spectrum for me. Thanks again to Matt from Darlington, who hosts at Bond Maps on Twitter, and that will round out 1985's James Bond video games. But as hinted at earlier, we are going to move right into 1986. Just because Cinema Bond was taking a year off during 1986, that doesn't mean that our old friend Raymond Benson was resting on his laurels. Angelsoft still held the license to make another interactive fiction game based around 007, and now that Benson had done the obligatory of you to a kill to sync up with the film's launch, he was free to take on a more personal project, so he leapt at the chance to create James Bond 007 Goldfinger in the realm of interactive fiction. Once again, it was produced by Angelsoft and Mindscape. It was available on MS-DOS, Apple II, and Macintosh. And let's fire up those old computers once again and revisit our buddy Mike from New Jersey. Goldfinger, I remember more than Beautiful Kill. So here's my impressions of Goldfinger. And I, I never got all the way through. And it took me probably two months before I actually got past the first scene. 
So the Goldfinger game started out, you were in the Aston Martin. Uh, I think Tilly Masterson was next to you, and you were driving somewhere in Switzerland. And there were already people chasing you. And that's how it started. It's like, welcome to the game. Do you want to start a new game or go back to a saved game? You know, welcome. You're in the Aston Martin. And you saw, and it, it took me a while to realize, you know, bad guys chasing you. I'm in the Aston Martin. I know it's full of cool stuff, but how do you access the cool stuff? You know, you needed to, in the old games, look at the car, look at the armrest, open the armrest. And the description would be, there's four buttons in the armrest. Look at the four buttons. And this is what you would have to type. And in between your typing and the descriptions, Raymond always snuck in, the lead car is getting closer. You can see the people in the lead car pulling out guns. It's like, holy crap. <laughs> and this is, this is a, a stupid text adventure game. And it's, it's giving you the chills down your spine. I mean, you felt like you were being chased on this thing. You know, you can really attribute that to the quality of the writing. I can't say enough about the work that Raymond did on the writing side. It was cool. It was crisp. And it took me, as I said, a long time to figure out buttons are in the armrest. And then there were four buttons. You push one button, and I think it shot out the smoke screen, and another button did the oil slick. And another button, I think, was a dummy button. Maybe it just flipped the license plates around. You know, it did the things that the buttons did in the, uh, in, in the Aston Martin. You had like two shots at this, Jared, two shots. And, you know, because then the car would catch up, the guys would shoot you, or I think they captured you and automatically you're on the table with the laser beam shooting at you. It was pretty intense stuff. And it was also frustrating because, you know, again, the older algorithms, you sort of had to guess the key words to, to move the story along the way. And again, I never made it more than halfway through, but I did find Online, whatever we called online back then, I did find online a walkthrough. These walkthroughs, you know, done by the gnomes in the computer stores behind the coat closets, three or four feet under the pile of dirt, you know, in the back of the room. It basically said, Here, here's how to play these games, and it would walk you through exactly what to type. And that was the only way that I was able to sort of see the game through completion. I started to think that if you were a fan of the film or had read the novel, you probably had a leg up, assuming Raymond wasn't going to stray too far off of the story because you knew the way things were going to transpire. And I remember reading somewhere at the time that there are parts of the game that reflected the movie pretty closely. And I have to tell you, I think knowing the movie made it harder <laughs> because you you sort of knew what to expect and you knew what Bond did in certain circumstances. Like if you're on the laser table, you know, you want to shout out Operation Grand Slam, just like Connery does, right? So you type in shout Operation Grand Slam and, you know, it doesn't happen. Nothing happens because that's not the way the game is structured. You sort of have to look at it through a parallel universe, new lens to get this thing through. So that was the Goldfinger experience. And I really do rank it up there with the best of those games from uh, Infocom. You know, that was the experience with the text adventures. And the fact that you had a stupid little text adventure game building the kind of tension that I felt with this thing, I, you know, that's where do you find that? You know, you can find it in like some arcade games and some platform games, uh, particularly ones with timers on them. But on a text adventure game where you read stuff and then you type stuff and then you read more stuff to have that sense of uh, that sense of anticipation and suspense, you know, it's, it's really commendable. Yeah. 
ever the classy gentleman, Raymond Benson had just a couple words left to say as we close out his final entry in the James Bond video game world. Uh, I just want to say that I'm grateful to the folks at AngelSoft for giving me that opportunity. They were good people to work for, you know, the programmers and the producer. Her name was Anne. She was a really nice person, and I learned a lot. It kind of set me on a different career path that was very helpful. And now it is time for us to move into 1987. Nineteen eighty-seven brought us a new bond in the form of Timothy Dalton, but this would be the second outing for Domark, and the second time that they would sync up a game release in time for a film release. It is The Living Daylights. It was available on the Amiga, the Amstrad CPC, Atari computers, the BBC Micro, the Commodore sixty-four, MSX, ZX Spectrum, and there was even an arcade version. This is a side-scrolling platform shooter. And to tell us a little bit more about it, let's talk to our friend, the Wizard of Ice. So Christmas Day, we've got like Living Daylights. So as a kid, of 12, that's, that's not bad. Not bad at all. So the box for that is bang on. You can't fault it, to be fair. I think the tape ones, I don't know, it was a cassette size, but it was a little bit bigger, but it was quite small. With the Amstrad disc, it was like the disc, as I say, three by two, and then it had some protective thing. So you ended up with a square of about 10 inches, as the case. I'd say it's like a big CD case. So it's like a CD case on steroids, and all it was was just the poster, you know, the black poster, Living Daylights, which is, in my opinion, the best poster. And that was it. Got a little Amstrad logo in the corner, a what logo, but nothing really impinged on the poster. So you, you, you couldn't argue that presentation-wise. So you load it up reasonably quickly because I was posh enough to have the disc. Not sitting around with your cassettes for half an hour. <laughs> yeah, there's no gun barrel, which... All right. for Kill did have a gun barrel, so I don't know why you wouldn't do that. But like, deadlines and, I guess, the animation for that. I don't remember it being as big deal at the time. No, no Bond theme as well. That's another... No Bond theme and no sort of rendition of... Uh, uh-huh. Just a generic sort of action-y, not terrible, sort of homemade track they've come up with. It's quite pumping. I remember you get it in the, there's a bit in between levels where you have five seconds to choose a gadget from Q and the music sort of spills attention quite well. I don't remember it playing actually during the levels, to be fair. Um, anyway, so the game itself, you've got a sort of side-scrolling sort of shooter, side-scrolling third-person with Bond, is sort of runs across the screen, left to right. And then you've got two types of villain. You've got something like in the background, which is like a sort of coconut shy, which pop up like sort of targets like you'd expect in a shooting range. They're sort of stuck at the back and they can't do anything except pop up and shoot and you kill them. And, and then you've got like an actual adversary figure, a sprite, which is like the same as Bond. And they never run at you. You can run, but they never run. They just stand and shoot. I mean, Whittingham might at the end, but he's the only one. You basically run across the screen, you take out the guys who are shooting from the shooting range and you eventually get to the guy at the end who's sort of head-to-head with Bond and you take him out. So I had a joystick a lot of games I prefer the keyboard at the time. I imagine it'd be pretty hellish to play on a keyboard. You've got Bond running across, which I don't know how you did that. I come to think of it now with a joystick. You've got Bond running across, and then you've got a cursor, which you aim at the guys to shoot. That's bizarre. Actually, I'm trying to think now. As I'm saying this, it seems more familiar, and it might have been the way. You have Bond running, then you have to bury the cursor off the screen, and then that allows Bond to run by movement of the joystick. And if you want, you guess you pull down, the cursor will go off then left and right would now run Bond across the screen. Then you want to shoot again, you push it up and the cursor would appear, Bond would stop, and then you would shoot. I think there must have been an option to 
press the cursors with your finger so you could keep running and, and you could still be aiming with the joystick. Sounds horrifically clunky, come to think of it now, because on the start, it's not too bad. You can stop and just there's not that many people, but later on, you're getting shot at by all sorts and you really don't want to stop and you're not really standing still. You need to be running. I think jumping was maybe there's two triggers. So maybe the one was a shoot and then one was jump. And if you did that diagonally, that would make him jump. I remember it being very fiddly now, thinking about it. Jumping over the craters was a bummer, actually. Yeah, if you didn't clear it, you took a fair hit of life just for tripping over. Clunky controls, that is definitely something that I think I felt perhaps a bit harsh, but something that made this game pretty tricky. So the first level is the Gibraltar sequence, and you've got a paint gun, and you've got the guys popping up, the SAS guys, you take them out with a paint gun, you're not supposed to kill them. And then at the end, you get the KGB guy, who you are supposed to kill. But there's no instructions that told me you need to change your gun or anything like that. And I'd stand there shooting at him all day with this paint gun. And I thought, oh, maybe I'll shoot him in the head, fiddly with this joystick. You sort of had to go up and across it, and it wasn't intuitive like your joypads now. So I'd get on his head, and I'd be hammering just trying to shoot his head, and he wouldn't die. Honestly, I'm not even joking. I must have been on this game a week, just on this level. And this is one of my main Christmas friends, so I'm not just going to toss it away in anger. Um, so I'm there, I'm like, maybe I have to kill the SS. I mean, I have to shoot every single SAS guy. So I'd go through the level, shoot every single SAS guy. Now, yeah, honestly, a week, just doing my head in, I was ready to put the joystick through the screen. And then one day, we just ran some random thrashing around in fury, I guess. Cursor went off the screen, and it must, there's some manipulation when the cursor, you take the cursor down, change weapon, and, and fire, and do something. It gave you a chance. I've never had this explained to me, but by pure chance, with these movements, one day, I suddenly saw a Wolf PDK pop up in where it says, what weapon are you holding? And I suddenly just, this sort of rush of adrenaline. <laughs> I think the first time, actually, I just saw it pop up Wolf of PDK and then went back to paint. I didn't know what I'd done. And I was just, but now I knew that there was a Wolf of PDK somewhere you could do something where it gave you a Wolf of PDK. So then I spent probably a few more hours fiddling, trying to recreate these things. And eventually I had the Wolf of PDK selected. And that's this eureka moment of revelation where I could actually kill people. <laughs> so when you got that, the whole game opened up straight away. Bang, KGB guy dead. See you later. That's level one done after, yeah, at least a week. It, could, it might even be longer. I might be underselling that and trying to make myself sound not such a idiot. And now that our friend the Wizard of Ice has figured out how to progress in the game, let's find out how the rest went for him. So the second level was the theatre. This one had Koskoff with you, tagging along. He just sort of runs along by the side of you. He manages to avoid getting shot. I think he did, took damage. I think it was just you who took damage, and he just happily tagged along while you are getting shot. You could get the night vision goggles... After each level, there's a cutscene of five seconds where you can pick a gadget from Q. Later on, it was important which one you pick, but this one didn't matter. You could get night vision goggles, which just turned everything green, but didn't make a great difference in terms of gameplay, I don't think. I think you could complete it either way. I don't think it was a fundamentally up to the night goggles to shoot anyone. The next one would have been the safe house. You have new cross-throwing milk bottles at you, which took a fair chunk of life out of you. He throws them pretty fast, so you can't shoot them. You've got to just duck, I think. And I think he has an infinite supply as well. There's, at the fairground later, he has a the balloons and they run out but I think this he has an infinite supply so you've got a duck pop up bear in mind that with, like I said with the joystick you've got a duck bond then go into cursor mode get the cursor onto him shoot him before the next milk bottle hits you in the face and takes a massive chunk of life out so you'd only, you'd only get like a couple of bullets away before the next milk bottle was on the way you'd have to take the joystick into bomb control to duck so it was quite fiddly yeah fairground next which was as I say you got Nikros again with balloons this time and there was a thing where you had the Q gadget with the crossbow. I think you had to select that to shoot the balloons. I think PPK bullets, for some reason, just you couldn't take the balloons out without some special coating on the skin of the balloon was impervious. Kevlar balloons or something. Um, but a crossbow could take them out. So you had to have the crossbow for that. 
and he just let these balloons fire at you, which again would take take big chunks of life off if they hit you. I don't know if they're supposed to have something in them. Um, <laughs> in the film, they're just standard balloons. And then you had Tangier, which would, was you had to have the dart gun for this because you're not supposed to kill a policeman. I think the only baddies on this are the police, actually, because obviously Nick Ross and Koskov are in this scene and Whitaker. And so it's just the police chasing you. Well, not chasing you, you just Bond runs across the screen, the police are waiting at the end. You just run into front of them. But you had to have the dart gun. And I think if you shot him with a PPK, then he lost a life or whatever, and it said, you know, don't kill him. So you have to take them out of the dart gun, which again, that's not explained to you either. So you start on this first time you get to that level, you start shooting them and you can't understand why they're dying and why you keep losing life because they're dying. Um, so eventually you change to the dart gun and that gets you through. And so the next one would have been the airbase, and that's pretty tough. This one is a helicopter that goes along the top. I think that just keeps coming across intermittently, drops bombs on you. The guys at the shooting range who just have little pot shots for the rest of the game, I think they've got mortars now as well. So basically everyone is just bombing the shit out of you. I tried taking them out and it just it's too time consuming this fiddling with the cursor. So in the end for that, I remember vividly that level especially, you'll just run and just run for it. And the way I figured it, maybe there's better ways, was just to run like buggery. You'd get to the end of the level and you'd have a guy to kill. I don't know who that is. Some guy in uniform, so it could be Koskov or it could be Colonel Theodore, possibly. Never mentioned, but you kill him, so I guess it's not Koskov if you want to be true to the film. Um, so that level is possibly the, the hardest as well. I think there's no saving in those days. Kids, oh yeah, you just die now, save. I just carry up now, no. you start again in the 80s. That's how we learn. You say you lose all your lives, that's it, you're back to level one. So you was getting through it as fast as you could to get to that airbase level with sufficient life in the tank to sort of try and get you through to the last level. Many times I've, I've slogged through the, the first, whatever, five levels and got to that airbase, possibly even without losing a life. And then I've just seen it all just disappear. <laughs> As the helicopter's just bombed me to buggery. And then you're back to start again. Yeah, so no, 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 no saving stuff. He's only, he's only born you people these days. If you scrape through the airbase level, you'd be down to, at, at best, one and a half lives, maybe two if you're lucky. And then the last level's Whitaker. And I think, fortunately, that's not as difficult as the airbase, because it's just Whitaker. I think I don't remember even there being pop-up guys at this point. And it's just Whitaker. Ah, no, he think had body arm, actually. So if you had the PPK, forget it. Yeah, yeah, in the queue thing, you had to get the bazooka. And that was anything that would kill him. Yeah, so all that stuff was just about getting through the airbase and, sa- and not saving. Imagine the first time you get to the QC and it's got the four gadgets. I can't remember what, like different types of gun, but you don't pick the bazooka. And at that point, you've had it and you've got through and you think, right, this is my shot of Whitaker and you can't kill him and that's it. And you and back to the start, you go and start again. Perfect storm where you got through the airbase level with sufficient life intact to have a crack at Whitaker. That would take you another half dozen goes at the game to get to that point. It's pretty devastating to not be able to kill Whitaker and know you're back at the start. I mean, I remember the adrenaline, actually. Once you've got, you've got through the airbase and you've got Whitaker and you've got maybe a life, and that's and you know this, you've got one shot of this. So, yeah, I mean, that's <laughs> quite pathetic, but I remember the sort of the, the sweaty palms and the, right, this is it, this is Whitaker. If I don't get him, I'm back to the start and it, I may be in like another week before I get through the airbase and I get another crack. So, what, in, in terms of brilliant oops artificially thrilling in the sense that they made it so hard that when you got that crack at the final boss you did simulate the uh, adrenaline of Bond <laughs> even the heights of Goldeneye I don't remember that, that heart pumping I've got half a life going into this level against Whitaker. if he gets me twice I'm dead you've got to be bang on I gotta tell you I could do a whole series listening to the Wizard of Ice talk about his gameplay <laughs> But that is 1987's The Living Daylights, clearly a step up from their first shot of You to a Kill. But a hallmark of these Domark games is going to be their difficulty level for the most part. 
But with that, let's go ahead and move on to 1988. With no Bond film being released in 88, Domark had more creative freedom to explore other 007 titles for its next outing. So they wisely chose to take a ready-made gaming engine and slap a new coat of paint on it in the form of one of the more popular Roger Moore films. 1988 would give us Domark's Live and Let Die. As previously stated, they basically just took a boat racing engine and added a couple of tweaks to make it more James Bondish and to line it up with the boating scenes from Live and Let Die. It was available on the Amiga, the Atari ST, the Commodore 64, the ZX Spectrum, and once again, let's go back to the Wizard of Ice and see how it went for him when he played it as a kid. But yeah, Live and Let Die, so they're the best standalone game, although it's repetitive. It's one game mechanic, you're driving your boat, you've got a rear view, you're driving towards the screen, and like on a little river or whatever, and that's flying past you, and then there's guys shooting at you and all sorts. There's an iceberg level and a desert level, so one's got icebergs, one's got pyramids on this background, and then there's one actual bayou level. Put out quite a few of the stops, again, stunt-wise, you can jump off things, and then there's this, I think there's mines and rocks and stuff. And there's like a bit of bayou at the side. And if you can, you can steer up that and sort of slide up the side and then you come back down into the water. It gets harder, things come at you faster and stuff, but you just, you just basically just the same thing. And then eventually you get to a bit on the horizon. It says Mr. Big's Factory, the one with the crocodile, presumably where you'd make the boat from in the first place, but never worry about the continuity. It's not Sam Monique anyway. But anyway, Mr. Big's Factory, and then you just have to jump off a thing so you're in the air, because for some reason that makes the missiles more potent during the air when you fire them. But you have to fire them in the air. I think the torpedoes, to be fair. So if you fire them in the water, they're not they're just going to go in the water. So you have to be in the air to fire them, maybe. I'm overthinking this, I guess. Then you blow up Mr. Big's production facility or whatever this is supposed to be. And that's the end. Doesn't sound particularly good, that, compared to what my license would kill. Oh, yeah, the box. So we deviate from the poster here. I don't know why. Don and Mark cutting corners were there. I don't know. Using the poster costs a bit more. But quite a nice sort of hand-drawn picture of Rog in a boat with guys behind him shooting. There's probably explosions and stuff. Quite a nice picture, actually. Quite a nice piece of art. And then bizarrely on the back, you've got, a, not cartoon, but not, like the Rog is a sort of photorealistic hand drawing, you know, like the old classic posters, like you get a View to a Kill or Octopussy poster. But on the back, you've got a sort of, it's not a cartoon rendition of JW, but it's not a real rendition either. It's sort of JW smoked a joint or whatever and uh, maybe had a few bourbons. So he's slightly out of it. And he's just sort of stood there and there's some big speech bubble about him, uh, Mr. Bond on his bio or something. I don't know why they've came up with that because he doesn't feature in the game at all. I know Living It Die is quite a popular film in England in terms of sort of familiarity of the public. I guess it's one they would recognise. They'd all know about the speedboat and possibly the voodoo aspect. If you say Joe Public, what, you know, Living Let Die, that's the one with the speedboats and the voodoo and Paul McCartney. I'm not sure that many of the public would know about JW. They probably would if you, like, once they saw him, they thought, oh yeah, it's that, you know, racist American sheriff. I'm not sure he's that big a figure that had brand recognition in, in the general public. I guess if you're making a game thought the villain said, I'm going to get Mr. Bond. But it's actually JW expressing exasperation at Mr. Bond cutting up his bayou again. But in terms of actual game, then this is the best actual game in terms of game mechanics and stuff. Oh uh, Yeah, so all along, you've got this sort of fuel gauge going down, so you can go faster and slower and it produces your fuel consumption. But I think there's airdrop barrels of fuel. I'm not supposed to, it's supposed to be Q or what, Felix, never mentioned. You need, and if you're going fast and the barrel drops, you miss it. You don't get that fuel, so you've got to wait for the next one. And then at some point, there's little channels a fork in the road sort of thing and one channel will lead you down the right way and there's a couple where it's just a rock 
and you go down that one and you get stuck on a rock and then you're like, well, what am I doing now? There's no reverse on the boat. If someone goes down the, the one with the rock, there's going to be some sort of mechanism to get them out of it. So you pick the wrong path and if you go full pelt of it, I think you can blow up on the rock and it might set you back far enough that you're in the, you can pick the fork again. But if you're low on fuel, you throttle back a bit and you go too slow that you crash into the rock and it doesn't kill you, then you, that's it. You're stuck in the rock and there's no way you can kill yourself. There's no way out. You can shoot the rock, it doesn't make the rocks won't blow up. So you're just stuck with this rock and after sort of 10 minutes thinking, what can I do? You come to the conclusion, there is nothing I can do and you hard reboot, sorry. Which for me is not too bad being rich and posh with my disc drive in the 80s. If you're on the Commodore and the Spectrum with a tape deck, then that's another half an hour before you can carry on again. <laughs> and even then you're back at the start of the level again, which you say you slogged all the way to the end. So similar to that, you've got this ticking time bomb with the fuel. And if you miss probably two, you start getting in deep trouble with the fuel. It gets into the red. And then you know the next one, you've got to get that. And if you miss that one, and you ground to a halt. And then you stop. And again, what are you going to do? You're stuck about a fuel, you stopped. There's no saves of five minutes ago like they have today. Just go back, oh, go back to the last save. Yeah, easy. It's not like that. You're back to the start. So you've slogged on. It's just like one continuous level. So to get through it, it would take you probably half an hour. Um, so if you're right near the end and you run out of fuel, bad luck. Start again. That's the way it was in the 80s. We had a tough life. Sure, words were never spoken there, wizard. Man, gaming was hard back in the 80s. And speaking of which, we are rounding the corner of finishing up Disc 1. The only year we have left is 1989. 1989 offered two new James Bond games. Or maybe kind of three, or kind of four. You know what? We'll get to it. Let's start with the first one. It was 1989 and Timothy Dalton was back in action. And so was Domark, as they were poised for another synchronous release with their game, License to Kill. It was available on DOS, the Amiga, Amstrad, CPC, Atari ST, BBC Micro, Commodore 64, MSX, and the old ZX Spectrum. This time around, they went for a top-down action game. And you can tell that Domark might have been pressed for time a little harder than usual on this one, because roughly 50% of the game focuses on the pre-title sequence of License to Kill, as if maybe the filmmakers didn't get Domark the completed film in time for them to make a game, or at least a completed script in time for them to make a game. Fans of the Bond series know that License to Kill did have some production issues, not being able to film in England, you could see where that could maybe snowball and getting the game company behind. But like I said, about half the game focuses on the pre-title sequence. It's interesting to kind of stop and think that this is indeed 1989. This is the height of the Nintendo Entertainment System. Nintendo basically hit the scene big time in about 87, 88. By 89, Nintendo is the biggest home video game console in America, possibly the world. But yet there's still no James Bond game available on the Nintendo. Up to now, they've all been computer releases of one type or another, with the exception of the Atari game that we talked about back in 1983. Right now, the closest thing to a James Bond game on the Nintendo is a fun little number called Spy Hunter. If you remember Spy Hunter, that was a top-down vehicle game that played very much in the vein of the James Bond series. But nope, still no James Bond games on the Nintendo Entertainment System. And to tell us a little bit more about 1989's License to Kill, let's hear from Phil from Manchester. 
So I would have got it when I was probably eight or nine. Well, it, the first Bond game I remember getting, probably the first computer game I remember actively trying to hunt down. I had the Spectrum 48K, the bare bones Spectrum. Not even the um, ZX Plus. It was the old plastic keyboard one, a bit of a knockoff version of it. It was on cassette. So he came, I remember when we got it in sort of the mid-80s, some bloke came around to set us big plastic keyboard, little cassette player at the side, a joystick that was worse than useless. You know, rather than going to your, you know, your local computer shop or hardware place, it was, you had to know someone. And the whole idea was it's maybe educational, but Spectrum wasn't really an educational machine. It was boot up, being straight into basic. You know, it was very basic as it was. But I remember going to the shop at the top of the road that I lived. It used to have a carousel with all the cassettes on. And I remember it being probably about 10, 15 pounds. You know, pretty expensive. And it didn't even come with like the, um, it wasn't even just a normal cassette case. It was kind of like the slightly larger one, slightly smaller than a CD. So there's probably enough room for a booklet in there kind of thing. And just remember playing it, loading it up. And the music was, as you would expect from a system of its age, trying to play the Bond theme tune. straight into the game pretty much and the whole first well I'd say three levels out of five on it was the pre-title sequence in the movie you're in a heli- you're in the helicopter about to land you were then on the ground you know the whole bit running around just killing the baddies and then the level after that was catching Sanchez in his plane from the helicopter I mean I struggled to get up to the third level more often than not being a kid and you know back then games you weren't used to you know the strategy of it with a bit of a shoot 'em up so you kind of just got either going really too cautious and he's getting yourself pinned down or you just were completely off because you're using the arrow keys on the keyboard to try and direct <laughs> yourself so you, you couldn't shoot anything really just one of the games that always stuck me it was the first bond game i had and i suppose it just i was massively getting into bond i couldn't go see license to kill at the cinema i was too young so I had to wait for it to come out on video and hopefully I knew someone who could go to the video shop and get it for me. The other thing I had was the book that came with the cassette. You used to have, so you have like the story you'd go through, very basic story and a picture book with a cassette you could listen to as you went through it. So from having that and, you know, seeing the trailer for it on TV at some time, you kind of go, I know what this bit kind of is. And it was only when I went back to it after watching the movie sort of in the, the early 90s, you know, the computer was on its way out at the time. Before we get rid of it, I'm going to crank it back up and have a go. And it's then it kind of all like clicked and made sense. Going, ah, oh, right, I get this bit now. Understood the why you were doing things rather than just having the thing of your bond go kill people. Phil from Manchester teaches us all a good lesson and that it's always a good idea to know why you're shooting people. <laughs> With that, we're going to move into the very final James Bond video game release of the 1980s. Also coming out in 1989, just in time for the holiday season, we have the James Bond 007 Action Pack. And it isn't exactly a new game, but it kind of is. Domark and the ZX partnered for a holiday release for a special gaming bundle. 
So this was the ZX Spectrum Plus 2. And so you got the entire system, the ZX Spectrum Plus 2, and three games, all quote-unquote James Bond games. The first one was called Mission Zero, which was just a re-release of The Living Daylight, which had come out in 1987. Also packaged with this ZX Spectrum Plus 2 was a game called Q's Armory, which was a simple light gun shooting range type of game. Very simple. And thirdly, there was Lord Bromley's Estate, another light gun game. Very simple, where you shoot clay pigeons and they sort of loosely tied it to the James Bond mythos. Now, what's particularly interesting, though, is in this bundle pack, first of all, the packaging is insanely awesome. Like, I couldn't believe it when I saw the packaging. I mean, it is ZX Spectrum Plus 2. It's got the most beautiful James Bond art on it. Very Living Daylights movie poster stuff going on there. Very, very, very cool. Another cool thing about it is that Desmond Llewellyn himself provides some of the voice work for these additional games. In fact, it's kind of funny because the Lord Bromley's Estate game was originally supposed to be the Lord Broccoli's Estate game, but it was changed for some unknown reasons. But Desmond Llewellyn still says Lord Broccoli on the audio. There's a couple of other neat little nuggets that come in the action pack. One of which is that you do get a bit more additional backstory for Brad Whitaker from License to Kill. He's a member of an evil organization known as Spider. So, hmm, do with that what you will. Really wish I owned one of these. They're so cool looking. But with that, let's listen to the commercial that was released for that. And after the commercial, we'll roll into some experience with the system itself from Max Byrne from the Mandatory Marvel and DC podcast on the Comics in Motion Network. Attention, Bond. This is the Sinclair ZX Spectrum Plus 2. It's a fully operational computer with 128K memory, but it comes with three James Bond games and a light gun that fires armor-piercing shells. Now that's your assignment. No, no, don't sit in that chair. Sorry, Bond. Haven't perfected that yet. The Sinclair ZX Spectrum Plus 2. So... Casting my mind back to 1989, talking about the 007 action pack for the Spectrum, or the Spectrum Plus 2, as it was known in those days. This came out in 89 in England, basically just sort of trailed on TV. There was TV spots for it, and it was plugged for the Christmas market, so it was on a lot of kids' Christmas list that year. My memory of 31 years ago is somewhat hazy, but I don't remember getting it for Christmas. I think I got it after Christmas. Maybe it would come down in price. We have January sales in this country. After Christmas, people spend the sort of gift money and what have you. So I think I got it probably early 1990, if memory serves me correctly. But when I got it at the time, it was a dream come true. I think we got it from a, there was a local sort of computer game shop near where I lived in the town where I lived. It wasn't bought on mail order or anything like that. And obviously this massively predates anything online. So I don't know how much it costs. I know when it initially came out, I think it was retailing for about £159 all in for the box set. But I would imagine... When I got it, it'd probably come down by a few quid, but I couldn't tell you. I'd have to ask my parents to dig into their memory banks for that. What I remember specifically was the absolute brilliant packaging that it came in. It was such a badass looking box set. You had the sort of poster art from the Living Daylights film, a great image of Dalton in the gun barrel, looking suave as only he could in the tuxedo. And you had the various sort of bits and bobs from the film. And then in the other corner of the box was two lads playing with the actual computer itself with the light gun that came with it. So it looked pretty great as a set. And then when you opened it, it was a brilliant treasure trove of all these different things. 
it came with like a brown dossier envelope, like top secret envelopes. You were as a child, it was like being your own version of a spy. You had um, a replica of James Bond's passport in there, which was pretty great thing to have. You had like a typed out memo from M, which was very cool. And the coolest thing of all was there was this audio cassette that came with it and they'd actually recruited Desmond Llewellyn to do the voice work for it in character as Q, basically just sort of priming you how each game worked and what was expected of you. It wasn't anything dramatic, but as a nine, 10 year old at that point, actually hearing Q addressing you as 007 was, it was a dream come true to be perfectly honest. So within there, you got three games, two were sort of fairly lightweight and then the third one was where the sort of meat on the bone was you had the first one was called lord bromley's estate which was basically just a clay pigeon shooting game sort of tarted up as being bond on the firing range and then you had a second one called q's armory which again was just a again a firing simulator you were supposed to be like on the firing range a bit like you would have seen bond doing in skyfall or something like that so that was pretty cool And then the third one was Mission Zero, which all that was, in essence, was the Living Daylights game that had already been released a year or two previous when the Living Daylights came out. And they just rebranded it as Mission Zero. But at that time, I'd never played the Living Daylights game anyway, so I was pretty stoked to be doing that. And the great thing about all three games was you actually used a physical gun to do the shooting. It wasn't like just using a joystick or the keyboard to line up like a crosshair you actually had a physical gun called the Spectrum Light Gun, I think it was called. And it was a pretty futuristic looking ray gun and you plugged it in to the side of the computer and away you go. I don't remember it being the most uh, responsive of guns. I seem to remember many times having to literally have it like a couple of inches from the TV screen to actually register a shot. I seem to remember getting rather annoyed with that as a kid, but hey-ho, I mean, just to have something like that back in the late 80s was pretty cool. The Living Daylights game itself... Not the most in-depth of games, It's especially by today's standards, where you can spend hours upon hours upon hours playing the game. I think if you were to play the game from top to bottom now, you could complete it in about five minutes. In fact, if you go on YouTube now, there's some guy who's posted like a walkthrough of the entire game. Normally, these are hours worth of material to sit through, but it's literally five minutes to go through all eight levels, some of which are so short. But they did quite a good job, actually, of representing the sort of narrative of the film It was chronologically in order with the film in the different locations, starting with Gibraltar and then going to Bratislava, Vienna, Tangiers. There was one level set, the Blade and Safe House as well. So all the key locations, well, most of the key locations from the film were there. So, you know, you could get immersed into that, I suppose. There was not much sound in the game. It was kind of just a little of you firing your shots from your wall, the PPK. Although when you got to the end of each level, sort of to mark the end of each level, you did get a nice few bars of the Bond theme. But when I say a few bars, I really do mean a few bars. It was just like, duh, 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 and then gone. That was it. <laughs> um, but it, still, it was pretty cool. The ending was a bit of anticlimax, I remember. You'd sort of gone through these eight levels and you'd sort of defeated Necros and you'd done your earlier mission escorting Koskoff to safety and all the rest of it. And when you get to the end and you face off with Whitaker at his, his house there, it was literally like a 30-second job to kill him. And then rather than like a, what you get now, you get like this epic cutscene and you'd probably get a scene of you sort of living happily ever after of Kara or something like that. All you literally got was um, a graphic saying, congratulations, you've killed Whitaker. the Prime Minister thanks you. And it was on the screen for about 30 seconds and then it dropped out and that was it. That was it. And then you were literally back to the start where the, you had the option to replay the game again. Overall, by today's standards, obviously, it's not 
the greatest game in the world and, and never could be from a system like the Spectrum back then. But at the time, with all the free stuff you got with it and the, the package and just the fact that you were able to fire an actual gun as well, as a, as a nine, 10 year old Bond fan of the 80s back then, it was a heavenly thing to have. And I'm so grateful I had it, you know. I wish I still had it because I think those box sets in good condition can go for quite some good money now. So I wish I'd get hold of it. But I suppose when you're a kid, you move on to the bigger and better game system. So it was long gone, I'm afraid. But overall, I would say it was a well put together package. And I think any English fan of Bond back then would have been chomping at the bit to play it. I know I certainly was. And with that discussion of the truly awesome James Bond game pack with the ZX Spectrum X2 from 1989... That will bring us to the end of Disc 1 of the Digital 007, a look back at James Bond in video games. I'd like to thank the following people for making this happen. I'd like to thank Joe Slepsky. You may know him as the voice of the Gamefly commercials. He does the intros. And then, of course, our guests. Phil, the No Swear Gamer from YouTube. Raymond Benson. Mike from New Jersey. Matt from Darlington, who runs the at Bond Maps account on Twitter. The Wizard of Ice. Phil from Manchester, Max Byrne from the Mandatory Marvel and DC podcast on the Comics in Motion Network, Marty from Newcastle, who gave me a wonderful interview about the 1989 James Bond action pack, and it just got lost in the ether. I'm really sorry Marty didn't get on this episode. I loved his interview so much, but we just couldn't get back together in time. Sorry, Marty, but I want to give you a shout out. And finally, folks, I must thank musical genius Joe November. He put together a completely original track for this podcast series. So what's going to happen here is I'm about to hand it over to our network founder, Van Allen Plexigo, to thank all of our Patreon supporters who make this possible. And after that, I'm going to play Joe's original track in its entirety for the outro music. I want you guys to really enjoy that. Musical Genius Joe November can be found on SoundCloud. Just look up Joe November and you can find all of his amazing tracks on his SoundCloud page. But this James Bond track so far is exclusive only to our podcast. So we're going to listen to the Patreon list. And then after that, please stick around because I want you to hear Joe's entire track. Thanks for being here. And we will catch you next episode where we do disc two, which will take us from 1990 to 1999. And I think there's a little game in there that might just be kind of popular in the video game community. I'm not sure, but We'll talk about it when we get there. Thanks for listening. Catch you around. We have to thank Matthew Flowers, Carl Von Drunker, Samuel Salvatore, and Christopher Burleson, as well as Phil Amthor, Ben Spooner, Bart Lindsay, Bradley Blackman, William Glenn Matthews, Gary Grant, Brian Gray, Willie Carden, Tom Anderson, Susan Trawick, Logan Chilton, Stephen Thompson, Chris Usher, Steve Trawick, and Richard Stevens. And then, of course, we got William Morgan, Johnny Caldwell, Emmanuel Seaman, WDE Richie, Winston Body, Clinton Stewart, and Christopher Stewart. Hey, guys. Mickey B, Phil Davis, Joshua Corbett, John Otsuki, Preston Settle, Daniel Odom, AU4. Falling up Alchemist, Kevin Smith, Clarence Alford, Will Summerford, David Hegler, Theodore Gary, Reynolds Wolf, Joel Beckham, Valiant Hermes, Jacob and Robin Fleming, Clay Henson, Ann Kangian, Catherine England, George Gaston, John McCune, David Evers, Timothy, Steve Harlan, Dan Thompson, Wes Atkinson, and Rich Reimer. Then we have Sarah Hines, 
Darius Benton, a couple of new folks welcome aboard. Rob Morgan, Blake Heron, Hugh Anderson, Stephen Houston, Cato the Barner, Danny Flack, Puppy Todd, Russell Milling, Kevin Canoy, Don Zederman, Ross, Lane Middleton, Shannon Butson, Randall Walker, Shane Bailey, Chris Thrash, Tony Perry, Alex Wynn, Josh Teal, David Simpson, Earl Ricks, Mike Finley, and C.T. Wayne. And finally, good old Jeremy Minton, Wardam Wade, Spanky, J.W. Rice, Jason Albrick, Mitch Vigicana, Mick Vigicana, not Mitch, Russell Souther, I've said these names a million times and I still mess them up, <laughs> Paul Paxson, Joseph Iliff, Justin Bean, Kevin Mahan, Stephen Wyatt. See, if you fast forward through this, you miss all the fun. Trevor Johnson, Auburn Elvis, Robert Drain, Brandon Smith, Royce Alvarez, Thomas Brinson, David Smiley, Matthew Wagstaff, Donnie Reynolds, Wade Carson, Ivor Evans, John Zavachin, Michael Morton, Lawrence Kane, Darren Pyle. I'm sure nobody fast forwards through it. You want to hear all my wacky mispronunciations. Chris Camo, Ben Amos, Ruth and Darren Sutherland, Patrick Williams, Stephen Schuster, James Taylor, John Stubbs, Kenneth Brent Rains, Nicholas Craig, Joseph A. Miller, Mark Squire, Chris Brant Rumble, our one-time and anonymous donors. And we thank you all. We really appreciate you. We couldn't do it literally without you. Visit www.plexico.net, P-L-E-X-I-C-O.net to become a member and join the fun. And now, ladies and gentlemen, in its entirety, Joe November's track, Smirsh, LOL. listening to the on her majesty's secret podcast production of 
The Digital 007, a look back at James Bond in video games. The 90s. Hello and welcome to the Digital 007. A look back at James Bond in video games, of course, brought to you by On Her Majesty's Secret Podcast and our fine Patreon sponsors. I'm Jared Albrecht, the yard sale artist, aka Death Probe, and I will be taking you through this journey through the decades to look at all the various incarnations of James Bond in video games. Let me tell you how this is generally going to work. I will give you some basic information on each game, and we're more interested in hearing from people who have played the games along the way. So wherever possible, I was out there hitting those internets, finding our listeners, our friends, people who rally around the show over at Twitter at OHMSPod, and I'm catching these folks and I'm talking to them about their James Bond video game experiences. So there's going to be a lot of that thrown in here. We're really just going to be looking at the fun facts, going through the timeline, and getting those interesting experiences from our very listeners. This has been an absolute blast to put together, so let me not waste any more time and get straight to our first game. Welcome to 1990. Even though 1990 would start a long drought in the realm of James Bond cinema, it would actually offer up two new James Bond games in the realm of video games. The first one we will discuss is 1990's James Bond, The Spy Who Loved Me. If you listened to the last episode, you'll know that Domark was holding the James Bond license for video games at this time. They had acquired it in 1985 with a view to a kill. And by 1990, they were no longer pressured to sync up a video game release with a film, so they were able to open up the James Bond library to their video game adventures. And they chose The Spy Who Loved Me. It was available on the Amiga, the Atari ST, the Amstrad CPC, the Commodore 64, DOS systems, the Sega Master System, and of course, the ZX Spectrum. It was a top-down vehicle shooter. If you listened to the last episode, you'll also know that in the realm of James Bond-ish games, people were quite enjoying the game Spy Hunter, both in the arcade and on the Nintendo Entertainment System. And I believe that Domark saw that and decided, well, why not make it an official James Bond game? Because The Spy Who Loved Me plays very much like Spy Hunter. And with that, let's get to our first interview. The Wizard of Ice has returned one more time to let us know what it was like gaming in 1990, The Spy Who Loved Me, on his ZX Spectrum. So we get on to Spy Love Me, which is probably the one I least remember, because I think by this stage I was getting older, and so it wasn't the biggest thrill. 
I was only 15, so you still think it'll be exciting. But I think at this stage, I was quite into the books and quite in a sort of pretentious, studenty, snobby. If it's not Fleming, I'm not interested. Sort of, I'm a hardcore, serious Bond fan. You know, I can't be doing this frivolities like JW. This is a, this is a heresy. Whereas obviously now I can embrace the awfulness of JW and live with it. But back then, it was a, it was an affront to my fledgling Fleming sensibility. <laughs> I don't think I felt the need to rush out and buy it. Should we say for opening day? Probably I said another money. Yeah. I'm just only got to save at the time 15 quids, quite a decent chunk of your money. I think I was getting like a pound or two pound a week pocket money. So to actually save up to buy a bond game, if it wasn't a birthday or Christmas, you were investing sizably. So it couldn't be done willy nilly. Uh, the box on this, again, hand drawn. I don't know if the posters cost more to use. Then just get a commission of guys to draw it. Not bad. Um, I think it's that Rog and Anya, standing some sort of gun post as usual. Rog and Anya quite well drawn. And maybe some generic explosions, possibly Lotus in the sub mode and stuff like that. Don't think Jaws is in the cover. No fun on the back this time. A bit more serious. Yeah, the back was just a lot of screenshots, and notably a lot of screenshots from computers that were better than mine. Because by this stage, I had the Amiga. I think there's another one. Was it Atari? There were two big names. I think it was Amiga and Atari, which were the next level up in terms of graphical and power. And it looks bloody good on that on those computers. The screenshots I've seen on those computers looks good. Looks for the time, obviously. This game looks pretty tasty. Doesn't look so tasty on mine, to say the least. Again, we can't the same all the time. You're driving up the screen this time. Whereas in Living living That Die, you're behind the boat, going forwards. So same last to kill, top down. And you're driving up the screen in the Lotus. So you start off in the Lotus on land, drive along, and you sky shoot at you. I think it's a day of cars. You, you shoot, you take them out of the missile or something like that. It's like a cute truck, and you can drive into the back like Knight Rider. Which sounds exciting, but you just crash into the back of it and then the sprites overlay to a QC. So, yeah, it sounds like it sounds thrilling, but it's not particularly that good. Um, and then you get an option to get the upgrades, which missiles or I think it's a laser, it's different weapons you can buy, you can upgrade to in the back of the queue if you've got enough points or something. Don't remember that being particularly thrilling, but that's how you get your different weapons. And then you go back on the road and you shoot some more people until you run out of stuff and another queue truck comes. The mechanics of Living Let Die and the physics are pretty good, pretty fluid. And the mechanics of this are a bit less, it's a bit sticky or clunky. It doesn't feel not very intuitive. You don't feel the sort of fluidity like you do with Living Let Die. So I guess it's a bit of a downer on that respect. Let's see, I have a first level on the road. I think you just stop at some point randomly. But it's supposed to be the hotel, I don't know. And I think there's a boat level where you're in a boat. I think it must be some sort of pseudo, you go to Atlantis with Naomi in the boat. But people are shooting at you for some reason, so it's a bit harsh given that you haven't actually met Stromberg yet. So you do that level on the water, which is just a speedboat. But I mean, it's the same stuff. You've just got a different shaped sprite as the vehicle. So the vehicle's a boat, and this time it shoots. Or it's a boat, and it shoots. But it's the same. Everything's the same, the mechanics. and You have different, right, you're shooting boats instead of cars. But then you get back on the road. So I guess that is the bit where you come back and Jaws is chasing you. Although Jaws doesn't chase you. They're just generic baddies in cars and whatever. So just guys in cars, you shoot them, you kill them. And eventually you do that enough. And then you get to the pier... And then this is the big money shot you're getting excited for. I'm going to drive off the pier into the water, obviously. This is, this is it. And it's going to turn into the sub. But no, in this game, you get all excited, floor it down the pier, and the game just takes over and pulls you to a gentle halt at the end of the pier. And that's the end of the level. And you're like, well, no, that's not really acceptable, is it? Um, this, that's the thing that pisses me off. I don't mind, because there's later levels in this game where you've got Jaws to fight, which are totally different graphics and stuff like that. It's totally it's almost a sub-game, but that's only on the Atari. The Amstrad hasn't got power to do that. So, I can, okay, I can live with that. There's extra little levels that people with better computers can do. All right, fair enough. I'm, that's me. Again, I'm not middle class anymore. I've got the cheap the Amstrad from the 80s. 
but don't just stop my Lotus at the end of the pier. For no, there's no reason. Just keep it driving. It's not difficult. Just keep it driving into the water. The next level is the Lotus in the water, for Christ's sake. It's the same sprite of the Lotus, just with little fins on, because it's the sub, and that's in the water. So I've got the Lotus here and the water there, and the, the computer has no difference between you. You're the bloke animating it. This Lotus just drives in, just drive it into the f-ing water. But they don't do that. You stop at the end of the pier, and that's the end of the level. And the next level, you're in the sub, and no explanation how you got there. So that's my one big memory of that. It's a little moment, but come on. Come up with a reason like, oh, well, you need rooms full of processes to render that. That's, that's way too hard for you. No, because it's just the same thing. You just you drive, road to sea, road to sea. The computer doesn't know the difference. And so, yeah, so I'm not sure that colours my whole thinking of the game, but it's, it's a big annoyance. So then you're in the sub anyway. The same Lotus, little set of square Lotus, exactly the same with the pre It's got little four little fins on the side. And you shoot and you take out some scuba guys and you take out some guys in little, little underwater little sled things. I think you do that for a bit. And I think for me that might be it, because I've got the shit version. <laughs> oh my goodness, the Wizard of Ice cracks me up every time. Well, with that rather humorous look back at The Spy Who Loved Me by Domark in 1990, let's move on to the second game that was released in 1990. The game was called James Bond 007 The Stealth Affair. It was made by Interplay, and it was available on the Amiga, the Atari ST, and the MS-DOS. It is a point-and-click adventure game made specifically for computer systems. This one's a little bit interesting because it was originally released in Europe as Operation Stealth, and then it got some licensing issues worked out and was able to rebrand itself as a James Bond game. So they went in and they just changed some text in the game to basically put a James Bond wrapper around it. Nothing fundamentally changed about the game. If you have Operation Stealth, as it was originally made, and you have the Stealth Affair, the James Bond version, you will not notice any significant difference other than in the text. Even then, they didn't have the time to get the text updated perfectly. So in the James Bond adventure, the Stealth Affair, he still works for the American CIA instead of the British Secret Service. It's really just a quick repaint to make it into a James Bond game. With that said, let's talk to Pat Sampson, a host from the Longbox Crusade and one of the co-hosts here for On Her Majesty's Secret Podcast. So I remember getting the Stealth Affair. It was me and my friend. He's a big computer buddy of mine, Glenn. We've had on the Longbox Crusade a long time ago. We were both into computer games, and so we would go up to Appleton, which is about 40 minutes away drive. So we'd have to drive to get to a decent computer place that would have, you know, like, I don't know if it was EB Games. Hey, guys. Welcome to EB Games. You'd go on the wall, and it'd be like you have all the box art there, and just look at all these cool games, and you go, oh, man, those are some really sweet covers and cool games. So I remember we were looking around for a game. I saw that one. I'm like, ah, maybe I'll give this one a try. It was the James Bond Stealth Affair with the red box. And to this day, I remember that cover. It stood out to me. And I'm like, ah, I like, you know, I like a role-playing kind of a game. 
So I like some strategy a little bit. So that's why I kind of picked that game up. And I remember playing it, but it was really tough to do, tough to play. And I didn't have a computer in 1990. My dad had one. And so when he would go to work at third shift, so 10 o'clock at night, he'd be gone. I'd be up either playing my Indiana Jones games that I got as well, too, from back then. They were on the floppy, and so was the Stealth Affair was on floppy disk. Three and a half. It wasn't on the five and a quarter. But I put that into the old uh, IBM machine there and play it. I just remember, man, it was a tough game, but really cool sound effects. I totally wish I could find it again and play it. And that will close out 1990, where we had two games released. And next up, we'll move into 1991. In 1991, we're still in the middle of the James Bond movie drought. No new movies on the horizon for the foreseeable future. But 1991, much like 1990, blesses us with two game releases. Sort of. I say sort of because the game that was released was based off of the now popular animation show, James Bond Jr. James Bond Jr. secret mission, but scum is ready. Walker the plank hooks IQ. Jaws is having a snack. On job is flipping his lid. But IQ packs a punch and James Bond Jr. dives into action. Mission accomplished. James Bond Jr. figures and vehicles sold separately. In 1991, THQ released James Bond Jr. video games. One for the regular 8-bit Nintendo Entertainment System the other for the more powerful 16-bit Super Nintendo Entertainment System. They're both side-scrolling adventures, but they're very different games. The Super Nintendo version is not just a basic graphic and audio upgrade of the regular Nintendo version. They are two completely separate different games with different layouts, and the Super Nintendo one even includes vehicle levels that the regular Nintendo one doesn't. They are alike in almost no way except for the fact they're both action platformers. So let's start with the 8-bit Nintendo version, and let's have a talk with Aaron Bossig from the Hungry Trilobite Podcast and his thoughts on the 8-bit original Nintendo, James Bond Jr. I came into James Bond Jr. picking up the cartridge for a couple of bucks during an internet sale at some point in the 2000s when I was buying a lot of NES games. And honestly, it's weird that I didn't get into it before because I loved NES games since the NES was new. I've always liked James Bond. The concept of James Bond Jr. confused me a little bit, mostly because he was James Bond's nephew. And I thought, gee, why don't they want him to be James Bond's son? Nobody would have any questions as James Bond having a son. That's something we'd find very plausible. But let's just let that go for a minute. James Bond Jr. on the NES was released by a company called THQ, and you need to understand THQ to understand this game. THQ, in that point in time, earned their bread and butter by licensing very popular properties and making video games out of them. The games, for the most part, were very bad. I'll be honest with you. They were not good. They had all sorts of problems, ranging from... Poor design, poor play, poor hit detection. They were always the bottom of the barrel, but they were pretty. Whatever money THQ spent on these games always went into the graphics and the music 
the things that would get your attention when you walk by them in a store, that's what they spent their money on. And it shows. James Bond Jr. is no exception. You play this game. The first thing you're going to see is that it's got a lot of fantastic large pixel art, some large character designs. It's got some amazing parallax scrolling, which is something that you didn't really see commonplace until the Super Nintendo came out. So on a technical level, it succeeds on that level. And I'll be honest with you, the game is actually the best THQ game I've ever played. That's not a high bar to set, but it is a competent side scroller that nudges on being, I want to say pretty good, decent, the higher end of decent. You're going to get in there and you've got decenter, (laughs) decenter is not really a word, but it's better than it would have been on some of the other THQ games you would have played from only a year or two earlier, like Rocky and Bullwinkle, like Ren and Stimpy, all those other games. The game was almost unplayable because the jumping was off or the hit detection was off. You were constantly getting sucker punched by enemies who had far more power than you do. And James Bond Jr. doesn't completely avoid those pitfalls. But at least when you're starting off on that first level and you realize you fall into the pit and you can't jump back out of the pit, you have a reasonable chance of going back with your next life and saying, okay, maybe I can avoid that pit this time. I can learn from my mistakes. There were so many other CHQ games where you never learned how to make that jump because it just required that pixel perfect skill that honestly, the game wasn't fun enough for you to actually enjoy playing. You didn't want to practice it that much because you got to that stage and it's like, eh, I get sucker punched by the same log over and over again. I'm just not going to play anymore. With James Bond Jr., you start to learn the enemy's patterns. You start to learn how you're getting from point A to point B. The game is just fun enough that you actually can practice and get better. And that's more than I could say for any other THQ game. As far as the story goes, this is another area where THQ wasn't totally terrible. The stories behind the games were always in tune with one of the better installments of whatever property they licensed, be that, you know, Red and Stimpy, Rocky and Bullwinkle, Where's Waldo? Everything made sense. And the story for James Bond Jr. takes much the same path. The stages all match what a Saturday morning cartoon about a spy would match in theme, in tone. It works pretty well. Is it the best James Bond game ever? I'm not going to even suggest that, but. It's a decent Nintendo game. It's not the worst you could put on your shelf. You're going to have a good time with it. If I have to point out one area where the game does start to get frustrating, where the THQ mark doesn't completely leave it, on most games, if you push the up button on a platformer, you're going to go up a ladder or through a door if you're in front of a ladder or a door. If you're not, the game does nothing. But on this game, for whatever reason, if you push the up button, your character turns away from the screen and puts his back to you. So it's like the up button is like a take a leak button because that's what it looks like James Bond Jr. does. This seems like a nothing deal, but that often interferes with doing a jump, interferes with avoiding enemies. And it's the kind of thing where you say, whoever made this game did not think of this. They didn't play through it enough to realize that that accidental up button push is a deal breaker if it actually does something when you don't want it to. So I would definitely say that it's the best THQ game I've ever played. It is a middling platformer overall for the NES. Thank you, Aaron, for that excellent review of James Bond Jr. on the Nintendo Entertainment System. 
As I stated before, THQ released two versions of James Bond Jr. in 1991. The other one was on the Super Nintendo 16-bit system. And for that, I have SCXCR from YouTube's $5 Gamer Show. He's going to weigh in on the Super Nintendo version of James Bond Jr. I found the game at a place called Super Game Team. It's this really small, locally owned trade-in store that just specializes in old video game stuff. I go there a lot when I'm looking for like more obscure retro games and what have you. So I started combing through them, and I eventually found a copy of James Bond Jr. on the SNES. It was super cheap. I think it was like $2 or less. So I figured, this is pretty low risk. I'll just get it, play it, see what I think. I decided I was going to do the episode before I played the game. That's how I always do it. And I played through it and I thought, oh, man, that was rough. (laughs) My first exposure to the game was seeing the name Grey Matter in the credits that pop up during the title screen. So I got this wrong at the time, but Grey Matter, there were two different game companies called Grey Matter around at that time. The one that made this game was a Canadian game developer, which apparently at one point was the largest game development studio in Canada. They're dead now, but they had a history. I just combed through the list of games that they made, and there are some really terrible games on here. Like they did NES Dirty Harry, Phoenix 3 on the 3DO, Crow City of Angels. It's not good. So I started playing James Bond Jr., I got to this one, it's technically the first level, but it's kind of a non-level where all you do is like jump up a couple platforms, see the bad guy, he flies away. Oh, I should probably say how the game plays. So (laughs) it's like a platformer sort of with like some action elements to it. You can shoot, you can punch, you can kick. Well, you can shoot if you have ammo, which isn't always the case. And then there are these side-scrolling shoot-em-up sections where you're in a a helicopter or a jet fighter. My experience with those wasn't particularly good. There's this frequent problem with the game where what you can see on screen is uh, not what's actually appeared. Enemies will appear maybe half a screen over, and then they'll start attacking you. And because they're off screen, there's nothing you can do to attack them. So most of my playthrough was me getting shot from off screen and dying. And um, there are also like things that crawl on the ground that attack you, like snakes in particular. The game really loves snakes for some reason. You have absolutely nothing you can do about them except lob grenades at them, which weirdly enough, they made the Dirty Harry NES game and that's how you killed them there too. I don't know if that's just something Grey Matter has against snakes, but anyway, my main issue with the game was the way it controlled. Jumping was floaty, but you could kind of get used to that. I always found it weird that James Bond Jr.'s punch had more range than his kick, which, if you know anything about biology, really doesn't make much sense. There was like a roll you could do to get under things or dodge projectiles. But the thing is, it was assigned to down and forward, which you can accidentally hit just whenever. So a bunch of my deaths in the game were me rolling into an enemy, taking damage, and then just dying. The uh, shoot 'em up sequences, 
they don't have the option where you can just hold down the button and you'll automatically fire. So you have to keep mashing the fire button for like several minutes at a time. And then I had one toward the end that just glitched out on me. I died, respawned, and then no enemies appeared. I was just stuck in fighter jet purgatory where I would never actually reach the scum base. So I had to shut off the game, look up a password because I wasn't looking up passwords for this, and then um, get back to close to where I was. Another thing I found weird was they only could do so much with the game. So a bunch of the cast from the TV show was cut. In the TV show, you had people like Goldfinger, his daughter, Dr. No, and then a bunch of other characters like Walker D. Plank, who's (laughs) this weird pirate guy. (laughs) They cut two-thirds of the cast from the show, including some of the people who help James, which, as someone who watched the show, was kind of off-putting to me because it seemed like you were just fighting the same thing over and over. It was basically Dr. Derange and uh, Scumlord, and then I think Skullcap appeared at some point, and that was pretty much it. I do have one positive I take away from this game, which is um, a glitch that you can trigger on the first level. And this is just kind of fascinating from a programming standpoint, because the way it's supposed to work is you approach Dr. Derange, he runs away, and then you start the next level. But if you roll backward in a certain way, you can cause him to disappear, and then that level just never ends, which sounds bad, except you can walk off the edge of the stage and then just fall into this garbled mess of programming and sprites. It's never quite the same every time you do it. So I just occasionally go back and see what I can get to happen. Like, I'll find items that never appeared during the game proper. I actually found this, like, thermal vest item, which is supposed to appear during the last stage. IQ even tells you about the item, and then it just never shows up. But they did programming into the game, and it, like, changes the way his character sprite works. I just find that kind of stuff fascinating. But what usually happens is I'll die for no reason... Or I'll get stuck between two walls and not be able to move anywhere. One time I got James stuck in an infinite rolling animation. <laughs> oh, geez. I actually will like bring this to friends' houses sometimes. Because some of my friends have SNESs too. And I'll just give them the game and see, here, see what you can get to have happen. And one of them, I will never forget this. He managed to die in midair. Now, usually, when James dies in midair, he falls to the ground and then does his death animation. But he managed to get it so that the floor never reappeared. So James is just falling infinitely. And then all of a sudden the screen blacks out and he skips forward two stages. It's a little buggy. There's another bug you can do during any level that has a ladder and a moving platform. Where if you climb down as the moving platform is going, James will still be in the climbing animation, but he'll just be doing it on the wall. Just wherever the platform deposits him. I mean, I don't think I would recommend it as a casual game, but if you're looking for like doing the weird glitches, which like you don't even need to progress in the game at all to be able to do most of them, then it's absolutely worth your time. I have one video on my channel, which is just half an hour of triggering the glitch over and over and over and seeing what happens. I still have fun going back to this now and then. heard it straight from SCXCR, ladies and gentlemen. If you are a video game bug hunter and that you like the glitchy games and the things you can do with it, well then, James Bond Jr. on the Super Nintendo is for you. 
And in case you couldn't tell, my buddy SCXCR was a bit of a James Bond Jr. fan, and he asked if he could just get about 30 seconds to talk about the show and its ending, and I thought, why not? So not video game related, but a quick check-in with SCXCR and his final thoughts on the James Bond Jr. cartoon. As someone who watched the show back then, I was kind of sad that it didn't really have any sort of conclusion. It just ended like any other episode would. I think it was the episode where Walk D. Plank got Thor's hammer. And, (laughs) you know, when I say that out loud, it sounds ridiculous. But um, I was hoping for like some kind of conclusion with like Scum and Scum Lord and something like that. But there were like 60 something episodes of it. So you can still go back to it now and then and like find a fun little diversion from it Around the world. and that ladies and gentlemen will take us to the end of james bond's nephew james bond jr in video games it'll also take us to the end of 1991 we're going to skip over 1992 since nothing of james bond importance happened on that year in the realm of video games but the next video game would come out in 1993 1993 would give us a little game called James Bond The Duel. It was available on the Sega Genesis, known as the Mega Drive in Europe. It was also available on the Master System and the Game Gear. This would be Domark's final 007 game. After this, the company Domark would get absorbed into the video game company Eidos, which if you know your games well, you know they would eventually be part of the gaming company that would give us Lara Croft and Tomb Raider. But this was Domark's last official licensed game. Previously, in this documentary, we've seen Domark release several games. They held the license since 1985, and here in 1993, they're going to release James Bond The Duel. But this would be the first time they ever did one for a mass-market console system like the Sega Genesis. James Bond The Duel was a side-scrolling action game. It included fan-favorite James Bond villains like Jaws, Objob, Baron Samity, even though he's called Bones in the game for some reason, and Mayday, who is called Yo-Yo in the game for some reason. I'm sure it's rights issues. The game actually centers around a fairly clever plot if you read the manual. It's one of those games where back in the day you had to read the manual to fully understand the game that you were playing. The plot is pretty good in that James Bond isn't fighting officially Jaws or Oddjob or any of the previously mentioned villains, but this new villain has learned cloning technology and is cloning James Bond's greatest foes. Not a bad storyline, but you had to read the manual to get there. Most interesting is that this is Timothy Dalton's last official appearance as James Bond. Timothy Dalton lends his face to the cover art for this video game, and it would be his last official appearance as 007. Timothy Dalton didn't get enough films nor enough games, in my opinion. But hey, it's not about my opinions. Let's talk to John from Twitter's at NotPerfectedYet. So first seeing the duel was uh, on the shelves in a store called Woolworths, which anyone from the UK will remember, which was a great shop for literally buying just anything you wanted. It was sat there in the new releases of computer games, and it was priced up as £39.99 which was the marketing ploy that was always used to sell computer games being it's a penny less than being £40, but it looks like it's in the 30s, so it's cheaper when it's not. 
And I would have saved up my money to get that game over several weeks because it was James Bond and James Bond was the thing that I wanted. I was really into it at this point as a child. Back then, we had James Bond Jr. come and go at this point, And now this game had come out to an 11-year-old child who didn't know anything about legal disputes going on with film companies. As far as we knew, it was business as usual. James Bond was still there. Timothy Dalton was still James Bond. And this was the new computer game that he was in. So completely oblivious to anything legal that was going on. But I was happy just to be playing as James Bond on a Mega Drive. So you'll notice the first thing when you put the game on, start her up. Unlike modern games, there are no cutscenes to explain the plot at all. If you need to know what's going on in the plot, you go to the instruction manual and there is a explanation of the outline of the plot and a level-by-level description of what the level is going to be like and what you will come up against. And the plot of the duel revolves around Professor Gravemar, who is invented purely for this game, is not a Bond villain from books or films, and he's never seen in the game whatsoever, so he might as well not exist. Professor Gravemar is planning to launch satellites into the atmosphere to take over the world. That's as detailed as the plot goes. And he's taken over an island, which you'll infiltrate throughout five levels. And the obstacles you'll go up against include cloned henchmen from the James Bond series, which we have no idea how he's been able to clone the dead henchmen of the past. Interestingly, you've got four henchmen you'll go up against. You have Jaws. You have Odd Job, but then you'll have Bones, who is clearly Baron Samadhi, and you'll have Yo-Yo, who again is clearly Mayday. And it's never explained why they couldn't use the names. And it feels very odd just to run over the description in the manual and act like they had different names all along. And as far as I even remember back, reviews of the game always refer to them as Baron Samadhi and Mayday. So it's not like they were fooling anyone. When you started playing, it was fairly simple gameplay, side-scrolling platform shooter. The objectives you had was to move throughout the level, shoot the bad guys, rescue hostages that were always blonde women. And at the end of a level, you'd have to set a bomb after defeating the boss that you would come up against and then escape the level. The first level, you would have had a luxury yacht. The second level was a woodland base that had a reactor in it. The third level was an underground cavern, and the fourth level was a rocket pad. And the fifth level, but it wasn't so much a level, really. It was more of a final boss. You would come up against Jaws again, but he's in a giant submarine contraption that attacks you with mechanical arms and grenades. In terms of gameplay, it's fairly simple. Walk to one side, jump and shoot. It's very bizarre jump that you can now have James Bond in a tuxedo do 12-foot somersault flips. You'd have to be jumping up and down between things. The jumping mechanisms on the game were fairly clunky. You would uh, literally jump if you caught the edge of a platform and you fell, that's it, you're dead. Just literally missing out by a whisker. In terms of the bosses... It wasn't so much of a question of how difficult were they defeat. You just had to have an experience to know exactly where to stand to shoot them so they couldn't do anything to you. Not very difficult at all. In fact, I remember first working out how to fight Mayday. You'd go up to the platform that she was on and she would be flying, kicking you and wouldn't have any idea what to do. 
And then one day I just worked out if I stood on the platform below and just fired up at her and shot her as she stood there, she'd be defeated without any effort whatsoever. Funny enough, the game being at a time when Timothy Dalton was technically still James Bond and his face being on not only the packaging, but also the menu screen, it's very odd that the fact the entire game has a real Roger Moore feel to it. Everything about it is huge and grandiose and silly and over the top. And even on the third level, the henchmen are all in the yellow Drax outfits from Moonraker. It wasn't the most taxing game to play. It was still very, very enjoyable. If anything, it'd be slightly frustrating from time to time. Jump mechanics would be tricky. You would find enemies would just materialize out of nowhere and shoot you. And with only five shots to take before you lose a life, that became a bit troublesome. So you'd find yourself kind of just running down a corridor, firing just on the off chance that someone should appear. On the whole, it was a really enjoyable game because back then we didn't have much and that was the closest we had. We'd gone from having games on the Spectrum and GoldenEye on the N64 was nowhere near on the horizon at this point. So you pretty much took what you can get. And it was a pretty enough game with entertaining enough levels that killed enough time for you and it was enjoyable i think john from at not perfected yet over on twitter makes an excellent point this was how we stayed in touch with james bond circa 1993 in the middle of our movie drought and sometimes when you make audio documentaries like this you get two interviews and both are so good you don't know which one to use and well you just use both of them so let's take another look at james bond the duel this time from the perspective of Chris from Instagram's British Bond Addict account. The first time playing The Jewel, um, it was actually my godfather's game. Uh, he picked up a Sega Mega Drive, as we call it, in the UK. He got three games. He got Sonic the Hedgehog, an Indiana Jones game, and a James Bond game. Of course, like the first thing we went over, I think, one time, and he's like, oh, look, there's Sonic the Hedgehog. And I was like, yeah, great. This is brilliant. Um, I think I was about five or six at the time. So I think just the idea of playing on a games console was like mind-blowing. I played Sonic for quite a bit, but then I realized there's like some other games and I peeked into it. And I didn't know who this Indiana James guy was, never heard of him. So I went on to the James Bond one. And my dad is like a chronic Bond film watcher. And I, I'm going to blame him for why I'm like I am now. And it would be every weekend. It'd usually be Goldfinger because that's his favorite, but he'd always go through them. And I just pick up on it when I was younger. And it got to a stage like, you know, you'd walk around, you'd sing in the Bond theme to yourself, all that sort of thing. And it's like, it's weird. In Britain at that time, James Bond was actually quite a kid-friendly thing, coming off the back of Roger Moore, Timothy Dalton, which is a bit darker, and then starting off with Pierce. There's lots of kid-based stuff for it. So I had loads of all the toys, all the action figures, all the cars, and, you know, wanting to be James Bond. But then, of course, there's a video game about it. And plugged it in, and of course, it's got the James Bond music straight away. It's not dated particularly well. It's a very sort of patchy one. And then it boots up with this really weird interpretation of Timothy Dalton's face. You look at it and it's <laughs> it's quite bizarre. It's going a bit pretty boy in some instances. There's a bit of Roger Moore in there. There's a bit of Timothy Dalton. But to be fair, I was young. It was big on a screen in front of me. And I was like, yes, let's do it. I'm in. And it kicks off and you go onto a boat. You're in a tuxedo for some reason. And the objective is to save women. And of course, when you're younger, the stereotypes are something that will stand out the most. And you're like, this is James Bond. And I remember playing it and my dad was watching it at the same time as my godfather. You go through the first level, quite difficult. Like you, I kept falling into the sea at some point, not knowing you meant to progress by going through the sea, but whatever. 
you go around, you find some women, they do the first part of the YMCA dance and go, yay, every time you save them. <laughs> I'm all fine, I'm having fun, I'm shooting, the, the, the sound effects sound right, the music's quite catchy. And then the biggest moment comes towards the end of the level where there's this big beefy guy with a white shirt and suspenders, braces. And my dad goes, oh, that's Jaws, it's him. <laughs> and of course, I didn't really know the character at that point, so I was going, sure dad, fine. But for him, that was actually quite a big moment, bizarrely. Overall, my experiences of the duel from there, we go see my godparents every couple of months or so, and I'd always ask, oh, can I play the duel? Can I play the duel? And they go, yeah, sure. And every time I'd always get a little bit further. On reflection, it's really not a long game, but having not played many video games up to that point, it was quite tricky. Um, I still think the Mega Drive controller is not a particularly good one. Like having three face buttons and at the time with six-year-old thumbs wasn't particularly great. So yeah, I played through it quite a bit. I always got stuck on the wood level because I'd always fall to my death every single time. I think at one point I got to the um, start of the volcano level and right towards the end. And I was so excited about it that I just instantly mucked up straight away, like choked it completely. I always did find it interesting, though, at the end of every level, the bad guys were good enough to put neon signs saying exit, just so you knew where to go. <laughs> it is interesting. I think overall, if reflecting on it today, it's, it's quite basic. It's do this in three different, lo- four different locations, I think, maybe five, a few different locations. but. It was quite good fun. It's score-based at the end, obviously. And I thoroughly enjoyed it. I went back to it again at university, but I didn't know that you could emulate those sorts of games quite so easily as you could. So I picked up with a couple of friends for one uni night, and we just played a night of going through it together. They'd never played it, but I was going, oh, look, you want to go left here? Watch out, there's going to be a submarine drop on you. What, a submarine drop on you? Boom! So <laughs> we did that, and we, we got through it, actually. And the difficulty, I think, was me being experienced with games when I was younger. The controls weren't too bad. The physics were okay. I mean, when he jumps... He dips quite quickly, which isn't too bad. I found out you can duck and hide and cover, which I didn't know you could do the first time I played it. And it just became like a one-night thing. We just did it. We had a game over a few times, a switch, go back again. And it's kind of very bookended. It's quite nice, actually. Um, I've, I've been trying to revisit it again, but I kind of actually want to, you know, actually buy the original, get a Mega Drive, get the console and do it like that. I think my overriding memory of the duel is when my fun time had to stop my godparents because I had to socialise. Often I'll be sitting there listening to their stories of their very important work and I'll just be looking at the box art of it because I don't know why. it was. It's the License to Kill cover in um, the UK is very similar, but just a bit different with green. So it's like I was looking at something new, but I'd already seen it before. It's quite interesting. I used to love looking at all the VHS covers. And of course, the boxes back there were quite bulky. So I remember I just spent loads of time looking at that, looking on the back cover, just wondering where I can next play it. And this, yeah, a nice overall memory, actually. And I think obviously rose-tinted spectacles have rather helped what I feel about the game, certainly. Well, there you have it. A lot of fond memories for 1993's James Bond The Duel on Sega Genesis and the Mega Drive. And with that, we are done with 1993. We are going to skip over 1994 and 1995. Even though we all know something really cool happened in movies in 1995, we definitely got Pierce Brosnan bringing the franchise back with GoldenEye. But no video games were released yet. And I know what you're thinking out there, video game fans, but... We have one more year to get through before we get to that one. So let's take a pit stop here in 1996. 007 is back for another mission, and this time he's going inside your PC. It's the release of the ultimate James Bond, an interactive dossier, and we've got a sneak peek. If you're a James Bond fan, you definitely have something to celebrate. Bond. James Bond. 
That's right, it's the return of your favorite super spy, Agent 007. But instead of watching him do all those death-defying stunts on the silver screen, you can now find them on your computer screen in a brand new CD-ROM. This multimedia retrospective spans over 30 years of the best Bond films. From Dr. No to Thunderball to Goldeneye, you'll find photos, videos, and some classic never-before-seen material. And dive into the disc's digital archives for a look at the world's most beautiful women, the most vile villains, and of course, the coolest high-tech gadgets from 17 James Bond films. There's also a trivia challenge for diehards and behind-the-scenes profiles with all five actors who've played James Bond over the years. So for those looking for some fun and excitement out of their PC, you'll find this is one explosive disc. Due out in early November, the ultimate James Bond will sell for about 40 bucks and will run on a PC. 1996 would give us a debatable video game. While not truly a game, we did see the release of James Bond 007 The Ultimate Dossier. James Bond was back in the public eye thanks to GoldenEye's 1995 release. The Ultimate Dossier was produced by MGM Interactive and Eidos. For those of you paying attention, you'll remember that Domark, which held the license for the James Bond video games, was absorbed into Eidos just three years prior, and here they are already producing new James Bond software. It was available on Windows 3.1 and Windows 95. Like I've alluded to, it's not so much a game, but almost an early Wikipedia of 007. Although there is a trivia game included in the software, it is mostly a reference library in digital form. Much like the previous entry of James Bond The Duel, James Bond 007 The Ultimate Dossier definitely has its fans, and we're going to talk with two of them. Let's start with Becca from the Do You Expect Us to Talk podcast. You have to remember this is many years ago now, so probably like mid-90s. Yeah, so yeah, when I first bought it, I sort of found it. Back in those days, a lot of other British fans and listeners might remember a shop called Woolworths, a very popular department store. I think I was staying at my dad's at the time, so I kind of wandered in. Basically indebted to my dad for my love of Bond. Like He grew up with it in sort of like the 60s, 70s, and sort of like passed it on to myself. So thanks, Dad. Legend. So yeah, well, staying over his one weekend, I uh, went into Woolworths. But oh, what's this new exciting dossier? Just also getting into like computers and that sort of stuff, because he's worked in IT for many, many years. I can't remember how much it was. That's pretty random. I don't know. I think it would be 90s prices, like 15, 20 pounds, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, so I basically harassed my dad. Say, could you buy me this, please? It looks amazing. Yeah, because at the time, I think it was shortly after, I've literally got it in front of me. So yeah, being around like 95, 96. So I'm guessing, I think I was around like 11, 11, 12 at the time. Yes, Tomorrow Never Dies was probably my first Bond movie at the cinema. So I was keen to kind of inhale as much Bond as possible and learn so much about it. Yeah, so yeah, obviously got it home, ripped off all the cellophane, whacked it in there. Um, yeah, it was pretty amazing, actually. <laughs> Sounds like a great gateway drug, but it probably was. Yeah, it's across two CDs. As if you didn't know, it's very cool. Oh, no, three CDs. That's like one, two, three. Across a selection of CDs. <laughs> Can't count. And I think it's quite good that you can kind of go through each era, like with each actor. Unfortunately, I've, the last few years, I've not had a chance to look at it, but I've, there are lots of videos now on YouTube um, showing like the menus and the music and things like that as well. 
and there's lots of sort of special sound effects. So if you click through the menus, there'll be like a sound effect from like Thunderball or Goldeneye or something like that. One of you know one of those films. I think which adds like a really nice touch as well. One of the menus as well kind of tells you like how to how to use it, how to navigate it, and it will be like a clip that from you know Desmond Llewellyn as Q. I think it was specially commissioned, telling you how to use it and grow up 007 and those sort of things. Yes, yes. Well, tell 007 that he'll have to wait. Sorry about that. Bit of old business had to be tidied up. Now then, it's a matter of vital importance that I speak to you. You see, at this very moment, we're in possession of what we at Q Branch consider to be the most amazing gadget we've ever created. CD-ROM 2. Each standard issue. 650 megabyte capacity. Full multimedia capability. They look quite ordinary, don't they? Rest assured, they are not. Now, contained within the sum total of everything MI6 knows about Agent 007, Everything. The women, the villains, the missions, and my gadgets, of course. And knowing 007 as I do, heaven knows what else you'll find. So, it looks like you're on your own. Oh, should you need any assistance on the correct operation of this interactive dossier, simply click one of these buttons. Good luck, then. And please try not to blow it up. Yeah, I think it was really good. I think it was a quiz as well at one point. Um, you could like test your knowledge, uh, which is really cool. And you'd have various rankings according to like, I don't know if you're a 007 or if you're like a villain or a Bond girl, for example, which is pretty cool. Having something like this, especially as a Bond fan, was a really important resource because as we just sort of saying at the top of the show before recording at this kind of time, it was very much in the early days of, of the internet or kind of even before the internet as we know it today, didn't have all that information at our fingertips unless we bought like all the newspapers, magazines, Read encyclopedias basically, or just you know, have parents who grew up in that era of enjoying the other films. So having like this for me, I think was was amazing, and it's kind of like it was the, as you say, the Wikipedia of its day, very much, and all the information up until you know ninety five until Goldeneye, um, was pretty much there. So you know, I just literally absorbed all of that information, just and stored away in my Bond brain. <laughs> when this interview is done, I'm probably going to go and scour YouTube for all the amazing videos and be like, ah, oh, nostalgia, <laughs> amazing ways of nostalgia. I think those, for me, those are sort of the high points, really, that, that stick out. The amazing menus, like music, graphics, just the wealth of information on offer, really. I kind of remember it being quite thorough and being quite high quality as well for the time. I do kind of have a little funny story, well, I think it's funny anyway. I'm going to say like 10 years or thereabouts ago, um, I fell ill quite poorly, so I was off sick at home for quite a while. And I suddenly came across this somewhere on one of the Bond forums. And I tried, you know, got a friend putting me in touch with it, um, somebody who could kind of like partition my old, very old laptop at the time. Um, so you've got like a really new version of the OS and like the old version of the OS to be able to run it. And I was like, oh, yes, please. You know, I'm going to be at home for a little bit. So I need something to fill my time whilst I recover. And I was trying to explain a funny story about how it basically nearly killed my PC. I could have done with QBranch to come along and help. But yeah, basically installing it pretty much bricked my ancient laptop. So I got a new one last summer. But I really enjoyed it for the short time that it worked. I really enjoyed, you know, reliving like the golden days, I guess, that was a you know, sort of very high-tech CD-ROM world of the 90s. Um, it's all the stuff I kind of grew up with, really. So, like, obviously, I was at school and used things like uh, Microsoft and Carter. So that's really ancient. Basically, a CD-ROM version of Wikipedia to, for those 
millennial kids. But yeah, I just, yeah, I really enjoyed playing with that again. It just kind of brought back so much, you know, so many fond memories and chance to relearn some of the, you know, the ones that I thought I'd forgotten. But yeah, I just think, you know, as, as a collector as well, it's a really neat thing to have. It's kind of like a snapshot of how things were at the time. Obviously with the internet and everything at our fingertips, we haven't had anything like it before or since. Thank you for sharing those memories with us, Becca, from the Do You Expect This to Talk podcast. And while Becca was enjoying her James Bond dossier software in England circa 1996, so was another young man in the city of brotherly love. Let's hear about the experience of James Bond 007, the ultimate dossier from our friend of the show, Eric from Philly. I got it. I believe it was 1997. The only reason why I remember is because the dossier itself only went up to GoldenEye. Tomorrow Never Dies hadn't come out yet, or I think it had already it had come out, but it wasn't up to date by then yet. My parents got it for me from Barnes & Noble, actually. Back then, Barnes & Noble, they had, in addition to like their movies, DVDs and stuff, they had a whole software section. It wasn't around very long, but, you know, we went there one afternoon and they had this thing. I never actually had any sort of Bond video game or anything like that because I didn't have an N64 at that time. So I hadn't played uh, GoldenEye on that system yet. But, you know, we got it and it came with a uh, VHS of GoldenEye, which I had not seen yet, even though I had seen other Bond films, but I hadn't seen GoldenEye yet. So it was like a two for one. And I believe it was like. $30 $30 or something like that. And, you know, like in the 90s, VHS would cost like 20 So, you know, recognizing it was a good deal. And my parents knew that I was a young, developing James Bond fan. So they got it. It was two disc. You know how the software was back in those days. You know, one disc would be installed. But this one, actually, the program itself was two disc. So you would just install it. You boot it up. You get this cool little intro movie. of all these Bond moments. Again, going from Dr. Noah to GoldenEye at that time, I was like 11 or 12 when I got it. My Bond knowledge was pretty much just the movies. Whenever I would watch a movie, pretty much my extent would just be whatever the movie was. And I knew if it was Sean Connery, Roger Moore, I actually didn't know of George Lazenby yet. So I didn't even know that he was a Bond yet. So all I just knew was Sean Connery, Roger Moore, Timothy Dalton, and Pierce Brosnan, since GoldenEye was the most recent one out. You know, you load it up, and it was actually where I got all my knowledge of Bond, of the franchise. Not just the movies, but learning all the villains, the side characters, the vehicles, the Bond girls, and then even as far as, you know, all the various crews and the directors of the films and everything. And because of that, that's where I learned kind of how each Bond director kind of has his mark on the franchise, you know. 
when you load it up, there are different sections. There's, you know, for the movie itself, info about Bond, the vehicles, the girls, the villains. So it, it had its own little section. And each section has its own little intro movie. And it's real cool because it's a nice little cut of, you know, different scenes from out the franchise. And it's cut to various music from the franchise as well. When you click on each movie, each movie has a little vignette. It's about a minute or so. And again, they're really, really well edited little scenes. If you actually go on YouTube and just search up the dossier, you'll find a lot of those. I want you to know this is nothing personal. It's purely business. Where's Sanchez? This private vendetta of yours could easily compromise Her Majesty's government. Effective immediately. Your license to kill is revoked. Am I going to win or lose? You keep it, old buddy. I still enjoy watching them since it was a Windows 95 thing, and obviously you can't do nothing like that anymore, even if your computer actually still has a, you know, an optical drive, but you couldn't do anything with it anyway. You get all the details on the Lotus or on the Aston Martin, the BMW from GoldenEye. You get insights onto what was uh, Hugo Drax's plan, what was Goldfinger's plan, and, and so forth. Whatever history that the movies presented at the time, you would get kind of the fictional history of, you know, of that thing. The fictional history of Pussy Galore or Honey Rider or so on. It was just a really cool piece of software that I didn't know it actually existed. It wasn't something I ever saw advertised. It was just my parents knew I was a young fan Oh, another thing that was cool about it, as you went on and you read more and more of the info, you know, that's there, they actually had a little trivia game and it had different difficulty levels. So like the more obscure the information, you know, the harder the question would be. They treated it almost like Bond diffusing the bomb at the end of Goldfinger and things like that. So it was just really cool. And like I said, it really kind of pushed my interest in the franchise forward because if I didn't get that, I never heard of on Her Majesty's Secret Service. I just always thought it went from Sean Connery and then it went to Roger Moore. I didn't know there was George Lazenby was only there for one. Yeah, it's something that I kind of wish that, you know, with all the, you know, between cloud gaming and stuff like that, it's one of the things I wish someone could kind of remaster or whatever or redo it again and update it with, you know, the rest of Pierce Brosnan's run. Because like I said, it, it only goes up to GoldenEye. But it'd be cool if it adds the rest of his films and all of Daniel Craig's films. But yeah, that was the gist of it. It was just a really kind of, I guess, I, I don't know. Yeah, I guess unique. I don't think I ever really came across any other sort of software. I mean, nowadays you have wiki pages for your favorite things. You would just go online, go to a Bond wiki page or something like that. But yeah, it was just a really cool piece of software that really like the watershed moment for me that where it's like, okay, I'm now a fan of this franchise. 
I don't know about you guys out there in listener land, but it does my heart good to hear Eric from Philly finding his way to our beloved franchise through the James Bond 007 Ultimate Dossier. And that, ladies and gentlemen, will bring us to the end of 1996 and take us to 1997. can only mean one thing. Introducing GoldenEye 007. The first Bond adventure. Where you direct the action. Do you know how to use one of these? Shots by shots by shots. Load a rumble pack and see how it feels when 007 meets Nintendo 64. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, the time has come for us to discuss GoldenEye 64 from 1997 on the Nintendo 64. The game was made by a company called Rare. It was exclusive to the Nintendo 64. It is a first-person shooter style game, and as you probably already know if you're listening to this podcast, it was hugely, hugely successful. It sold over 8 million copies. Strangely enough, it was originally planned for the Super Nintendo. They were working on it all the way back in 94, 95 when GoldenEye's movie production was going full speed. But I think the game company made the right decision to take an extra couple of years and make a really good game. Some say one of the most popular games of all time. And the numbers are there to back that up. This game, GoldenEye 007 for the Nintendo 64, was insanely popular due to the multiplayer mode. Now, many people enjoy playing the straight campaign mode, but the multiplayer, four ports on the N64, a split screen, four screen divided up, just made for some awesome multiplayer. The controls are really great for the game. The game got so popular that it brought non-Bond fans who just enjoyed video games to the Bond franchise. The groundswell that GoldenEye the movie brought back for the franchise would get an additional bump from all these new gamers who are now discovering GoldenEye, the film, and the James Bond franchise overall in 1997 with the release of this amazing game. I could go on and on about it. I've given you the basics. As you could probably guess, we got a lot of send-ins to talk about this game on this podcast documentary. And I had the hardest time, but I narrowed it down to three. One of the send-ins you're going to hear a lot of. His name is Frank McNeely. He is at GoldenEye97 on Twitter. That should kind of tell you something right now. Frank is probably the biggest GoldenEye on Nintendo 64 fan I've ever encountered. And he was more than generous with his time to discuss all the ins and outs of GoldenEye. He knows more about GoldenEye than you might have ever even considered. So without further ado, let me get to the first of multiple check-ins we're going to do with Frank McNeely at GoldenEye97. Essentially, I think I was eight years old at my best friend's house and his older brother and his friend were playing GoldenEye64 multiplayer and I think they were playing as like Ormoth and Baron Samity and facilities with throwing knives and one of them was like, in the shaft above the toilet and i was just like this looks amazing i gotta check this out 
GoldenEye, the movie, was my first James Bond movie. And I mean, I saw the movie when I was way too young. I was, I think, six or seven years old. And immediately it was like, Pierce Brosnan is the coolest guy ever. I want to be this guy. Like as a kid, I wanted to be this guy. And then all of a sudden, I realized that GoldenEye 64 was based on the movie. And in the single player campaign, you had to play as Pierce Brosnan. And I'm mind blown. So essentially, I mean, I guess for those James Bond fans out there, maybe not those that necessarily had GoldenEye as their first Bond movie they ever saw. Imagine whichever Bond movie and Bond you saw first. And then you immediately, or I guess a few years later, got a video game where you could play that character. And add on to the fact that GoldenEye was so well-designed, even by, at the time, an inexperienced team of video game designers, like in how perfect it was. I mean, it was, again, mind-blowing. I don't think any video game will ever have the same impact, just, again, with that combination of seeing GoldenEye and then then getting the game and getting to play as that character that you were so wowed by. Something that has held up well with GoldenEye. So GoldenEye, it's a pretty basic first-person shooter, something that I really like. This has amused me ever since I was a kid. Like, you can purposefully fail objectives and levels and keep going. I feel like with most first-person shooters, if you fail something, then it stops and you have to start over. But with GoldenEye, you can go through facilities, shoot all the scientists, and still finish the level, I mean, you'll fail. But, I mean, you can still, like, do what you want. I think everyone remembers using the um, cheats in GoldenEye 64 and how much fun that was. Something that was a favorite of mine was having slow motion animation on and having all guns, specifically rocket launchers, and just shooting guys and watching them flying really slow through the air. Again, just, like, purposefully failing objectives. I just got a kick out of that. It's such a basic thing because I feel like if GoldenEye was a bit more advanced, we wouldn't have gotten that. Like it would have been your typical, you fail this objective, now you start over. But now I feel like that holds up well because of how unique that specific aspect is. And then the multiplayer feature was actually an afterthought. Like it was developed in literally, I think, six weeks before the game was released. So although it was multiplayer is very basic, I mean, it's really all we needed. I feel like. Perfect Arc, which is the game that followed GoldenEye in terms of the game's developers, that's what they chose to do next. And Perfect Arc for the Nintendo 64 has a very advanced multiplayer feature. Like There are combat missions, there are owlbots, there's a lot of thought and time went into that multiplayer. But I kind of appreciate that GoldenEye 64 is very basic. Like It's essentially, all it is is split screen, there's some different scenarios, there's different characters from some of the Bond movies. And I feel like that's really all you needed. And I feel like because it was so simple and basic in terms of level design weapons, characters, like that's how that became like the well-known feature that initially was the word of mouth that the game had because Overnight was not an immediate success. It was largely word of mouth, largely from the multiplayer, which was revolutionary for the time. And so the game was released in 1997. August 25th, 1997, which Sean Connery's birthday. So, I mean, the 25th of August, good day. Game of the year in 1998, game of the year in 1999. Basically, once the word got out, like, people couldn't get enough of it. So, those two things specifically are what hold up strong for me today. I got GoldenEye 64 when I was a kid, and I had younger brothers. So, my parents 
they let me get GoldenEye. I had no idea that you could shoot so many guys that there'd be blood. And so my parents were like, eh, this isn't going to work. So essentially I was forced to trade it in for another game at the time. But then a couple of years pass and they did let me play The World Is Not Enough for the Nintendo 64, which not a bad game. It was developed by EA, which I believe was their second title after Tomorrow Never Dies for the PlayStation 1. It was a decent game, and my parents allowed me to play it with the stipulation that my brothers weren't allowed to play or watch, because again, younger brothers. And I was only, I think, 10 at the time, and it was, you know, a T game, which is essentially PG-13 for games. So I played that, and then I believe when I was in, I think I was in eighth grade, so I was 14 years old. My brothers were all over the age of 10 at the time, so at that point, I was finally allowed to get GoldenEye 64 again. Since then, you know, it's I've never stopped playing it. It's never faded for me. I mean, I think GoldenEye was the one game that was at the top for the longest time. And then in the early 2000s, the same friend where I discovered GoldenEye 64, I discovered Grand Theft Auto 3 and Vice City. And so then at that point, Grand Theft Auto was another franchise that kind of elevated my stance on video games. And just with the amount of things you, you can do in that, in that realm, I mean, that kind of opened that even farther. However... Again, GoldenEye was always still there. Like I, as like a way to relieve stress from video games, like GoldenEye was always the game, along with Grand Theft Auto, that kind of take my mind off things. You know, do something in a game that you wouldn't be able to do, you know, in real life, obviously. Man, I do love those origin stories, and Frank definitely had his love for Nintendo 64's GoldenEye 007. But let's check in with someone else's origin story. Let's hear from friend of the show, Ezra Gallo. My GoldenEye experience begins at the family Thanksgiving of my then-girlfriend when I was in college. We had gone to Thanksgiving, and all the kids that were there were sitting around in the living room playing GoldenEye all day. And I sat down. It was the first time I'd ever seen this game. I had a Nintendo 64, but I think at the time I was just playing through Super Mario 64. I saw this game, started playing, and I got smoked. It was ugly. Every time I played, these kids knew where exactly everything was. They knew exactly where the golden gun was on every board. If we were playing with that, they knew where rocket launchers were. And if we weren't playing with those, they knew exactly where to get the best guns of every kind. So I left that family Thanksgiving knowing that come Christmas, the same thing was going to be going on. And I went to Walmart the next day. Yes, Black Friday, which wasn't quite as big a deal back then, but still grabbed a copy of this game. I did not really pay attention to any of the art, even though I've seen it tons of times since then. I didn't pay attention to the packaging, anything about that. I paid full price at Walmart, went home, and started practicing this game with the only goal beating a bunch of children at a family Christmas in a month. So I did that, went to that Christmas, and then just smoked a whole bunch of kids and it was very fulfilling. It was really all I, I wanted from the game. But then I, of course, played it tons of times. I know I played it with the host of this podcast many times in college. 
even today, if I was to see somebody playing Goldeneye, I would jump in and want to play it because it's maybe the most fun of all the shooting games I've ever played. And I've played tons of multiplayer shooting games and everything, but something about the Goldeneye, something about the story and just the controllers, I don't think anything has ever quite managed to be the same. There are controllers that are much smoother now. There are controllers that are more precise, but the system on GoldenEye just worked perfectly for what it was. I don't think there's anything more noble than mastering a game to beat children. So good for you, Ezra Gallo. And he's not wrong about those controls. We mentioned them before. Big part of the success of the game. Let's squeeze in one more person's experience with GoldenEye. Before we dig a little deeper, as promised, we will get back to Frank McNeely and dig a little deeper into GoldenEye. But let's get one more experience. Let's hear from our old friend Phil from Manchester. GoldenEye on the N64 is the greatest game ever. I mean, there's no denying that is a fantastic game. Yeah, it's one of those that you could play it with full knowledge of the movie and you, you could really get into the character of it, or you could not have any knowledge of it and it was still just awesome. As I remember trying every different way around playing it, either let's do a speed run and get through it as quick as possible, or, okay, I'm going to hunt down and kill every single last one of the baddies. The best level to do that on was the caves levels towards the end where it was unlimited baddies. So I'd get like one of the machine guns. He had some automatic doors, hide behind them and just sit there for like half hour, picking off bad guy after bad guy that came <laughs> forwards. <laughs> this is great fun. This is great. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I had to squeeze in that last bit of interview with Phil from Manchester because it just illustrates how good GoldenEye on the N64 is because there's just so many little things you can do with it that makes it so replayable. What an incredible game. Now, there's a whole other world built around GoldenEye 64. A whole other world of James Bond video games. Unofficial, shrouded in mystery. It is the modding community. People who make games based off of game engines like the game engine from GoldenEye 64, but then they make their own levels and their own missions. And if I told you that you could play Goldfinger 64, would you believe me? Well, if you're not in the modding community, you might not know that's a thing, but it is, amongst other things. So let's get back to Frank McNeely, who knows quite a bit about the James Bond GoldenEye Nintendo 64 modding community. In 2011, it was announced that a group of modders, and so modders are basically a group of people that essentially work to make an alternate version of a game. So essentially, this is now where I talk about the GoldenEye modding community. And not just with GoldenEye 64, but I think with most Nintendo 64 games, because they're so old, they're easy to adapt with the right tools and with the right talents to like kind of change things. So. Something that was announced in 2011 was a group of modders were working to recreate 
GoldenEye 64 into Goldfinger 64. And at the time, I'm like, huh, I wonder how they're going to do that. That sounds like a big project. It's going to take forever. And I'm just like, I wish I had the talents to help out with this. So I heard about it and then I forgot about it. And then literally six years later in 2017, I heard that they did it. They completed the game. And so then I found like a video on YouTube and I'm like, holy crap, like this is like a playable game. And there's a way to play it on a Nintendo 64, which I was just like, what? Sign me up. Because backtracking for a second, I was in the UK for a year in the early 2010s. And I was like a whole year where I didn't have a Nintendo 64, which I, kind of sounds dumb, but I essentially downloaded an emulator to play GoldenEye and other N64 games on my laptop without a controller. So it's, it's amazing how like I got really good playing GoldenEye 64 with a keyboard. I took a lot of practice, but I mean... After that experience, you know, only having the laptop for a year, I was like, yeah, it always has to be the console for me. I just, emulators are just not my thing. So essentially when I, going back to Goldfinger 64, I saw the video and I'm just like, I have to play this game. I know that it can probably run on an emulator, but I'm like, if I can figure out how to play this on the Nintendo 64, I'm going to do it. So I, I did some research and there's a thing out there called an EverDrive 64. If you search in Amazon, it'll come up and it's, it looks like it's from a fishy maker, but I mean, it's spelled, I think, K-R-I-K-double-Z. So, I mean, at first you think, well, that kind of sounds fishy, but then I looked more into it and it was totally legitimate. So basically what it is, it looks like a Nintendo 64 cartridge, but the difference is, is in the top of it, there's a little slot for a SD card, which is essentially a card that goes in the cameras. And so the key is, is you have to have Nintendo 64 ROMs in order to be able to play them on the EverDrive or to download the mod patches that modders create. And so the EverDrive 64 is totally legal. It doesn't break any rules from Nintendo, but I mean, accessing ROMs is a different story. So I mean, well, actually, I guess Nintendo has started to lock up their access to ROMs because they were like, that's our product, you know, blah, blah, which is totally legitimate. So essentially, as long as you have access to Nintendo ROM files, you can essentially download them onto that SD card and play them through that cartridge on a Nintendo 64. So that costs about $200 a couple of years ago. I looked today on Amazon and it's around that same price still on Amazon, which for someone like me, again, whose mind was blown by GoldenEye 64 and just the Nintendo 64 in general. So once I got the EverDrive, I was like, okay, now I need to figure out how to download a ROM patch. So now I had to figure out how do I actually play Goldfinger 64 using this equipment? So there's a website called the N64 Vault, and it's n64vault.com. This is where all of the GoldenEye mods live. It's not just GoldenEye. Like, there are some mods for Super Smash Brothers 64, Banjo-Kazooie, other games too, which are also cool to play. There are different mods that different various modders have made over the years. Some are full campaigns, so Goldfinger 64 is there. Someone recently did Tomorrow Never Die 64. I mean, it's only 10 missions, but it was a lot of fun playing. More often than not, a modder will make a single level. So they'll replace one of the levels in GoldenEye 64 and do their own thing. So they'll create a new world. They'll have different objectives. The whole works, which even getting a new level to play is pretty awesome. But getting a full campaign, though, is a lot of work for modders. But I mean, it's pretty awesome when it happens and it works. So needless to say, I figured out how to play Goldfinger 64 on the EverDrive. And I mean, it was like reliving that experience with 
first playing GoldenEye 64. I mean, I never knew I wanted to play as Nintendo 64 Sean Connery, but when the opportunity came, I'm just like, yeah, this is great. There's even a mission in Goldfinger 64 where you're driving the DB5 in Switzerland, and basically they took the tank controls and put it in the DB5. So essentially, there's no like tank gun, but essentially you can you just like run over the guys or shoot them in the level, which I, I just I couldn't get enough of. I was laughing so hard. So Goldfinger 64 ultimately helped me discover all these mods that were out there. I think for the last couple of years, there's actually, there's a group of modders now working on the Spy Who Loved Me 64, which if you go on YouTube, there are some videos that show footage of gameplay and it looks pretty legitimate. Like I I think out of all the Roger Moore Bond films, that's the one I think that that would be pretty rich play other than Moonraker, which of course Moonraker has been mined the heck out of for other Bond video games already. And then also one of the guys who was working on the Spy Who Loved Me 64 created a documentary on what's happened so far. And at the very end, he mentioned that another group of modders is now working on the Living Daylight 64. And I'm just like, yeah! But, I mean, that's literally in the very early stages of development. So, I mean, it'll probably be several years before Living Daylight 64 is a thing. I think they're trying to get Spy Love Me 64 out sometime next year. So having those things on the horizon is pretty exciting. That's really all I have to mention about the GoldenEye mods. Again, in 64vault.com, there's a lot of levels, a lot of several campaigns. Not just Tomorrow Never Dies, Goldfinger, but just several like new campaigns. Like For example, I think there are two campaigns where you're playing as army men, like from the army men video games. So there's several different things to check out for people that kind of want to have access to that kind of stuff because, you know, I was, I'm a super fan of my 64. Super fan indeed. Now, some of you may or may not have known that there was a group of programmers working on a GoldenEye re-release for its 25th anniversary, which would have been in 2022. They put several years of work into remastering the classic GoldenEye 64 for modern computers, and the project was going pretty well until they received a cease and desist letter from Eon Productions. And I'll pass it back to Frank to give a more detailed version of what happened with the GoldenEye 25 project. I guess it was about a month or two ago, I mean, Eon essentially sent a cease and desist letter to the two guys who were working on the game, which I think what was most disappointing about that was they had been working on it, I think, since 2017. So two to three years of work, or some of their work was immediately gone, which was so disappointing. But I also feel like this is also a good thing because now they've pivoted. They're making an entirely new spy game, which I feel like is even better, to be honest. Um, It's called Spies Don't Die. And again, still two guys working on it. And occasionally one of them will like share the music that he's composing for the game, like on Twitter. And gosh, it sounds so cool. Like he's still, he's still trying to use that Eric Serra GoldenEye sound to like compose the, the sound and score of the video games, which I gets me really excited. And then I think about a week ago, they shared a photo or I guess a, a still of a Japanese level, which immediately made me think of that level from Nightfire where Bond is in Japan and he's in that Japanese house. Like I was just like, 
everything I see looks so good. And I just keep thinking it would have been nice to have an updated GoldenEye 64, but I feel like now we're going to get something something new that's in that same style that I feel like I've been wanting to see. This is why I got my mind blown again when Goldfinger 64 came out is because I'm such a fan of that, of what they did with GoldenEye 64. And I feel like it's only been replicated a couple of times over the last, you know, since the game originally came out. And I feel like because it's so rare to have, I guess, that style of game replicated, it's just when it happens, it's really great. So I feel like Spies Don't Die is going to do that. And I think they plan to release it in... I think in time still for GoldenEye 64's 25th anniversary, but it just won't be GoldenEye 25. So in two years, I mean, if they can, you know, do what they need to do. They didn't lose all their work with the cease and desist letter coming from Eon, but I'm hoping that they still get it out in two or three years and, you know, we can kind of all get our minds blown again by something that's at that same level that GoldenEye 64 has. Heard it right from our friend Frank McNeely. Spies don't die. The spiritual successor to the GoldenEye 25 project. Be on the lookout for it in 2022. You didn't think I'd leave without letting Frank get in just one more piece of GoldenEye information now, did you? GoldenEye on the N64 ended up being such a phenomenon that an independent film comedy mockumentary about a GoldenEye 64 video game championship was actually made. And I'll let Frank tell you a little bit about it before we move on. Something else that I'll mention is a couple years ago, a This Is Spinal Tap documentary style documentary came out about GoldenEye 64 called Going for GoldenEye, and it was on Amazon Prime. And so basically the movie was around like a fake Nintendo 64 tournament, and it kind of just was like, again, it was like a This Is Spinal Tap style. It was totally a spoof, but it was so funny because, again, if you're even a, I feel like a passive fan of the game, like it's it was kind of goofy just in how it was set up. And apparently there's a sequel in the works, although who knows when if and when you get that, but I did watch that and that was pretty funny. And that, ladies and gentlemen, will bring us to the end of 1997 and possibly the most significant game in the James Bond video game catalog. GoldenEye 007 on the N64. A true video game great and a classic that will endure for years and years in both James Bond lore and video game lore. And with that, it is time to close out 1997. And now we will step into 1997 coming to a close, you might think that the next game in the video game pantheon of James Bond would be Tomorrow Never Dies. But in 1998, a Nintendo Game Boy game by a company called Sapphire was released, and it kind of went under the radar. It is a top-down adventure game very similar to your handheld Legend of Zelda adventure games. It's a very much seek-and-find, go-through-a-storyline adventure that is actually quite fun and quite entertaining. Many consider James Bond 007 on the Nintendo Game Boy 
to be the most overlooked of all the James Bond video games. I can tell you I've personally played it and truly enjoyed it. It is a fun little adventure that got totally overpowered by GoldenEye on the N64 coming out just the year before it. Plus, the Game Boy itself was winding down. The Game Boy Color was already dominating the market, and the upcoming Game Boy Advance was well on its way. So the classic black and white, simple pixel art of James Bond 007 on the Game Boy may have been overlooked due to its simplistic nature, but I'm going to tell you, it was a pretty good game. You know who agrees with me? Louise from Ivague in Colombia. He took some time to talk to us about his James Bond 007 on Game Boy adventure. game, James Bond 007, is pretty important to me because it was one of the first experiences I had with the character. Obviously, everybody knows about GoldenEye, the 1995 movie adapted into a game two years later. Not many people had a Nintendo 64 around me, but some friends had this Game Boy thing. I remember one classmate got one for Christmas, and he got two games, DuckTales and James Bond 007. He didn't like actually that game and he knew I was a, a fan of the character. So he just lent me for a weekend. It was the first time I had contact with this title. I, I fell in love immediately with the game because it was different. Obviously, I wasn't expecting a first person shooter <laughs> on the Game Boy, but it was kind of a Zelda game. And it was really nice because I said, wow. Let's see what happens with James Bond in this kind of setting. Because being like Link <laughs> looking for a princess, I don't know. Let's see what happens. And it was a really nice experience. It was really, really good. For the graphics that we could see in the DMG Game Boy, it was really good. I really like it. The speech bubbles they had were very clear. And at the time, I wasn't very fluent speaking English or learning English. I was good, but not as good as I am now. I think I am good, <laughs> but it helped me a lot because there were tons of new vocabulary. So for a guy living in Colombia, we having this kind of access to this material, it was really nice. Uh, unfortunately, I couldn't finish the game the first time I had it because it was only for a weekend. So I had to return to my friend. Obviously, I was asking him later to allow me to have a, a second chance to play the game, but he traded. He traded not only the game, but the system for a watch. A horrible watch. <laughs> so if he would have <laughs> told me, I would have, I don't know, gave him uh, more money or something in exchange because I really liked the game. So there were many years in which I couldn't have access to this game, but I ended up playing it again so many years later when I started my, I think it was my first year at college. The first time I got the game or I had the opportunity to play the game was three years before finishing high school. On my first or second year at college, got an emulator, obviously, and I got the ROM. But it wasn't the real experience. It wasn't the same. It, was, it didn't have the same magic. It was good, obviously. I finished the game on an emulator. It was uh, a good thing to change colors and things like that. But that was my first experience. Obviously, with the time passing and having more opportunities to get this kind of stuff on internet trading, I... Managed to get a copy of the game recently. Actually, it was uh, like in February. So the first time I played this game, well, I was 14, 15 years old, but I got my own copy at 37. <laughs> so 
it was not very expensive. I got it on Valentine's Day, not relationship. Actually, it was on my own. $35.95 British pounds on eBay. I was really glad because it came with the box. It came with the manuals. And there is actually a poster, Nintendo 64 poster, that showcases the games. Obviously, there is a golden eye section. And on the other side, there is the Game Boy printer, the Game Boy camera, and a selection of games like Link's Awakening, that is a game that I really loved, and James Bond 007. And it's in really good conditions. The box not so much, but the manuals and the inserts are really, really good. And there is a Nintendo registration card, but that is actually a survey with very weird questions made by a Nintendo UK distributor, I think, because they say, do you need financial assistance or do you have a bank account? It's really, really weird. Are you planning to move home in the next 12 months? Do you consider your current personal pension arrangements to be adequate? Things like what? I never imagined seeing these kind of questions in a James Bond-related stuff. Well, it's weird. And I suppose a kid getting this back in 1998 would be really weird because I wouldn't know what to answer if I got this for Christmas when I was a kid. No, but I didn't. Talking about the game, there are some things that stand out. First, the intuitive controls. I didn't have the manual back then when I first played the game, but I knew from the first screen when I think it's M who's telling you what are you doing, why are you in China, and what are you supposed to do? Press A for this, B for this, move with the arrows and walk around. If you haven't played even a Zelda game before, Actually, I think this game was easier to play than the original Zelda from, from the Nintendo Entertainment System. Because actually, the original Zelda game just throws you in the middle of an action and you got to get swords and all those things. No, this one tells you why are you there, what are you supposed to do. You can talk to the villagers. It was really, really good. I really like that. Now, many years later, I realized that it has a really good design and offers a really good user experience since you start the game. It's not difficult at all. Another thing that I remember a lot, there is a part in the game, I think it's a market in Marrakesh, and there is a guy asking you for a small red fish. As you know, in the game, you go and talk to different people, and normally these people tell you things that they need in order for you to advance the story. So there was a guy asking for a small red fish, and I look for that small red fish many hours. I remember getting to this part when I played the game that original weekend. And I remember getting to the same part years later. And I look for that small red fish all in the market. And I say, well, there is no small red fish. Let's see what happens. And I continue moving the story. And at the end, I realized I didn't need that small red fish. As I wasn't very fluent in English and I didn't know a lot about English expressions. Well, the small red fish is another name for a red herring. So it's just something to distract you. Actually, I realized that many years later on the forums, <laughs> one day I woke up with that memory and I say, I am going to look for a small red fish on the internet. Maybe there is something that I missed I don't remember exactly which website was it, but there was a thread on this and they say, well, it's just a red herring. So it's, not, <laughs> it's something to distract you. Okay. I learned that expression from that day on and I discovered that it's an actually a plot device 
in many stories, some kind of deception in order to distract you from the main target and get an element of surprise later. Yeah. So it was frustrating, but it was so clever that I really appreciate that detail from the game developers now. Also, there is another thing. I don't know if I should warn about spoilers <laughs> for a 1998 game, but I like to check for every corner in these kind of games, like the Zelda games, and this one is top-down view. And on the second level, when you get to London, you have to talk to Q. And you go to talk to Q, and I touch everything in the lab, and there was a kind of uh, explosive or flying sofa, and it opens a hole on, on a wall. And you enter, and you get something that is called marble, M-A-R-B-L-E. And you say, well, let's keep this thing. I don't know what's going to happen, but let's keep this thing. And it happens that if you carry that with you at the end, there is a secret ending for the game. So the first time I finished the game, I had this marble thing and I got the secret ending on my first try. So it was really good. I didn't know. Actually, I didn't know I had a secret ending. When I started looking for the game, I said, oh, if you got the marble thing at the end, you're treated to a um, closing screen when there is Bond and Song Hemei, the Bond girl of this game. Actually, it's the first villain that you encounter in the first level of the game. She becomes the leading lady of the story later. There is a rendition of A View to a Kill theme song at the end. And I don't know, this is another thing. I've always seen this bond, the bond of this game, as Roger Moore, not Pierce Brosnan. It was Brosnan time when it was released, 1998, yes. So uh, Brosnan was just fresh off his second outing, Tomorrow Never Dies. But I never associated Brosnan with this game. I always seen this bond as Moore, mainly because there are some appearances from uh, Joe's. There is also Odd Job in one part, but I never seen Brosnan in this game. But in general, this game... It's wonderful. I would really like to see a remake of this game, like what happened with Link's Awakening. Obviously, it's not going to happen, but it would be really nice to have this kind of different James Bond adventure. Probably wouldn't be too commercial because gamers who have been playing James Bond games are always looking for the next GoldenEye. And this was actually a really different game. It's a different game. It's really good. I really like it. It's not too long. So it's really good. You don't have to spend a lot of time. There are some parts in which you can play, I think it's Baccarat in this game. Other games have had this kind of mini game. But in general, I, I really love the game. I think the developers made a really good job. They captured the essence of the character of lore in general. Not only with the old characters, I think that, for instance, Song Mei, the Bond girl, it's a really good character. It's a villain in the first part of the game, and then it's an ally. So obviously for a kid in 1998, <laughs> it wouldn't be so deep. But now I have played this again, and I say, wow, this is darker than I thought. Even if the sprites are cute, <laughs> it's really cute to see Bond blocking the ninjas with his bare hands. But it has some undertones that should be really nice to revisit. It's interesting. I really, really like the game. My experience is really positive. And if you are a Bond fan, you should try this game at least once. 
just the first 10 minutes and you will find that this is a really good thing. Obviously, it's kind of silly, but hey, most of the movies are and we enjoy them. <laughs> so the game is, is also kind of silly. So if you, if you like silly Bond, like Moore, <laughs> you would like this game. If you like dark and gritty Bond, like crazy movies, you should also play this game because it has everything for everyone. So I would really recommend this game a lot. Well, this game gave me wonderful memories from when I was a teenager. Also, those were really sad times because I had some personal things in my family. My granddad was not so well, and he was a James Bond fan too. He loved Sean Connery, the character. Actually, this Bond collecting thing is a way of keeping his memory alive. So this game was part of those days even if it was only for a weekend, meant a lot to me. When I had the opportunity to play the game later, and now that I have the opportunity to have the physical copy of the game, which is working in perfect working condition because it saves files, it saves all the progress you made in the game. It's really good. It's like having a piece of your teenage years in your hands. And every time I play the game, it brings back those memories, memories of good days. <laughs> Yes, it's very emotional for me. Man, I love to hear the passion from people like Louise from Eva Gay in Colombia, who so very clearly treasures this game and the connections that these video games make to our Bond family worldwide is just incredible. That will bring us to the end of 1998. Next up, 1999. Ever wonder what it's like to be 007? Now you know. Be Bond on PlayStation Game Console. That was the audio for the 1999 commercial for EA's Tomorrow Never Dies, made exclusively for the PlayStation 1. Note, I did say that the publisher was Electronic Arts, or EA. This would begin a long-held licensing relationship between the James Bond franchise and Electronic Arts. There are going to be several games to come that are published by EA. As I mentioned, this one's a PlayStation 1 exclusive, and they broke from the very successful mode of the Nintendo 64 GoldenEye release, and they went with a third-person action-adventure style game. It was pretty daunting to have to release the next game after the ultra-popular GoldenEye. Now, as listeners of this documentary know, there was the James Bond 007 Game Boy Adventure released in 1998 between here and there, but this was a bigger more noticeable console release with a new publisher. Most people find that Tomorrow Never Dies is actually a pretty good game, but it's easy to get overlooked because of the success of GoldenEye and frankly nothing that's coming up on our list of games will ever truly measure up to the power that was GoldenEye, but Tomorrow Never Dies, not a bad game. We have two interviews to discuss it. We will start with Nicholas Susink from Argentina and author of the book World of GoldenEye, available on Amazon.com. Tomorrow Never Dies. I rented it 
I never owned any of these one games because the only console system I had was a family game, which is a bootleg version of NES available in Argentina. And then when I got into the Bond phenomenon with uh, GoldenEye for Nintendo 64 and then the movie, my dad rented the Nintendo 64 video game. And then when Tomorrow Dice came out, we started renting the PlayStation and Tomorrow Dice, which it was out in 1999, but by Argentina, the right early 2000, I think. Something really interesting to tell you is that I never seen an original copy of the game over here. It's a very common tradition in Argentina when games came out in CDs and DVDs to get bootleg versions. So even in an official video store, they rented the movies, VHS, the video games you could rent for 20 pesos, which is back then it was like $20. Now it's a lot more. Well, so I rented the PlayStation with the game. And, well, I think I recall enjoying it because it had the, you know, the skin missions, then you could drive the BMW. I think on the downside, well, it wasn't as, as interesting as GoldenEye for Nintendo 64, obviously, because it, you know, I felt it lacked a bit uh, those dynamics, you know, the free ambience that GoldenEye for Nintendo 64 had that you could explore the environment. Tomorrow Never Dies is a little bit linear in that aspect, but I mean, in a, from a nostalgic part, I would say I, I love it. Even today, I've replayed it a little bit, and the game has its grace, its touch, so, you know, that's one of the things I have to say. So, something interesting, uh, the game, of course, since it was since we rented it, we didn't take the cover, but the packaging, I, I remember the bootleg version didn't have the artwork with Bond and the car and the plane. It was a, an artwork based on the uh, magazine ad, which was in black and white. It was really strange to see that. But, well, I, I was browsing through the catalog to rent the PlayStation with the game, and I saw Toronto Dice and... I didn't care back then if it was original or a copy because, you know, I didn't have internet or that many, many information on new games. And I knew it, uh, we had the Nintendo 64 video game and then the next game was going to be Runner Dice for PlayStation. And well, I saw it and I told my dad, well, let's rent it. I, I want to play it, the second one game, but I really like the packaging and unfortunately, I didn't find anywhere where I could buy, you know, the original CD. Buying it from eBay with the exchange, it's kind of complicated over here because of the import taxes and all of that. But one day, I have the desire to get the, the original, you know. It, I love the one video games, and even if I don't have a PlayStation 2 or PlayStation, I just have the, the Nintendo 64 and the... The Golden Eye, which I bought many years later, but I kind of want to have this the original video game just to exhibit because it's a part of my childhood. Either is the games are were original or not or bootleg, but they're still a part of my childhood. I I love replaying. What I makes me laugh very much is sometimes that the actors they sound a little bit overacted. <laughs> I mean. 
No, not intentionally overacted, but you know it's a video game, so they are supposed to say things like, Oh, Mr. Bond, and all this stuff that I found it very funny. And whenever I replay the, you know, walkthrough videos in YouTube, I, I laugh a lot, really. I wonder what it would feel like if I ever saw you again. Ah! Now I know. That's for walking out on me. Well, I feel much better. Now what brings you here? Paris, someone in your husband's organization was involved in the sinking of the Devonshire and the murder of those British sailors. You don't know anything about that, do you? Elliot's company is involved in many things, James. I don't keep track of them all. Look, I'm sorry what happened between us, but I need your help. <sighs> well, I know there's a restricted lab. Ah, Mr. Bond. Won't you allow me to give you a tour of the facilities? <laughs> and well another cool thing this game had besides the skiing missions was the pressing engagement level which is level four i think where well it's on carver's printing press that you could shoot down all the boons and they fall to the printing press so that was really a really nice touch uh, Considering the limitations of the game, of course, but that's one thing I, I really, really enjoy. And I want to thank Nicholas for taking the time to let us know his thoughts on the Tomorrow Never Dies video game for the PlayStation 1. Don't forget to check out his book, World of Goldeneye, available on Amazon.com. And with that, let's move from Argentina back to England and get the Tomorrow Never Dies PlayStation 1 thoughts from Chris, who is Instagram's British Bond addict. Bond. James Bond. Yeah, after having such great times with the duel when I was younger and my parents seeing how well me and my brother reacted to games consoles, Christmas of 1998, I want to say, they took the leap and bought us a PlayStation 1 and this was our first proper console. And my immediate thing was, is there a Bond game for this? Is there a Bond game? Because I played Goldeneye on my friend's N64 and had a whale of a time. Again, of an age where couldn't fully grasp quite how complex video games were, just going around different locations with a controller was quite fun in itself. But yeah, the first couple of games we got one James Bond there quite close like a Tomb Raider game which is almost James Bond in a way until we went to Blockbuster <laughs> rest in peace and we were looking through and my dad always said right once a month you get to rent a game and if you really like it we can have it later and I picked up like Spyro all this sort of stuff and then one day I spotted James Bond Pierce Brosnan I knew because he looked just like he did on the VHS cover and his, it was him and it's dad it's James Bond it's here it's all right just the dad and he went, okay, okay, cool, calm down, let's get it. So I picked it up straight away, went up to the cashier, I was like, this please, this please. My brother was still picking some F1 game, I was going, no, there's more important things to be had here. And then we went back, rushed home, and I was storming, like, holding my dad's hand, like, come on, let me go, let me go. And he's like, don't you want to eat lunch? And I was like, no, I just want to play the game. And he's like, no, have some lunch. And I was like, I don't want to eat my lunch. <laughs> I don't want tiramisu on toast, I just want to play the game. Let me play the game. So I sat down, opened up, and I remember the very first time playing it because it's got this huge kind of explosion at the start. This is Black Ops Entertainment and the music by Tommy Tallarico.
Tommy Tellerico Studios. And of course, for like, I think what must have been about seven at this point, that is just overdrive for me. That's it. Like, I'm sold. I'm in. That's it. Then it's got a nice little montage at the beginning, and it's like clips from the film and clips from the gameplay. And I'm going, wow, you can't tell the difference. <laughs> and then the game starts, and that's it. You've got a cool picture of Piers Brosnan with a gun. Start game, 007, agent, whatever. I'm, just, I'm spamming A just so I can get there. And the first level, I can remember it because it's every level starts like a gun barrel opening up and it says all the time. And I'm going, what the hell does 1800 mean? Like, eventually learned that was like a military time. And then I just played through the first level and for days I just didn't stop. And I don't know what it was, but when I was younger, if I enjoyed a video game, I'd play it, start again, play it, start again, play it. And I just wouldn't get bored. The first level itself in particular really sold me because it's got some really cool music when you get up to it. The Bond theme starts quite nicely and you start to know all the little tricks of the game. And for me, honestly, it was incredible. It was quite weird looking at a PlayStation review magazine that I got a couple of weeks later that is getting absolutely slated. And in my head, I couldn't really understand why. But I ignored it and continued on. I didn't matter about the voice acting, which didn't sound like Piers Brosnan at all. I didn't matter that the animations were a little bit janky. All of it was just so well done. Like... I was kind of expecting a game like The Jewel, where it's just a shooter, but with a tuxedo. But the fact you had like gadgets, you had different kinds of guns, you had the ability to choose between the two, explosive environments, 3D modeling, skiing levels. Oh my God. The first time that skiing level popped up and then it comes up with the Union Jack parachute at the end. It sold me completely. Much to the stage that now I often like listening to video game music when I'm studying because lyrics get me distracted. Just having something in the background just keeps me focused. And the Tommy Tallarico Tomorrow Never Dies soundtrack is constantly there. I don't know why it's so good. It's obviously probably just a bit of nostalgia, but every piece of music so different. There's only a few instances where a song's repeated. That's one of my main memories, actually. Like, if I think about it now, the first thing that pops into my mind is the music. I think about the boat level at the end. I think about the one level as Wei Lin. I think about the kind of janky car missions, which were a little bit bad, but I didn't mind because I was driving a car as James Bond. It wasn't until I got more into Bond, the franchise, that I listened to the Tomorrow Never Dies soundtrack. There's some places where it, the music's definitely been carried over. I've not done any research into it if Tommy Tallarico got some of the rights from um, David Arnold or anything, but there's some pieces of music which are very, very similar. But I, overall, the game was just a joy to play for me. It was doing James Bond things in the best way I'd experienced it. Gold and I went completely out of my mind at that point because I hadn't played it for more than a couple of hours at a friend's house. And all the levels, there's a variety of like 15 levels, I think, which was enough to keep me entertained. You had, the, as I say, the skiing. It was just all brilliant. I absolutely loved it. I think that also set me up to be disappointed by Bond for the next couple of years until the PS2 era kind of properly kicked off. I just go back and play Tomorrow Never Dies all the time. Uh, I liked how the bad guys were shown. I like Carver. Carver had some great puns in that game. Beautifully delivered, obviously. But yeah, overall, it was just a fantastic game. I just couldn't stop playing it. Like, loved all of it. And that, ladies and gentlemen, closes out 1999. And that will also close out disc two of the Digital 007, a look back at James Bond in video games, the 90s. It's been quite a run. Lots of good games to include the classic GoldenEye on Nintendo 64. And of course, I want to thank all the people that made this disc possible. This list includes Joe Slepsky from the Gamefly commercials, who does our vocal intros. Of course, Joe November, who does our original music intro and outro. What an amazing song. And then all the wonderful people that gave up their time for interviews that include The Wizard of Ice, 
Pat, DJ Cristado Sampson from the Longbox Crusade Podcast Network, YouTube's SCXCR, Aaron Bossig from the Hungry Trilobite Podcast, John from At Not Perfected Yet, Chris from Instagram's British Bond Addict, Eric from Philly, Becca from the Do You Expect Us to Talk Podcast, GoldenEye Superfan Frank McNeely, Ezra Gallo, Phil from Manchester, Luis from Ivague, Colombia, and Nicholas Succinct, the author of The World of Goldeneye. You all made this possible, and I hope you've enjoyed Disc 2 of the Digital 007, a look back at James Bond and video games. I've been your host, Jared Albrecht, the yard sale artist, a.k.a. Death Probe, from the On Her Majesty's Secret Podcast Network. I look forward to bringing you Disc 3. Until then, once again, for your listening pleasure, I will play you in its entirety Joe November's track Smirsh LOL as our outro music. It's a good one, folks. Listening to the On Her Majesty's Secret Podcast production of The Digital 007, a look back at James Bond in video games.
3, 2000 to 2010. Hello and welcome to the Digital 007. A look back at James Bond in video games, of course, brought to you by On Her Majesty's Secret Podcast and our fine Patreon sponsors. I'm Jared Albrecht, the yard sale artist, a.k.a. Death Probe, and I will be taking you through this journey through the decades to look at all the various incarnations of James Bond in video games. Let me tell you how this is generally going to work. I will give you some basic information on each game, and we're more interested in hearing from people who have played the games along the way. So wherever possible, I was out there hitting those internets, finding our listeners, our friends, people who rally around the show over at Twitter at OHMSPod, and I'm catching these folks and I'm talking to them about their James Bond video game experiences. So there's going to be a lot of that thrown in here. We're really just going to be looking at the fun facts, going through the timeline, and getting those interesting experiences from our very listeners. This has been an absolute blast to put together. So let me not waste any more time and get straight to our first game. Let's start with the year 2000. Year 2000, Pierce Brosnan was riding high as James Bond 007 in the cinemas, and it would be a good year for James Bond video game fans because 2000 would see the release of two games, the first of which, The World is Not Enough. Ever wonder what it's like to be 007? Game platform near you. The World is Not Enough was made by EA Games. They are going to hold the license for quite a while on the James Bond video game universe. The World is Not Enough was available on PlayStation in 64 and Game Boy Color a little later on in 2001, but we're going to focus mainly on the PlayStation and N64 versions. Those versions are first-person shooters. The Game Boy Color version that would come later was a top-down adventure game. And the weird thing about it is, no matter whether we're talking about the PlayStation, the N64, or the Game Boy Color, all three of these games are radically different from one another. This is because they all had different developers working on the game. So it's definitely worth your time, if you want to play all the Bond games, to play each version of The World is Not Enough, regardless of whether it's on PS1 and 64 or Game Boy Color, because they're all different. However, if you want to cut to the chase and play what is widely considered the best of all of them, I would definitely recommend the one on the N64. And speaking of the N64 version, let's hear from Michael from Urbana. All right, it's the year 2000. I'm heavily into James Bond at this point. A big fan of the Pierce Brosnan movies. Later down the road, more of a Daniel Craig, Timothy Dalton guy. But anyway, I'm also a gamer at this point. And 
I really enjoyed the GoldenEye 007 game from Nintendo 64. Uh, got the Tomorrow Never Dies PlayStation game a couple of years later for Christmas. Big disappointment. I noticed it was coming out on Nintendo 64 and PlayStation at the time. Since I was so disappointed with Tomorrow Never Dies on the PlayStation, and kind of hearing that it was more like GoldenEye, I decided to go with the Nintendo 64 version. This was released about the time of my birthday, which was November 20th, but actually it got released about a month earlier. Not exactly sure if I got this around my birthday or Christmas. I know it was around that time. It came in the blue cartridge. I popped it in. Noticed it was like GoldenEye, except the fact that this time, that they were speaking this time, and around this time, I don't think the voice dialogue stuff was as good in video games at that time. It was a lot of kind of your dodgy Resident Evil type of stuff, bad acting. Bond kind of doesn't sound quite like Brosnan, a little bit. I retrieved the money. No doubt Sir Robert will be pleased to see it again. I didn't come just for the money. The report you sold King was stolen from an MI6 agent who was killed for it. I want to know who killed him. I'm just the middleman. Take the money. Your last chance. Give me a name. You still threaten me? Even without your weapon? Graphics are still kind of at that uh, stage where it's kind of the 3D transitioning was still uh, at that time. It follows the film pretty closely. It's not as good as as the film in some respects, like the opening sequence where Bond, you know, jumps out with the suitcase from the window. Uh, that's not in the Nintendo 64 game. He actually walks out of the bank, which was kind of disappointing a little bit. And it seems like this opening sequence is, it was kind of dragged out in the film, I thought. It gets dragged out even longer. There's like a subway sequence in it. You're chasing after the cigar girl. Catching up to her is not as exciting. They don't even do the boat chase. I think it's just like a quick dialogue kind of cutscene that they show. You don't even get to do a level with that. There is a cool sneaking around level in the Electra's Villa stage. I kind of like that. That's kind of a standout level for me. The game is definitely not as good as GoldenEye. Doing this documentary, talking about it, I kind of had to go back and watch gameplay footage, so... I guess the game in the end didn't leave a long-lasting memory. I kind of have more memories playing the multiplayer because I kind of think back to when I was playing it with my best friend Justin. We'd be you know, playing multiplayer and listening to Led Zeppelin and stuff like that and going on tangents about stuff. And I kind of remember that more than I do actually doing the single-player mode. And this was kind of around the time where I was the N64 was kind of transitioning out. It was a move to PlayStation 2, which I started to get more excited about game-wise. This game kind of represents a transition point from that. This game is kind of more better use of its multiplayer than it is a single game. There's some standout things in the single game, like you get to do a little more sneaking around than you did in GoldenEye. You got the dialogue, which you can actually hear this time. You don't have to read it, which is a plus uh there's not as many missions where the person that you have to protect is getting shot at a lot and you have to repeat the level over and over again 
multiplayer is really shines though because I can actually go back and think about like all the fond memories I had just hanging out with my friend, just talking, and I kind of remember that more than I do the actual game. But in the end, it's a it was an enjoyable game at the time. If you can find it for cheap, I would check it out. I wouldn't spend more than fifteen bucks on it, but I hope you enjoy. Our old friend Eric from Philly also enjoyed The World Is Not Enough on N64. Let's check in with his thoughts. Yeah, The World Is Not Enough, I played that on the N64. The movie came out, I know, in 99. It was either 99 or 2000 when the game came out. That's my first Bond game since I really kind of considered the dossier kind of more informational, but that was like my first Bond video game that I was playing. And I remember I got that from a Toys R Us and I was in high school, yeah, ninth grade. And I had a job working for one of the libraries in Philly. And so after I got paid one day, asked my mom to take me to Toys R Us and I went up there and got it. Well, first I tried to buy it, but then I couldn't buy it because I guess I guess I looked too young at the time. My mother was sitting in the car. I had to go back to the car to get my mother to come into Toys R Us and buy it. And I always remember her telling the cashier, because the cashier was always like, well, you know, we can't have under a certain age or whatever buying the game. I can't remember if it was rated like M for Mature or anything like that. I can't remember. But she was like, she was like, uh, sir, this boy has seen every James Bond movie ever. So it like, trust me, I'm quite sure that whatever is in this game can't be any more appropriate or inappropriate based on the movies and he's seen all the movies so i got that and i wasn't never much of a multiplayer person i know goldeneye the big thing was the multiplayer and i don't really recall anyone ever talking about the world is not enough multiplayer but i was always just impressed just with it by capturing the vibe of the movie um i always remember one of my favorite parts of the game is and it was one of my favorite parts of the movie as well, the scene in the snow, Bond and Electra. So for some reason, whenever I think of that game, I always think of that particular area in the game. Just I just thought that they captured it well. And the N64 wasn't the most powerful machine. You know, the PlayStation would still do some things better than it. But that was just one that always stuck out to me. And I remember as I got older and, you know, I got newer systems and stuff like that, my N64 used to leave it at my grandmother's house. So then whenever I would come over there, there was just something that I could play. And that was one that I always seemed to go back to. And and the thing is, I don't even remember if I ever actually completed it. Like I said, that snow level was one that always stands out. For some reason, I see Bond holding his gun. And for some reason, it seemed like the N64 really captured the reflection of the gun. Like I said, it's just a weird part of it to focus on, but it's the one thing that always seemed to... uh, stand out to me and sadly i lost it along with my n64 after my grandmother died someone broke into our house and stole my n64 and stole all my games for my n64 with the exception of legend of zelda ocarina of time it was so weird it was the only game with all the other games but it was the only game that they didn't steal and yeah it's one of those things i mean now that you know nintendo has the switch there's so many older games i kind of wish they could bring back so that people could experience it again i know goldeneye was the king then and i believe world is not enough was developed by ea goldeneye was rare 
But World is Not Enough was still a solid, at least for the single player, which is all I could speak to, first-person shooter. I would probably say it's definitely a little underrated as far as Bond games go. And now to discuss The World Is Not Enough on PlayStation 1 and a bit about the Game Boy Advance version, we have Burnsy NYY from YouTube. I honestly grew up with The World Is Not Enough on Nintendo 64. I was born in 99, so GoldenEye, World Is Not Enough, I always had those at my disposal. But when I was in college, I had a somewhat disposable income because I was working at the bar on campus. When I was doing that, I remembered there was a Bond game on the PlayStation 1 I never played. So I looked up Bond PlayStation 1 games. The world is not enough. And I said, okay. I called my local game store because on my way to my internship, about twice a week that semester, I would pass it. So I called them up on like a Saturday night before my shift at the bar. And I asked, do you guys have a copy of The World Is Not Enough on PlayStation? Originally, they were like, we never heard of it. But then uh, one guy overheard it because they were on speaker. And he was like, wait, I think we have a copy of it somewhere. So they go through the catalog on the computer. And I just hear across the store, yeah, we got it. It's $4. Do you want us to hold it for you? I'm like, yes, please. <laughs> so I picked it up that Monday when I went to my internship. I waited a couple weeks before I actually played it because it was right before Thanksgiving. And it was a busy time in the semester. So I got home, played it on my PS3. I beat it in about two sittings. But I remember I remember thinking, like, this is so weird, but I love it. And, like, in a weird way. Because I definitely prefer the 64 version. But as its own game, the PS1 version is really good. The one thing that kind of weirds me out, though, is that it's the exact same control scheme as Tomorrow Never Dies on the PS1. And that's a third-person shooter. So that weirded me out. Then another thing was I thought the game glitched. At one point, because during the uh, I was about to call it the docks, but it's not the docks. It's the caviar factory. At the end of the level, you have to turn the valve like in the movie, grab the flare gun and shoot. I thought the game glitched because I kept shooting the flare gun at it, but apparently it was timed, I think. So I had to keep doing the mission over again, but I I didn't really have to keep doing the mission over again. I just had to keep turning the valve and then running back. That took about an hour or two to figure out. And I think that level was actually pretty difficult anyway. <laughs> I also remember at the very end of the game, the nuclear submission, you had to go through the nuclear reactor and you were losing health as you went through it. It got to a point where I think I spent 30 minutes on that mission and I put it on pause, put down the controller. I looked up on my phone just to walk through the end of the mission. And I said, you know what? I put too much time into this. I'm not dying now to do this level over again. And I know at least in the 90s, I wouldn't have been able to do that. Hell, even early 2000s, I wouldn't have been able to do that. But that was my mentality with it. It was definitely a game I could see myself playing again, but not as much as, as the 64 version. And I remember one of the points was something I remember about the box art. I have a complete in box copy of all three versions of the game. And my 64 copy, it's incredibly washed out, the box. The Game Boy copy, I got it at a used rental store when they were going out of business. Uh, that box is in terrible shape. But the PS1 version, I can say, had the best colors, <laughs> if that makes sense, even though it was just the instruction manual. But yeah, I honestly think just as someone who's played all the games, I think the PS1 version of The World Is Not Enough had a much bigger influence on Agent Under Fire than the 64 version. 
And I guess that makes sense because I felt like the 64 world was not enough, had a bigger impact on Nightfire. They were both Eurocom, I believe. I'm not sure if Eurocom did Agent Under Fire. And that was just something I looked up when I was writing scripts for my reviews. So, yeah, I remember the Game Boy game just being a pain in the ass. It was fun. It was a pain in the ass. (laughs) I think I picked up the Game Boy game. Again, there was a movie rental store in my town that was going out of business. I think I was about 12. And I remember it was on the shelf, in the box. I'd never seen a Game Boy Color game in the box. I was 12. I bought it. I played it. Mm -mm. It is a fun game in its own way. But as someone who just wanted to pick up a Bond game and figured, hey, it's a Bond game. It'll be fun. Like, I can shoot things and just do whatever I want. No. No. If anyone out there's ever played the Metal Gear Solid Game Boy Color game, I remember it playing a lot like that. But even Metal Gear Solid, it felt weird on the Game Boy because it's Metal Gear Solid. But I feel like the mechanics worked better in Metal Gear than they did in The World Is Not Enough. Because in The World Is Not Enough, they had the same problem I felt like they had with Link's Awakening on the Game Boy on the original. Where you have two buttons. Deal. (laughs) Yeah, so I guess in the end, my overall thoughts of the PlayStation version... Actually, I even said it in my review of the 64 game on my YouTube channel. The PS1 game, it's a fantastic substitute if you have a PlayStation 1 and you love the movie. Because... A lot of the scenes in the game are just ripped right from the movie. Not like the 64 game where they just kind of mix and match. I thought when I played through it, still fun games, but the PS1 version is more for like the diehard. I want to watch the movie, but I can't right now. So that's the best you can do with it. And for the Game Boy game, I would say at the end of the day, the Game Boy game, you have a Game Boy. You didn't have James Bond 007 on the normal Game Boy or everything or nothing on the Game Boy Advance or I guess even Nightfire. I'm not a big fan of Nightfire in the Game Boy Advance, but that's just me. But if you really wanted your Bond fix on the go, it worked. It was just incredibly difficult. So yeah, a lot of ground to cover on The World Is Not Enough, and it's three very different games. But for now, let's leave The World Is Not Enough and pay a little attention to the other James Bond game that came out in 2000. A little game that was a PlayStation 1 exclusive called 007 Racing. Ever wonder what it's like to be 007? Take the time. Certainly. Wrong one. That's not... Oh! Oh, God. need more practice. Ready, 007 Racing was also produced by EA Games, and like I said, it is a PlayStation 1 exclusive. It is a third-person driving adventure game. The title is a little bit tricky because there's not really any racing going on. It's more like drive to the objective, survive to this point, to that point, go on these different missions. So basically it's more like a third person adventure game where you're just in a car the whole time. And our old friend Frank McNeely is back to talk about a little 007 racing. He's at GoldenEye97 on Twitter and he's got some good insights and some good things to say about 007 racing. Let's give it a listen. It's funny, one of the questions you asked me about was kind of about owning 007 Racing, to be honest. I've never owned 007 Racing, but I've played it several times. 
And I mean, I enjoyed it. I think what I was most thrilled about with the game was the level where you're driving the GoldenEye car, the BMW Z3, and it had gadgets. Because the one letdown about the GoldenEye movie was Q talked about Stinger missiles behind the headlights, and we never saw it. So moments like that, I mentioned this before, but the game's controls were really clunky, as most PlayStation games were. So what made the game hard was figuring out the controls. Another part that stuck out to me was, I think there's a level in New York where Bond's driving a Chevy Caprice with Jack Wade talking on the radio, and like the car's rigged to blow, I think, and you have to like drive at a certain speed. At a couple of times since it's in New York, you can see the Twin Towers in the background. And playing that, I was just like, man, this game is just like captured in such a specific time because the game literally came out a year before 9-11. So there are little interesting parts like that. What I really like about 007 Racing is it set a precedent. So the games that followed... Now, I think Tomorrow Never Dies might have had a driving level and then, of course... GoldenEye 64, you could drive the tank, but I think 007 Racing was really the first game that widely looked at driving Bond cars with Bond gadgets. And I think the following four games, so Agent Under Fire, Night Fire, Everything or Nothing, and then From Russia with Love, all had driving levels where you drove a Bond car that had gadgets, which I thought was a fantastic staple to include in those games. And even though GoldenEye 64 is like going to be number one for me no matter what the fact that those four games in the early 2000s included at least one or two driving levels they all stand out for that reason and that's because of i think 007 racing is because they made that happen they kind of incorporated that with the games that follow so that's why again even though 007 racing itself isn't the best bond game it did something that made other games that much better Frank definitely makes an interesting point in that with this focus on driving for 007 Racing, there may have been some really good influence for some games to come. And speaking of games to come, we have finished the year 2000, and it's time to move to the year of 2001. Two thousand and one would yield us just one game, but it is a pretty well thought of game. That game, Agent Under Fire. Well, 007, how did you come to ruin this little beauty? And where exactly is the rest of this? And I suppose you can explain this. James. It's not easy being Bond on Nintendo GameCube, Xbox, and PlayStation 2. Ready T for teen. Agent Under Fire was another EA production. It was available on the PS2, the GameCube, and the Xbox. It is a first-person adventure-style game. And again, pretty well thought of in the Bond community. This ushered in the next generation of gaming systems. We have moved on from the PlayStation 1 and the N64, and now we are in the PS2, GameCube, Xbox era of gaming. So this would be the first Bond game to be available on those new systems. And let's see what friend of the show, Caleb Smith, has to say about it. 
being a Bond fan ever since GoldenEye hit theaters, I was actually pretty young. And so came out with GoldenEye and then followed up with Tomorrow Never Dies and The World's Not Enough. I played those games. Agent Under Fire was really the follow-up to GoldenEye to me. Got it for PS2, a birthday present. My birthday is in early November, and it came out, I think it was like middle or a week before Thanksgiving. My mom took me to the store. She's like, all right, I know you want this. This is kind of a late birthday present. I was like, all right, yeah. And immediately it's like, all right, we got to go home. I got to place now. It's actually funny because this was like the first game that my mom really paid attention to. She was used to like, you know, Super Mario Brothers. And she played that when she was younger. You know, so she was kind of used to that type of game. Didn't really understand that games now were at a point of being more cinematic. You know, with cutscenes, And so she ended up watching me and she's like, oh, this is like a movie. And I'm like, oh, I know it's great, right? It's like my own personal Bond adventure. So she ended up watching the whole thing from start to finish. It was like, oh, okay, are you going to play today? You know, I'd come home from school. Are you going to play? Yeah, let's go. Do you have homework? Nah, don't worry about it. Okay, let's go play James Bond. Yeah, and so it's kind of funny because that continued on with games into the future. Any cinematic game, she'd be like, oh, okay, let's let's start watching that. So this was the one that jump-started that. The packaging was pretty standard, PlayStation 2 box. I think there was probably a booklet inside. It always kind of felt like it was a mix of a Roger Moore and a Pierce Brosnan movie to me. Because it's a little outlandish, you know, like the story has the cloning aspect and oh, and then it kind of gallivants around, you know, different areas. So I felt it did a great job at capturing the essence of Bond. So I really enjoyed that aspect. My favorite part I, I gotta say the gunplay was great, but my favorite part was driving the BMW, shooting the missiles from it, zipping around. Like I think it's the second or third mission in, you get a chase after uh, Carla the Jackal, which I've always gotten a kick out of. I'll, t- I'll come back to that. But yeah, just zipping around the city, shooting missiles, blowing cars up. It was a blast. And it's kind of funny. I look back on it. And for a game that came out in 2001, it looks pretty darn good. I, I kind of did a little follow-up on it. Let's Still pretty good, despite coming back, you know, almost 20 years now. And the gameplay still holds up fairly well. I think the kind of expansive city and being able to drive around, that was a blast. That was one of my favorite things. And along with, so I'll kind of dive back into Carla the Jackal. I always kind of found that interesting because I saw I'm kind of an espionage spy nerd, even kind of like the real life stuff. So I like all the movies, you know, James Bond, Mission Impossible, et cetera, right? Then I kind of dive into the real nitty gritty world of espionage in real life. And it's kind of like based off of Carlos the Jackal. I've always found that connection interesting. It's like Bond spin on Carlos the Jackal. So I always liked that. Even as a kid, I, I remember learning about it. And I was like, oh, whoa, this is really cool. <laughs> so I, yeah, I just had a good time. I like that connection. It also kind of plays into how Bond stays relevant, you know, in, in the time and it connects to the real world. So I, I thought that was a really nice touch. And then there's those Bond moments, you know, you, you do something flashy and the music plays and it's you feel right into it. You know, and it's like, oh, yeah, I'm James Bond. And in a way, I think the time difference between Goldeneye to Agent Under Fire I think really helped because they were able to do things graphically different. They were able to insert cinematic experience that GoldenEye, while the missions itself, as you were playing, captured the essence of the film. The short, like, you know, three second, four second cutscenes at the beginning of the mission really just like paint the picture of like, oh, here you are in, you know, Siberia. 
going towards the silo. And then, but this, it's like full dialogue. It feels so much like a movie. So I really loved how, I mean, I think GoldenEye came out in 97, 96, 97. And it's just amazing at how technology just shot up. We're able to, you know, inject dialogue, music, and like that real Bond music. You know, it felt classic. 007, the CIA has come to us for assistance. It appears that one of their agents, a Miss Zoe Nightshade, recently sent out a distress signal. Since you are already on location in Hong Kong, we saw this as an opportunity to help out our American friends. Nightshade was investigating a botanical research firm known as Identicon, headed by a man named Nigel Block. The CIA believes that Identicon is a front for a massive smuggling ring dealing in biological weapons. In Nightshade's last report, she informed us that Identicon was taking considerable measures to transport and to protect vials of some unknown substance. Nightshade was to obtain one of their courier cases and have its contents analyzed, but her mission was compromised. You need to retrieve that courier case 007 and rescue Miss Nightshade. Now pay attention. I provided you with a high-tension grapple line I call the Q-Claw. Use this device to latch onto special perforated surfaces in order to pull yourself up to ledges and platforms. You'll also carry the Q-Laser, which emits a powerful beam of coherent light capable of slicing through metal alloys commonly used in locks. And and so that's really where it kind of feels like that, you know, Roger Moore jumping around, being suave, and then you kind of got the, the new age of Pierce Brosnan. Even the look of James Bond in the game they didn't render him after an actor. I kind of always felt like it's blending Roger Moore and Pierce Brosnan together. Uh, you got the dark hair, but there's something about that face just called back to Roger for me. Still one of the better Bond games. You know, there's so many good moments. So there's just all, it just really packs in all of these moments that feels like a Bond film. And it's almost like the story is so well written and the cutscenes are so well done that you could like piece this together and watch it as a film. I also was a sucker for having the uh i think they call it like a p7k because they didn't get the licensings on the name of the gun but it's modeled after the the p99 that bond first uses in tomorrow never dies and i've always been like in love with that gun so getting to use it for the first time in that game was you know super thrilling and then i can't remember if it was a cheat or if there was an unlock but then you could turn it gold and so I always felt like suave running around with a gold pistol and a, a gold suppressor attached. So I, it was pretty funny to, you know, kind of see that. It's like, yeah, that's not realistic, but man, that is very Bond and I love it. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I really loved Agent Under Fire and yeah, it, it stands up even to the test of time. I'd, I'd still dive back into it now. And with that, we are all finished with 2001. The very next year, we would see two James Bond video game releases. So let's get to 2002. I'm gonna... 2002 would be the 40th anniversary of the cinematic James Bond and it would see the release of Die Another Day. Also, it would see the release of two new video games. The first video game that we will discuss from 2002 was called 007 Ice Racer. This game was made by a company called Infusio, and it was made for the mobile phone market. Remember those old 
flip phones and the little games you used to play on them? Well, James Bond got his first flip phone game in 2002 with Ice Racer. It's an action-adventure driving game, and it was released to increase the interest in Die Another Day. You might remember some ice driving in that film. So, without further ado, let's get to a fan-favorite interview on this show. We have Luis from Ibagué, Colombia. And if it's odd and obscure, then chances are Luis has played it. So let's get his thoughts on 007 Ice Racer for the mobile phone. Well, my story with the mobile Bond games started uh, with the purchase of a Motorola V3 Racer. I think is the, the correct name. <laughs> and um, I got it pretty much like uh, two or three years after it was released. So uh, it was like 2007, I guess. So Casino Royale was already released. And obviously I was looking for video games to install into the phone. I knew that these phones had the Java system and I was looking for them, but I couldn't find any because here in Colombia, purchasing those games was not possible. The old games of the Brosnan era were no longer available, of course, and the Casino Royale one was not available neither because normally the company, the phone companies here, ask for a subscription fee, a monthly subscription fee. It was very expensive and it was mostly aimed to buy ringtones rather than apps. Well, they weren't apps. They were just games and, and stuff. And the most popular games that were available in their catalogs were the puzzle ones like Tetris and uh, Match 3 games, Bejewel, I remember those. So it was not easy to get the games. So I had a friend at the university, he had the same phone, but he had been messing around with the, the phone software. He got a kit on the internet to mod his phone and he asked me if I wanted to do it, and I did it, and it opened a lot of possibilities. So obviously I was looking for the, the one of the first things I did was looking for the phone games. I knew they existed because I, I saw some ads and some information, but I ended up looking for them in a website. Uh, I think it's Get Jar. I think the, the website is still live, but it's focused on uh, Android apps, or some things like that. But at the time, the purpose of the website was the games on Java games. So I, I found the James Bond games on GetJar and I installed them. Well, installed them. The memory of my phone was very limited. I couldn't install all the James Bond games at once. So I had to try and also I had some photos, I had some music. So there was not enough space for everything. So the first game I installed was an Ice Racer. An Ice Racer maybe because of the jailbreaking method or the, the thing that my friend did to my phone, wasn't working very well. Or maybe because the game was old and the phone was new. I don't know. It didn't work well. But I remember that many people had in, in their minds the idea that W7 Racing could be kind of replicated on mobile phones, but obviously it wasn't the case. I wasn't certain that I wouldn't have this kind of game. It was a little bit disappointing, but... Not so much in the sense that the movie was quite old at the time I got the phone and I installed the app. So it was just a funny thing. But as I, it didn't work very well, I had to obviously erase the files and install the next one that was the Hover Chase. 
And we will definitely get back with Luis on the Hover Chase game when it comes up momentarily. But first, we have to take a look at the other game that came out in 2002, and that would be Nightfire. I'm sending in 007. Are you game? Absolutely. If you can ride the wave, survive the ice, and save the girl, you're the man for the mission. Let's get down to business. 007 Nightfire, rated T for teens, in stores November 18th. Nightfire was made by EA. Still holding that license. It was available on the PlayStation 2, the Xbox, the GameCube, the PC, the Mac, and there was a version for the Game Boy Advance. Its main version was a first-person shooter. And Nightfire is interesting because official 007 writer Bruce Firestein was brought in to work on its story. So this is the first time that a James Bond video game is pulling in an actual writer from the James Bond universe. Nightfire... Also, is the first time that Pierce Brosnan allowed likeness rights, but he did not lend his voice to the game, but he did approve the use of his likeness. Another interesting thing about Nightfire, it is the first Bond game to get its own official James Bond theme song. So Nightfire has its own Bond theme song, which we will give a listen to right now. Don't love me quietly. With intensity Let's get into some Nightfire reviews, and I've got some pretty good interviews for you. Let's start with two guys. That's right, I got a double interview here. I've got cousins. They were also roommates. They're also both history majors. They're also both Auburn University graduates. It is Zach and Wynn discussing their memories growing up together with Nightfire. Double O Seven Nightfire, the game, was the first FPS that I bought for the PlayStation Two console. And as luck would have it, this is not just you know little old Zach rolling up into electronic boutique or the video game store. This was in the Blockbuster inside of a Kroger grocery store in my hometown. Double O Seven Nightfire, what would become one of my niche most cherished childhood nostalgia-packed games was located on the previously used rentals discounted shelf. So me being the, I guess, middle school-aged young lad that I was, inspired, had recently watched a few of James Bond films, Roger Moore, Pierce Brosnan, 
guys I'd you know looked up to and thought were the epitome of cool. I just gravitated towards it. Didn't know anything about it. Didn't had never played it before. Saw it was on in the bargain bin and just decided why not scoop it up. Brought it home, threw it in. I loved it so much. Win would come over, you know, a few times a, a month or every few weeks or so. His family would come over from Birmingham to Dalton. We'd throw it in the PlayStation Two, and you've got it's got that classic split screen shooter style that you just don't see in the current generation of consoles. It's got that beautiful split screen where you can't avoid checking out your opponent's screen to see where they are, where they're setting up their trip mines and things like that. But really, my love for the game is mostly based in the time spent doing the multiplayer. It's got a really healthy multiplayer environment. It's got King of the Hill. It's got Capture the Flag. It's got Deathmatch mode. There's even some you know more specific objective ones like Uplink is one where you have to capture satellites and then those kind of do different stuff. But really, the treat of the game for me lies in the multiplayer. And this was even one of the few games where it was serious enough to where I had to get out the old PlayStation 2 multi-tap for four-player split-screen, late-into-the-night action with the boys on a Friday night or Saturday night. And we would play this for hours. It's got a lot of nice weapons. There's a couple of cheesy little vehicles little remote-controlled tank and a little remote-controlled helicopter where your avatar is standing completely still while you're piloting the <laughs> these machines and just kind of going around so you're a sitting duck. But it's just cutesy little kitsch things like that that just added to the flavor of the game and just really made it a special one for me. So, when chime in here. I think you've, you yeah, probably man. can... I think to understand my approach to Nightfire, I think we have to understand that Zach and I, though we are cousins, live in a very different sort of households. And this didn't just extend to video games, this extended to, you know, sugary cereals and staying up late and all that sort of stuff. You know, I came from a household where the only sort of access I had to video games was PC games for a long amount of time. And so going over to Zach's house, going over to the cousin's house was sugary cereals to start the morning. Countless hours of PlayStation 2, and yeah, the one that that I definitely gravitated to, again, because it had such a great multiplayer interface, was Nightfire. So much so that many years later, when I finally got the PS2, this has been about 2003, 2004, something like that, so about a year after playing it with Zach, that was one of the first games that I just absolutely had to have because I had so many fun memories of being able to play all these different Bond characters. I think that was one of the other things that was really great about the multiplayer games was the different amount of characters that you could play. It's not just from, you know, the Nightfire storyline itself, which is very interesting and very intense and everything like that, but also just from classic Bond movies. And that piqued my interest too. I had not really seen a lot of Bond movies up until I started playing Nightfire. So that got me interested in, you know, watching Goldfinger and watching a couple of the Roger Moores and a couple of the Dalton ones. They were all just kind of that moment of like, oh, so that's Jaws, or oh, so that's Odd Job. That's really great. And of course, you know, some of these characters had certain skills and abilities. Odd Job, of course, had his one shot, one kill hat. <laughs> uh, what was the one? Do you remember back the little fella that was on the multiplayer that was the small squat fella that was basically, we just said, okay, nobody can play him because he's so much smaller than everybody else? I think he's Scaramanga's assistant or something. Uh, Knickknack, that's it. Yeah, yeah Knickknack. Yeah. So Knickknack was was unique because he was about half the size of all the other avatars. They were all pretty, you know, pretty much the same size. And of course, here comes Knickknack running around, like scurrying around like a little chipmunk. Yeah. On the-, <laughs> the beautiful thing about Nightfire's multiplayer was 
we got to a level eventually when I got to the PS2, and I'd, I'd very much be interested in testing this over the next couple of weeks where we are basically at the same level. You know, it would be good, intense matchups. The first couple times we played, obviously, Zach would kick my butt and everything. But as I got the PS2 and began to play through it, we would get to about the same skill level, and you could set the difficulty settings and set very specific elements of the multiplayer computer characters that you'd play as. So, you know, if you wanted to play with Goldfinger or Scaramanga or anything like that, you could set them at certain difficulty levels. You could set them with certain, certain prototypes and player types. And so that just made it that much more fun because it wasn't just Zack and Wynn squaring off. It would be Zack and Wynn and then these computer characters that sometimes played just as well as we did or sometimes played much more poorly so we get those easy kills. Whatever the case may be, that made it a lot of fun. Now, I will say, I have a specific memory that I will never forget about this game. Before there was even purchase of the PS2, before there was even purchase of Nightfire, I remember my mom being the mother that she was doing due diligence and checking up with Aunt Robin, Zach's mom, on whether or not this T-level game was acceptable for her 12, 13-year-old son. And the one line that, that Aunt Robin had is Aunt Robin kind of rolled her eyes and goes, well, some of the women are very scantily clad in the game. <laughs> and then I'm just like, okay, but like, it, it, there's not blood, mom. You know, I was trying to really, I was right at that T rating where it, every game had to be kind of a battle of, can I get this past my parents or not? And that was the one where I was like, you know, oh, don't worry, mom, I'll run through that level real quick and everything like that. And and that was, that was really, I'll never forget it. Robin just kind of rolling around. Mentally glad. <laughs> well, well, it's good that they never saw your mom. Never saw the actual cutscenes from the game because, oh, in, in my recent playthrough, I think it's about every other mission. Bond, of course, has to shoehorn in <laughs> very abruptly, and well, like the snowmobile scene. Of course, the snowmobile mission right after it, it's found out or revealed that Aston Martin was in the garage, just right outside the log cabin all night. Agent Nightshade turns to Bond and said, "Was that there all night?" And Bond, of course, cheekily responds, you look like you needed some rest. And Nightshade, of course, turns back to Bond and just as cheekily retorts with, well, I don't recall getting much rest last night, James. (laughs) So it was those kinds of classic hooks that tie it so beautifully back to some of the charm and appeal of the actual Bond movies. I'm glad you brought that story up, Wynn, because, yeah, this this game does have its own kind of spicy allure in that way, especially for young lads going through puberty, going to private Christian schools. I mean, that's the razor's edge right there of edge, if you will, at the time for us. So That's right. That's, oh, me. This is something that was really enjoyable about, and I'm sure, Zach, you're kind of experiencing this now as you go through the single-player walkthrough. These missions were very much like you kind of got a little bit of everything in these missions, especially that first mission. You could play it any real way that you wanted to. The exchange mission, I guess, is what it was called. You could play it kind of stealth. You could play it using gadgets. You could kind of go in guns blazing. And then, of course, there are, you know, these driving missions. And, you know, there's a couple of them where you're with the Aston Martin that's kind of turns into a submarine that's a frustrating (laughs) this very day but there is a lot of variety in these sort of games this is not just your standard first person shooter where you move from one level to the next just firing at will or sneaking around like you would in splinter cell and trying not to alert the guards there's a nice mixture of that throughout all the game which really gave it that full feeling of the fact that even though this was not a bond movie this could have been from everything from the theme song to the great music, I do want to I do want to give a shout out. And Jared, if you want to intersperse some of this, particularly the Phoenix Fire lobby level. 
there's some really great music in this video game that makes it feel very authentically Bond. Even if Pierce Brosnan's voice is not in it, his appearance is in it, you feel like you are experiencing James Bond in all these different aspects of it. Yeah, and of course, there's the, after the PS2, you know, you pop the disc in, you close the tray. After the PS2 logo pops up, it does have its own special Nightfire opening theme. Not quite as long as the normal Bond opening themes, of course, which can get into, you know, three, four minutes. It's about 30, 45 seconds. custom video done for that in the graphics of the time and a nice little jingle it really ties it together and kind of sets you up a really nice intro and it kind of makes you excited to play it makes you excited to kind of see what you're going to be diving into Um, and it feels very authentically bond too which of course is what we're after i did want to bring up because when you had mentioned the different ways to play and i thought one really kind of interesting facet of the game and something that i had forgotten about and was rediscovering as I was doing my playthrough, maps will be laid out in such a way where, oh, you can sneak through this window and come behind a guard. Instead of just shooting him in the head, you can whip out your little car keys stun gun, courtesy of Q, and give him the old razzle-dazzle from behind, and then you unlock a Bond move where a very obvious and large 007 logo comes up and spins around, and you get a nice little catchy jingle. showing that you just completed a signature Bond move, as only he could. And those have been really fun, and it, you are rewarded for doing those because they unlock the multiplayer skins. You can get like golden skin guns that are a little bit stronger for multiplayer and playthrough. The Wolf from PPK can be the upgraded gold version. By doing those Bond moves throughout the game, reaching a certain you know metal ranking at the end of a campaign, that's how you unlock all the fun, kind of cheesy stuff. In the multiplayer, so it kind of rewards going back in, doing the campaign, you know, make you think cleverly, think like James Bond. Piggybacking on what you said about the different styles to play, I thought that was something that this game did really well to balance out just the running through and, and blasting. I couldn't agree more. I, that The minute you said that, I hadn't even thought about that. I hadn't, I hadn't even played this, you know, in, in many, many years, and I could just hear that. But, uh, and of course, see the spinning gold logo, that... That really was special because, yeah, you did. You felt very Bond doing those moves. Like, this was still just right on the cusp of online play being really, especially online first-person shooters being really accessible. And so this would translate very, very well if this were retaken in to Bond games in the future. This sort of multi-layered appreciation of these different multiplayer characters made it that much more enjoyable to play again and again and again. The replay value on this was excellent and still is. All these things, all these things and more solidify it in my mind as one of the top James Bonds, certainly of its era. I thought it was kind of a masterclass. Yeah, yeah. it's, it's an insanely fun game. All right, I'm going to chime in with a question. All right. Uh, which one of you is better at this game? Oh. <laughs> it's... It's undoubtedly got to be me, just because. (laughs) (laughs) And now that I've stirred up all kinds of trouble between Zach and Wynn, let's get another point of view 
on this wonderful game, Nightfire, this time from our old friend, Caleb. Let's dive into Nightfire. Again, it was really immersive into James Bond. And I loved how they got Pierce Brosnan or, you know, the look of Pierce Brosnan. So that was a nice touch. You know, it felt even more like a, a Brosnan film. I don't think they got him to voice the character. So I, I remember like going to the store, paying, I think, 50 bucks, you know, standard PS2 case. I think I got it for PS2. Yeah, it's 40 or 50. I'm trying to remember how much games were back then, but I don't remember. I think something like 50. But yeah, you know, went straight home, popped it in, fired up got the controller, started playing, you know, and immediately, if I remember correctly, you start out like in a helicopter and you're providing like sniper support. I thought that was kind of a fun intro to start the game as. But then, you know, you see Brosnan, you're expecting to kind of hear Brosnan's voice and it's like, oh, it's not Brosnan. The name's Bond, James Bond. But it worked. Like, you know, somehow I got past it, get over the expectations, but I thought actually the voice acting was pretty good. The music was great. I think that this even stepped up from Agent Under Fire. I, you know, I think it helped that the graphics were a teeny little bit better and, you know, the cutscenes were still great. Yeah, you know, and it was, it was a little bit more linear, which worked really well. And there was these awesome missions, like when you're escaping Drake's mansion in that weird looking snowmobile, you know, blasting all the bad guys. So, you know, that was really fun. You get your fill of, you know, you got the Bond girls, if I remember correctly, or at least I don't remember it, I don't remember driving a vehicle. There's a helicopter at the beginning. I, I, you got the snowmobile. I don't remember a car. Yeah, oh, stealth missions. There's the stealth mission where I've never been good at stealth. You know, there's people who like thrive on Metal Gear Solid. I'm like, nah, can't do that. I go guns blazing right in. Yeah, I'm James Bond. Like, why are you not sneaking around? I'm blasting away, right? Q equips you with this pretty gnarly little dark gun you know you know knocks the security guards out but still it's like yeah this isn't my my cup of tea but i do appreciate how it helps change the pace in a positive way kind of breaks up it's not just a constant run and gun you know and then they also interject the level where you're you know zipping away escaping on the snowmobile and i thought the story was really well done i liked how i think it's peter mayhew mayhew ends up kind of like trying to turn, but then the assassins come and get him. And so you have that fight. And if I remember correctly, there's like smoke billowing over and it's kind of hard to see the villain. They're coming after you with a a katana. And so you're kind of fighting your way. It was a nice little mini boss fight. Speaking of boss fights, I can't remember how many times that I almost like threw the controller against the wall when it came towards the end and you're fighting. um, If I remember correctly, you fight, Akiko first, and then Rook, or it might be flip-flop, but either way, fighting Rook, I spent way too long. He was a pain. Like, you had to shoot him a million times, you know, and you had to, like, dodge and, you know, duck behind things, and, oh, man, it was it was a pain. There was some weapon, I'm trying to remember if it was a laser gun that helped, or if that's more of the uh, the last level that I'm thinking of when you're up in space. And actually, here's a fun fact about me. I'm not a big fan of Moonraker because I kind of don't like the space aspect, but I really love the space aspect in Nightfire. There's something about it just worked for me. I know it's kind of odd because, you know, not being a huge fan of Moonraker, I, this actually worked. And I don't know if it was just because it was 
really towards the end. So there wasn't that much space involved or granted, I will admit Moonraker's kind of growing and, and moving up the ranking for me as I, you know, watch it again. And I'm like, oh, okay, this isn't too bad. But yeah, no, Nightfire was great. EA did such a good job creating an immersive experience again. They knocked it out of park with Age of Nightfire. They knocked it out of park with this. Actually, the thing that I ended up playing the most was the multiplayer. I had a couple of buddies that lived down the street that come over. And my favorite thing about it is that you could turn bots on. And so there was the like mountainous chalet area where it has like the ski lift carts. And so you could like ride around and go from like the top to the bottom. And then, yeah, and you just turn on the bots. And I think there was like eight bots. And then, you know, PS2 had four slots. So I'd have three other friends come over and play. So it's like we'd create, you know, mini teams of six. And we're just duking it out, having a heyday, playing with all the different characters. If I remember correctly, the roster of characters were pretty good. Like it kind of matched Goldeneye. There was some classic characters that were tossed in there. Yeah, that was a blast. Had a blast playing that. Bots were just awesome. And that was actually like my first real multiplayer experience on a grander scale, you know, versus GoldenEye. It's very like 1v1 or, you know, 1v4. So it was a little bit smaller scale, which no shame there. I love GoldenEye multiplayer. I think everybody does. But no, I just I loved the bots in Nightfire. The AI was pretty solid. It wasn't just lopsided, you're just shooting ducks, you know, or shooting fish in a barrel and they're not fighting back. No, there was there was some good battles. So I really, I think that's probably ultimately my favorite thing about it. And that will wind us down for the year of 2002. Your next James Bond game would come up the very next year in 2003. Two thousand and three would see the return of 007 to those crazy flip phones. This crazy flip phone game was called Hover Chase. It was by Iomo Games, and it was a top-down vehicle driving adventure. And it was based on the pre-title sequence of Die Another Day. So if we're talking crazy flip phone mobile games, I think we all know what that means. Let's hear from Luis from Eva Gay Colombia. Graphically, it's not as good as the Ice Racer, but the simplicity of the game helped it to run smoothly on the phone. And also, it was more fun. I don't know why, but the, the hover chase, the controls were terrible because you're trying to control a hover vehicle. I don't know because I have never tried once in my life. But according to the audio commentaries on the movies, they say that these vehicles are very difficult to control. So I suppose they try to replicate experience on a mobile phone. So I, I, I think that I had <laughs> a firsthand experience with the hover controls, but it was fun. And obviously it was very simple. The idea was to pass uh, over the mines and try to destroy the enemies. It was a very basic like spy hunt clone with the Die Another Day theme. It was very, very fun. I played many hours, but it was a long time ago. So my memories are not so fresh. 
But I enjoy the game, so I, I wouldn't hesitate to purchase that if I could have. But as I said before, the, the catalog in my country was not very wide on these kind of games, and the game was already old, so probably it wasn't listed. If it was listed, I didn't know. <laughs> probably it was listed at the time it was released. But I didn't have a, a Java-enabled phone for the, those days. Well, it's good to know that we can always count on our good friend Luis from Colombia with those obscure games. So you know he's going to be back for an interview later on. But that is the end of 2003, and it will bring us to 2004. Two thousand and four saw the release of two James Bond games on major consoles. No more of this phone game stuff. We're talking major home consoles. Two games released in two thousand and four. As we all anxiously wait to find out who will be the new Bond. Interestingly enough, the first game we're going to talk about from two thousand and four is Everything or Nothing. Everything or nothing. Read a T for T. Everything or Nothing was made by EA. It was available on the PlayStation 2, the Xbox, the GameCube, and the Game Boy Advance. Again, the Game Boy Advance version is a little different, but we're going to focus on the ones for the major releases of PS2, Xbox, and GameCube. Those are all third-person shooters. And just like the last major entry we had with Nightfire, this one came with its own original theme song. So let's give the theme song for Everything or Nothing a quick listen.
James Bond. You gotta love the video games with their own original theme songs, just adding more Bond music to our universe to listen to. This Everything or Nothing release in 2004 is often thought as one of the most cinematic Bonds, and some people even consider it the last Bond movie for Pierce Brosnan. Why is that, you may ask? Well, Pierce Brosnan returned his likeness rights to the game, and this time actually used his own voice. So, for those of you keeping track at home, Timothy Dalton's last appearance as James Bond was in the Genesis game The Duel, and Pierce Brosnan's last appearance for James Bond is in 2004's Everything or Nothing. It also gets its cinematic flavor from its writer. Bruce Feierstein returns once again to work on the script for the video game, so you have an actual Bond writer working with an actual Bond actor, and that's not where it ends. There's some other A-list talent included in the game. You have Willem Dafoe lending his voice talents to it, Judy Dench as M, John Cleese, Heidi Klum, and Richard Keel all appearing in this wonderfully cinematic game. But don't take my word for it. We have Hulst Trent from the Netherlands. I first played uh, Everything or Nothing when I was with my brother on the GameCube. And uh, I got the game. Well, actually, my brother got the game for my father. My brother once uh, asked my father during dinner, Dad, I'd really like this new James Bond game. I think it's really, really cool. My brother's a few years older than me. He's about uh, six or seven years old. And back then, he must have been 12, and I must have been four or five years old. So uh, a few days later, my dad returned from the store, and uh, he took uh, Everything or Nothing with him. And my brother started to play, and he started to play, and as I was young, and I really looked up to my brothers, I really liked this game that they were playing. And uh, I got really involved because I saw this cool guy, and he was racing beautiful cars, and he was doing awesome things, and having all the girls, and I really liked the style that he got. I think one of my cl most clearest memories is the one racing with uh, Maya in the car, and he has the tie that he also wears in Goldeneye. For some reason, I really liked that suit with the tie. And a few minutes later, you even saw him in a bow tie when he's visiting Diablo. So for me as a little boy, it were all those small things that made James Bond to an awesome character. But because I was so young, I didn't even understand it was a, it was a fake character. It wasn't a real person. As I grew up, my brother actually had to tell me from, Gosse, you know he's not a real person, right? And I was like, oh no, oh my God, you have to be kidding. I mean, I really thought he was James Bond. For me, Pierce Brosnan was the guy. He was James Bond. Uh, in those days. So I got to play the game because my brother grew up and we all grew up, but I kept playing and I kept playing and I kept playing. And uh, during those years, and I believe I really was five, six, seven years old when I started playing, it just filled me with such happiness and joy because, as I just said, uh, you have such a cinematic universe with everything and nothing. You have Judy Dangers M, you got John Cleese's Q, and you got the Scotland MI6 uh, location. And as I got the Pierce Brosnan DVDs and VHSs, I saw those characters on the film screen and I also saw them in the game. And I think as a young boy, it really helps you to emerge into the world of the game. Together with the style, I think it sets a really good tone for a fan. And for me, that's why Everything or Nothing is such a great classic Bond game. Alright, thank you for that. Hoss Trent from the Netherlands. He's a writer for the JamesBond.nl website. You should check out his stuff. 
Now, as I mentioned before, there were two major releases in 2004. We've just covered everything or nothing, so I think it's time to get into the other major release, which was GoldenEye Rogue Agent. Now, as usual, I'm going to play the commercial for GoldenEye Rogue Agent. Fair warning, it has this high-pitched screeching sound. For those of you who remember the commercial, basically the Rogue Agent comes out of a building and uses his pistol to put a big scratch down what is presumably James Bond's Aston Martin DB5. So you might need to cover your ears for that scratch sound as he runs his gun down the DB5. But let's give a listen to the commercial for 2004's GoldenEye Rogue Agent. It's good to be bad in Bond's world. Golden Rogue Agent. Rated T for Teen. And there you have the commercial for Rogue Agent. It was published by EA. It was available on the PS2, the Xbox, the GameCube, and the Nintendo DS. It is a first-person shooter. And it is quite an interesting little game. An often overlooked James Bond game. Because you don't play as James Bond. You play an ex-MI6 agent who's hired by Goldfinger to assassinate Dr. No. If that doesn't grab you as a concept, I don't know what will. So it's an alternate timeline thing where you're in the darker, seedier underworld of espionage, sort of working for the bad guys. It also includes appearances from Pussy Galore, Scaramanga, Zenya on a Top, and Odd Job. And here to give us his thoughts and insights is Aaron Bossig from the Hungry Trilobite Podcast. GoldenEye Rogue Agent was released in 2004 and was released on all the major systems available at the time. And if you've heard anything about this game, it was almost certainly something negative. And that was not something that happened later on. That's not revisionist history. It happened almost immediately. And truthfully, my experience was that, yes, nobody liked the game, but the people who didn't like the game had never played the game or had only played it for about five minutes and then tossed it aside. I almost never got that response from people who had actually sat down and played it for a significant period of time. So it really seemed like it was a bandwagon hate. And I'm going to try to make some sense of that for a minute. This was not too long after GoldenEye for the N64, which was one of the biggest Bond games ever, if not the biggest Bond games. It was a beloved game. It was a classic on the system. It was the gold standard for Bond shooters. So the comparison was inevitable. And not only was the comparison inevitable, but you were comparing it with a game of the same name. So you really couldn't avoid people saying, this is less than this game because this game was the best thing ever. And whether GoldenEye for the N64 really was the best thing ever, another question for another day. But I really feel like people just weren't willing to look at GoldenEye Rogue Agent on its own. On its own, it's actually a solid, I would even say very good shooter. It was not revolutionary for the time. There was very little that was truly innovative or groundbreaking, but there's very little wrong with it. 
you really can't look at the game and say, this was a bad idea. This didn't work. This wasn't fun. I enjoyed this game to no end. So let's get into why. Let's look at how the game fits for a Bond fan, because that's really why we're here. I like the game's story a lot. I find it to be very fitting for the Bond universe, but it doesn't fit in. It's not part of the film canon. It's not part of the video game canon. It really stands on its own. And that's another area where I think it rubs people the wrong way. If you need it fits neatly in with everything else, I'm sorry you're looking in the wrong spot here. But let's look at what is here. In this game, you are playing an MI6 agent who is part of a failed mission, gets kicked out, and gets recruited into the Bond underworld. He ends up being tied in a war between Goldfinger and Dr. No starts to rise in almost like a mafia movie style rise to power, which I find to be a very fun premise and it is really cool to play with. So I like the idea, but as a Bond fan, I look at this and I wonder, I feel like the other shoe didn't drop. You are playing a character who is rising in the Bond underworld, looking to be the big boss. His gimmick is that he has lost an eye and has put in a cybernetic implant, which allows you special powers. So you are the big Bond villain, and you have a messed up eye. Just go the extra mile and say, this is Blofeld's origin story. Because everything else fits but that. Unfortunately, it's not quite that easy, because the game never quite says that. In fact, they actually reference Blofeld elsewhere in the story, so clearly it's not the same person. But when you get that close and you don't go the extra mile, to me, it feels like a missed opportunity. So for that reason, yeah, it's a little disappointing. If you view the Bond movies in a very strict continuity, it also doesn't work because there's various characters there who did not exist at the same time, either because one was killed at one point or the characters are just radically different ages. The game meshes them all together, so you really have to take a very loose view of history to make that make sense, which is unfortunate. Having said that, it does make for some really cool effects. Otherwise, you get to see Dr. No's palace in a much better visual than you saw in the movie. It's really impressive. You get to get a better look at Goldfinger's background, and you get to look at his operation. You do get to see a much more three-dimensional view of the Bond underworld than you would see in the movies. So if you're not happy with the way the story turned out, take a second and look at what's actually there. Because you are getting some treats that you don't get elsewhere. So where does this movie stand in the grand scheme of things? Well, there was never a direct sequel made to it. That disappoints me personally. But obviously a lot of people were happy with it just being a weird offshoot from the Bond games and leaving it at that. I would suggest, if you do like Bond, give this game a shot. Forget the name on the cover, just try to play it and see if you'll have a good time, because I think you probably will. That will close out the glorious two Bond game year of 2004. Now let's move right in to 2005. (laughs) 
2005 would see the release of one of the more popular games in the James Bond video game series, probably because of the return of Sean Connery. The game, of course, is from Russia with Love. From Russia with Love. From Russia with Love was produced by EA. It was available on the PS2, the Xbox, the GameCube, and the PSP. It is a third-person shooter, and Bruce Firestein does return once again to lend his hands to the writing of the story of From Russia with Love. It is based upon the film, but it is also expanded quite a bit. There's a lot more story beyond what is in the From Russia with Love film. But as I said before, most people were excited with the return of Sean Connery to the role of James Bond. So once again, those of you keeping track at home, we now have three of the six Bonds having their final appearance in a video game. Timothy Dalton in The Duel on the Sega Genesis. Pierce Brosnan, Everything or Nothing in 2004. And here in 2005, we have the last appearance of Sean Connery as James Bond reprising his role in From Russia with Love. As a side note, this would be EA's last James Bond 007 game. This is where their license ran out and they did not renew it. Now, usually I will play a trailer from the game, but this game has a bit more interesting bonus material on the disc where there's a lot of talk about how the game was made and some cool behind-the-scenes things. So before I get to our first interview, let's listen to some of that behind-the-scenes material that's included on the game. I think the idea of returning to the original 1960s Bond series was something that the team had talked about for a long time, the fans talked about, that we kept hearing people wanting to see. But it really came together this year when we were able to contact and talk to Sean Connery, and he agreed to be a part of it. I mean, once you get him on board and he's helping you out, I mean, that's the start of a great game. I'm absolutely thrilled to be playing James Bond again. May I help you? A dry martini. Shaken, not stout. Having Connery in the game has affected the game's design in the fighting style. He was more of a brawler. You know, he grabbed the characters and threw them to the ground. It'll be interesting to go back to the physicality of one-on-one. We've also used the way that he held the gun and, of course, what he wore. Which subconsciously tells you so much about a movie whenever you see it. In the game, we spent a lot of time making sure the characters came to life. Of course, it goes without saying that special attention was paid to getting Sean Connery just right. It's one of the best-looking digital characters you're going to find in a video game today. The eye's good. The mouth is good. In fact, this looks better than the original. Oh, I'm madly in love with him. There's a real excitement to going back to the roots of James Bond, going back to the early 60s. We're doing something that people thought they would never see, bringing back the original James Bond, Sean Connery. He hasn't been in a video game before. This is my debut. And it's the first time in years that he's played James Bond again. I don't think it's dated at all. To go back to the 60s, this will be something almost like starting all over again. Let's hear from Matt from Darlington. He's at Bond Maps on Twitter. Let's see what he has to say about From Russia with Love. 
yeah, From Russia With Love came out on the PlayStation. I remember reading a magazine review of this and getting super excited because this was the return of Sean Connery to Bond. You know, Connery lent his likeness and also did a lot of the voiceovers for the game. So this made it very, very unique in terms of the Bond video game genre. The game does follow uh, the movie quite closely, although there are additional scenes put in. Bond, for example, has the DB5 in Istanbul. He's driving around the certain missions to accomplish on that. And I remember that the game being not the most difficult game I've ever played and, and not being a particularly like massive sort of gamer, but really you know, does, does enjoy playing video games. It seemed like it was quite accessible for me in terms of, you know, with a bit of effort, you can complete all the levels and move on and, and progress and complete the game ultimately, which was very, very satisfying, firstly, for me, because, as I say, I'm not, not the biggest gamer in the world and I don't really have the time to spend hundreds of hours on these things, finding every uh, single uh, thing. You know, Connery's voice obviously isn't quite the same as it was in the early 60s, but, it, you know, it was pretty cool to be driving around and, and Sean Connery was doing the voiceover and following all the bits from the movie. Obviously, you've got, primarily, it's a sort of first-person game following Bond around the various scenes of the film, fighting the bad guys and so on, but there's also some driving parts as well. It was kind of unique because of the Connery's thing, but I wouldn't say it was the most spectacular game, and I've played much better games as well. But I think, you know, because it was James Bond, I'm a big Bond fan, having all the proper music in the background and hearing Connery's voice, it was good fun. Speaking of Connery's voice, an interesting side note to that game is that Sean Connery came in and did all of his voice recording for the game, and then, sadly, the sound engineer discovered they had lost all of it. So EA had to go back to Sean Connery the next day, sort of hat in hand, like, we lost all your audio. And being the nice guy that he was, he returned and redid it all again for free. So... That's a nice little story around 2005's From Russia With Love. And that will wrap up the year of 2005. And the James Bond games just keep rolling in this era because we're about to hit 2006. In 2006... Well, there was a fair amount of stuff going on in the James Bond film universe because it would see the introduction of Daniel Craig as James Bond in Casino Royale and bring the franchise once again boldly into the public eye. It would also see the release of two games. In 2006, we saw the release of two mobile phone games. Yes, we are still in that era of those mobile phone games and using those to sort of build up a new movie release. So 2006 saw the release of Casino Royale on the mobile phone and James Bond Trivia also on the mobile phone. Now, James Bond Trivia was a very simple game made by Sony on the mobile phone market. It was a simple quiz game made up of about 100 questions. Not much to it. Not much to say about James Bond Trivia other than that, a very basic trivia game available on your mobile phone. Now, 2006 also saw the release of Casino Royale, also made by Sony in the mobile phone market. This one was an action platformer, and it was definitely released to stir up interest in the 2006 release of Casino Royale. Now, if it's a mobile phone game, that can only mean one thing. Let's go to our boy, Luis, from Colombia, and find out a little bit about 2006 Casino Royale on the mobile phone. (music) 
And the last game of the mobile saga <laughs> was, for me at least, was Casino Royale. I really love that game. Taking into account that we have to wait for the release of Quantum of Solace to get a proper Casino Royale game in consoles, it was the only, I think in my opinion, the only Casino Royale video game experience we had for a long time. Well, the movie was fresh. I had a really good experience with the movie because I won a contest the TV channel made here in Latin America. So I saw the movie before many other people. And I had fond memories of this movie and this game. It's a platform-based game. I think the last time I saw something like that was uh, the Sega Genesis game. The Duel, I think, is the name of the game. I am not very familiar with that, that game now, but it's the first time I see Bond moving in platforms, shooting, using gadgets. The extension of the game, I remember the game was very long, actually. It was enticing and it rewarded you for stealth uh, activities. It was well conceived. It was a really, really good game. I enjoyed it. I think it could have been a really good game for the Game Boy Advance or probably the earliest Nintendo DS games. It was really, really good. Of course, we got DS games uh, later for the James Bond saga. But, but in general, the Casino Royale was really good. Obviously, I had to erase many things because it was bigger in size. The file size was bigger than the other games, but it was the most pleasant mobile experience I remember. Of course, Hover Chase was good. <laughs> the difference from Hover Chase to the Casino Royale one was abysmal. Was, <laughs> it, was, it shows the, the advance of technology between those years. I work with technology. I work with education and technology. And like three years ago, I think, four years ago, we did this kind of uh, IT museum, information technology museum. And I got to bring my, my old V3 phone. I purchased a battery, an aftermarket battery, but it didn't work so well. But I could at least turn the phone on. And I saw the Casino Royale game there, still there. So it was like bringing back memories from those years. It was uh, something very special to me. Once again, sincere thanks to Luis from Colombia for his insights into those obscure games. Thank goodness he's played all of them. And that is going to round out 2006. So now let's look forward to 2007. Two thousand and seven would be that off year between James Bond films. As we await Quantum of Solace, we had but one game to play, but it's a step out from what we might consider a standard James Bond adventure. Two thousand seven would give us a web-based game called Avenue of Death. Avenue of Death was created by Tamba, and like I said, it's a web-based game, Java-based game. You're probably familiar with all those sort of very simple Java-based games that you can play online. Why is this one a little bit different? Because this is the first of the Young Bond tie-in games. The Young Bond book series was now gaining in popularity, written by Charlie Higson, and Avenue of Death 
was linked to Hurricane Gold by Mr. Higson. So this kind of web-based game was not mass-produced. You basically had to go to their website, and then you could play sort of this simple Java game there. But we still thought it was worth a mention since it's sort of a unique James Bond thing. And oh, by the way, it won't be the only one of these web-based Java games based around the Young Bond tie-in books. But with a little more insight into 2007's Avenue of Death, let's, you guessed it, (laughs) hear from our old friend Luis, because he's played this one too. I was looking forward to the release of the Young Bond books. I remember that when they were releasing uh, Avenue of Death, they have this kind of flash game on the website. The website, I remember, it was marvelous. It was wonderful because the setting of the website was like a desk with objects, and there was not a clear menu that you have to click now you have to explore all the environment of the website. So they translate that into the game. Unfortunately, I couldn't play the game that much. Maybe because I think I, at the time I was finishing uh, my university, I think I, I didn't have enough time to play, which is sacrilege to me. But yeah, I, I remember playing like twice or three times. It's the kind of game that you can expect in the Flash era with this kind of cartoonish designs. Obviously, they were based on the artwork designed for the covers and in general, the different elements, as I said before, the website had this kind of in-universe. So most of the artwork was uniform and it was really good. And I remember that it was like a chaser. The name of the book is Avenue of Death and uh, the challenge was to point from point A to point B, avoiding obstacles. I also think that probably I didn't play more than that twice or three times because I think it was a little bit frustrating <laughs> because I think that it wasn't that that easy. And obviously, sometimes the controls in these Flash games were not the best. I think that we are all familiar with these kind of games in the earlier 2000s that were eye-catching, but at the time of controlling were a little bit difficult to handle. So that was my experience with Avenue of Death. Thank you again, Louise. I believe we're going to hear from Louise one more time in this episode. But that's going to close up 2007. We're going to move into 2008. Two thousand eight would, of course, be the debut of Daniel Craig's second James Bond film, Quantum of Solace, and it would lead to not one, not two, but three more James Bond video games for us to discuss. Three games come out in two thousand and eight. We get to chat a little bit about another mobile game, and I bet you know that's where Louise comes in, and that's going to be James Bond Top Agent. There's also another web-based game called Shadow War. And then, of course, there's the official big release of the actual Quantum of Solace game. But let's start with the aforementioned James Bond Top Agent. 
James Bond Top Agent was made by Sony. It was made for your mobile devices, and it was sort of a turn-based fighting style game. If you remember back into these early 2000s, there was an agreement between the Bond production team and Sony Ericsson, and they had a deal together. So if you bought the Sony Ericsson C902 phone back in 2008, it came preloaded with James Bond Top Agent. And of course, here to tell us a little bit more about it is Louise for his final appearance on this episode. Because you know if it's mobile or if it's obscure, we can count on Louise. So let's hear what he has to say about James Bond Top Agent. I was looking for some spy games on my new iPod Touch back then, new. (laughs) So... I found some really good games from Gameloft that had this kind of 3D person perspective. They were really nice. Assassin's Creed and all this stuff. And I found that there was some game from 2008, 2009 on iOS. It was 007 Top Agent by Sony. I am pretty sure this, this game was created for promotional purposes, considering that was the year Quantum of Solace was released. It involves different elements of the Bond saga, and I really liked the aesthetics of the game, but it's not a third-person shooter, not first-person shooter. It's a very, very different game. It's similar in the way James Bond 007 for Game Boy was totally different from what people expected. That one was a kind of Zelda-style game, and this one was like rock, scissors, paper game in which you had to use gadgets and weapons in turn-based combats in order to advance the stories. So it was really interesting, a fresh take on the character and the games, something totally unexpected. I was very happy to find this. Also, the music had the Bond theme around. Some mobile games of the era didn't use the music, the Bond theme, so often they they created generic music or generic action music for these kind of devices. So it was really nice, but obviously they give an extra touch with other tunes and other music to fit this kind of, yes, kids game. It's not, it's it's very kid-friendly game. Also, there are some um, elements of violence and weapons and destruction, but in general, it's more like cartoonish rather than real-life Simulation. It's something that is very, very weird. But in general, I enjoyed the game. I got it, as I said before, on my iPod Touch. Unfortunately, it's not available any longer because it was created on the previous architecture for iOS devices. But I know that probably you could find some uh, version for Android devices. Actually, it was released originally for Android devices. And yes, now I remember. I remember it came preloaded on the Quantum of Solace tie-in phone from Sony Ericsson. I remember that now. So it was originally released on Android for the Quantum of Solace promotional campaign, and then it was released on iOS for probably the video, the home video release. I experienced the iOS version. Ironically, I used to have uh, Android phones back then, and it was on my only Apple device at the time. But I never look for the original Android (laughs) version of the game. (laughs) Anyway, it was really good. It was fun. I think there are four stories. I don't remember exactly. I remember that 
Joe's appears and I think odd job, but I remember there is something with Die Another Day and Goldfinger. I am not pretty sure. But in total, there were like four missions. And I was researching a little bit before I came to this, <laughs> to this session. And my research was basically having the, <laughs> the app checked on the App Store again. <laughs> and it says the current version, the one that is um, well available on older devices, is 2.0. So it means that there was only one update after the app or the game was released. So it was a pretty finished product when it was released, something that is not very common these days. You know, they release something and they try to add more content later. And in this case, the game was complete from the first day and probably the, the next update just brought some kind of bug correction and fixing some issues. Well, I have to say that I didn't beat the game <laughs> because it was interesting. It was a cool take on the character and the franchise. As I said before, there were some cartoonish villains and some cheesy dialogue. I remember particularly in the tutorial section, the Ghetto Blaster from uh, The Living Daylights, I think, is uh, where Q shows uh, Timothy Dalton's Bond, the, the Ghetto Blaster, and he's very excited. So you get to use this Ghetto Blaster against a mannequin who's uh, been your sparring in this session of the opening of the game. But with time, the sequences get too repetitive. Even though the art, the background changes according to the story, the actions tend to be repetitive. Also, you have to plan the, the use of the gadgets and the weapons because there are some with vanuses, there are some that are impaired because of certain environmental things or some counters that we can find in the enemies. But in general, it's a, it's a funny game. It's an interesting take on the character, on the game. The way as the games were trying to create this uh, awareness of the character to create this new welcome to this era, you know, that they started with Casino Royale. So it was really good to see how Sony tried to use mobile games to promote this new era with Daniel Craig. And they tried to continue with other apps and other games. So basically the Daniel Craig era is the mobile game era for good or for bad. <laughs> He's been present in our mobile phones since 2008, when there were actually not very smart yet <laughs> phones. But it has been really good to see how it, things have evolved and changed. Unfortunately, that was just at the beginning of his tenure as W7. But now we see that uh, the mobile gaming division <laughs> or line of business has been abandoned in favor for other ventures. even very good console like the Nintendo 3DS or the PS Vita never had a James Bond game. It has been left behind in a way. But in general, I enjoyed these games. It was really good to have this kind of interest and, and products. I don't remember actually, and I would like to, <laughs> if uh, Top Agent was a paid game. I don't remember if it was paid or not. It was preloaded on some Android devices, the, the, the Sony Ericsson devices, that were tied into the movie to Quantum of Solace. But I don't remember if I paid for, for the top agent game on iOS or it was free just to promote the home video release of Quantum of Solace. If it was free, <laughs> fantastic. 
because we got a free bond game with four different stories with some kind of repetitive <laughs> mechanics, but in general, good. Long gone are those days when we get free games in the James Bond universe. That's something that is remarkable and it's really good. It would be really nice to have this kind of initiatives come back, but I won't hold my breath for it. <laughs> All right, our final thank you to Louise. He gives us the insights on all those hard-to-find games. But unfortunately, one of the more obscure hard-to-find games that came out also in 2008 was The Shadow War. This is another one of those web-based Java games based on the Young Bond books by Charlie Higson. It was made by Six to Start, and it's more of a point-and-click sort of alternate reality game. And unfortunately, when it comes to both this game and the aforementioned of Avenue of Death, those websites are no longer in service. So there's really no way to play Avenue of Death or Shadow War at this time unless someone sort of revives those sites or finds the code and does that. But we at least thought it bared mentioning that there was a second Young Bond game available to play web-based back in 2008. Having said that, let's get to the major release of 2008, which is, of course, Quantum of Solace. There are some at MI6 who think I can't trust you. That you're blinded by inconsolable rage. And motivated by revenge. But your motivation isn't my only concern. What concerns me... ...are your methods. Quantum of Solace was made by Activision. Activision has now officially taken over the James Bond video game license from EA. And they went all in on Quantum of Solace for it was available on PlayStation 2, PlayStation 3, Xbox 360, the Wii, the PC, and the Nintendo DS. It's a first-person shooter for the most part. If you had it on the PS2 or the DS, then it was a third-person shooter. And it actually combines the Casino Royale and Quantum of Solace movies into one game. So it's pretty cool in that regard that Casino Royale never really got a big video game release. But if you play Quantum of Solace, you play several of the moments and levels from Casino Royale. So they're well mixed in together. It was a very Call of Duty influence style game. Any gamers who've played Call of Duty will immediately feel the same mechanics used in Quantum of Solace. And here's the cool part. It pretty much features the entire cast of Casino Royale and Quantum of Solace for the voice acting. So Activision came out swinging with their first one. One of my personal favorite things about the Quantum of Solace video game is if you remember in Quantum of Solace when they're using the sort of tabletop computer, it has an aesthetic to it that's interesting and memorable. For the majority of the releases of Quantum of Solace, the video game, the main menus and all that have that same exact aesthetic as the computer that's shown in the movie. And I thought that was a real neat detail for them to nail down. And I really appreciated that. 
And one final interesting tidbit before we get to our interview. Quantum of Solace, the video game, had its own theme song. And it's not the same theme song that was used in the Quantum of Solace film. The video game features a song called Nobody Loves You by Carly, and it's a little divisive because out there in the Bond community, some people actually like the theme song to the video game better than the theme song to the film. But you know what? I'm going to play it and you decide. Loves You by Carly. Do you like it better than Another Way to Die? Hmm, that's up to you. I'm a big fan of that Carly song, so it's pretty tempting. But enough of my thoughts. Let's get to the thoughts of a listener of the show. We have Chris from Instagram's British Bond Addict. At that point, my focus on video games had kind of been going towards Nintendo for a little bit. I've been having kind of a renaissance. And I had Nintendo Wii and I didn't have any shooting games. I was kind of getting an urge for one. I uh, had all the PS2 games, of course, but, you know, when you're mid-teenagers, if it's like, oh, two or three years old, God, who wants to do anything about that? So Quantum of Solace came out in 2008 and there was, the course, the video game tie-in that went along with it. And I picked it up. I went down to the shop after work. I finished um, at the hotel, went down, 
spent my hard-earned cash, picked it up, went home. My parents were out, which was fantastic, so I had the entire afternoon to play it. I sat down, and the first thing I remember is quite a basic menu screen. Um, nothing stands out too much, but then some really impressive graphics of for a cutscene. And I'd recently got a Wii, and I was trying to defend it from my friends who picked up Xbox 360s going, no, the graphics aren't too bad, and look, you can do motion control with your hands. It's fantastic. And the cutscene turned up, and I was like, wow, the graphics for this must be a met. This is incredible. Hello? Mr. White? Yes, who's this? I later realised it was a compressed version of the PS3 graphics, but don't tell younger me about that. Then the game kicked off, and it then suddenly took a nosedive in terms of graphical quality, but it hooked me. Again, as most Bond games just seem to for some reason, I was actually quite into it. The Bond music starts blaring, you start off as Daniel Craig, you're in uh, White's Garden... And it actually gives you quite a nice idea of how Casino Royale ends and the bit before Quantum of Solace's car chase. So you run around the gardens, you go through the boats, there's the classic explosions, there's my favourite gimmick in a Bond game where you shoot somebody on a building, they fall down and open up a new path for you into a cellar, which is superb. Everything starts exploding, huge dramatic finish. But then the bit that really sold me is White's trying to uh, crawl away out of a helicopter and you're doing this whole nice James Bond cool monologue. And all of a sudden, a bad guy out of the corner of your eye points his gun. And Craig's rather janky model turns, shoots, and it does this this kind of gun barrel effect, like the beginning of Casino Royale. I think we should go somewhere a little more quiet. And at that bit, I was like, wow, this this is Bond games in the next generation. I love it. Then the game kind of took a slow bit for a while. Sienna level was quite good. Then the opera level was quite fun, quite sneaky. I always particularly love stealth in Bond games. That's always been a real thing that like sticks out to me because most first-person shooters, third-person shooters don't have an element like that. And if they do, it's kind of just a gimmick. And the airport level did that beautifully, had some great, great moments. But then it kind of became a bit flat, a bit samey. I was getting a bit sort of, oh, this is all quite repetitive. And then it kind of flashed back into Casino Royale, which at the time was one of my favourite Bond films. Still definitely up there. I had no idea that was happening whatsoever. I'd read no reviews, and it was possibly the greatest surprise I think I've had in a modern video game. One of the best surprises I had for a while back then, because all of a sudden, I'm doing that awesome parkour scene at the beginning of Casino Royale, and I'm thinking, wow, this is this is a great flashback to have this one level. And then it just goes through the entire game. I was thrilled. I was like, wow, two games for the price of one. What a win. And as a result, it made the other parts of the game seem better. (laughs) I don't know how artificial that is of me or how shallow it makes me seem, but it made the whole game better just for having that aspect. And it's clearly, for me, the standout part of the game. It's the bit I revisited most. I was still at the stage where if it's a game I liked, I just went back and played it over and over and over, tried to get better. But it also introduced me to online gaming for the first time. Now, I know the Wii isn't exactly remembered as a competitive console, but there were still people playing games online back then. And to go around these mildly Bond-themed maps was fantastic. I think it was done better in games like Bloodstone and games on different consoles, but it was still enough to make that game stand out to me again. As a result, I played the game for hours. Like I'd always practice after I got home from school or home from work i practice on the individual levels. Then I'd go online for an hour, see how I did, go back and practice again, assuming it made some sort of a difference, but they're not at all correlating whatsoever. And yeah, as a result, it's just one of my regular Wii library for a very long time. Everyone kind of cites the controls saying, oh, how can you do shooting on a, um, a Wii game? 
But actually, when you get used to it, it kind of adds a real level of immersion to an extent because it's not just holding a trigger button, it aims for you, you fire. You actually feel like you're making the movements, strangely. Of course, what you see on screen and what you're doing in person is two very different actions. And I'm not going to lie, the aiming down the sights on a Wii didn't really work too well. It would have been better if the camera zoomed in slightly like it did in the old-fashioned games game, Goldeneye, for example. But as a result, as an overall package, I really enjoyed it. And when I revisited it on the higher, well, sorry, the higher end console, shall we say, a couple of years later, I was actually quite disappointed that it didn't have something of the charm that the Wii game had. Absolutely loved it, played it to death, and <laughs> I'm probably going to revisit it now after this conversation. <laughs> Thank you for that, Chris. And ladies and gentlemen out there in podcast listening land, we have reached the end of disc three of this series. The Digital 007, a look back at James Bond in video games. Because 2009 didn't have any James Bond video game releases. But this certainly was an interesting time between 2000 and all the way up to 2009. Because as you heard, there was a ton of mobile games. And while mobile games aren't quite done with James Bond yet, there's only going to be a couple of more to come. And they definitely had their heyday in this 2000 to 2009 era. And of course, this is where we see the departure of both Pierce Brosnan and Sean Connery in their final roles as James Bond, and they just both happen to be in video games. So definitely an interesting era, 2000 to 2009. Of course, I want to thank the folks who made this episode possible. They include Joe Slepsky, Joe November, of course, Michael from Urbana, Eric from Philly, Bernsey NYY from YouTube, our old friend Frank McNeely, Caleb Smith, who could forget Luis from Ibagué, Colombia, Zach and Wynn, Hostrent, Aaron Bossig from the Hungry Trilobite Podcast, Matt from Darlington, who's at Bond Maps, and Chris, who is at British Bond Addict. We appreciate you guys contributing to our journey. I, of course, am Jared Albrecht, the yard sale artist, and I'm happy to be doing this series for the On Her Majesty's Secret Podcast Network. Thanks for listening. I'll see you back here for the fourth and final volume of The Digital 007, a look back at James Bond and video games. And as I always do, I will leave you with the original music that was composed just for this audio documentary series by our old friend Joe November. Here is his track, Smirsh, LOL, some James Bond music with a video game flavor. And I'll play the whole track as we leave this disc, and I'll see you on the next one.
listening to the on her majesty's secret podcast production of the digital 007 a look back at james bond in video games Disc 4, 2010 to 2020. Hello and welcome to the Digital 007. A look back at James Bond in video games, of course, brought to you by On Her Majesty's Secret Podcast and our fine Patreon sponsors. I'm Jared Albrecht, the yard sale artist, a.k.a. Death Probe, and I will be taking you through this journey through the decades to look at all the various incarnations of James Bond in video games. Let me tell you how this is generally going to work. I will give you some basic information on each game, and we're more interested in hearing from people who have played the games along the way. So wherever possible, I was out there hitting those internets, finding our listeners, our friends, people who rally around the show over at Twitter at OHMSPod, and I'm catching these folks and I'm talking to them about their James Bond video game experiences. So there's going to be a lot of that thrown in here. We're really just going to be looking at the fun facts, going through the timeline, and getting those interesting experiences from our very listeners. This has been an absolute blast to put together, so let me not waste any more time and get straight to our first game. Welcome to 2010. Two thousand and ten would be another excellent year for James Bond in video games because there's not just one, but two top-tier titles released in two thousand and ten. The first one we're going to look at is Bloodstone. Bloodstone was one of those games that had its own theme song. The title song was called I'll Take It All. It was by Joss Stone. So let's give that a listen and then we'll come back with some fun facts and roll into our first interview. Is 
Joss Stone, I'll take it all from Bloodstone. Bloodstone was made by Activision. It was available on the PS3, the Xbox 360, the PC, and it did get a Nintendo DS version. Of course, it's slightly different on the DS, but we're going to stick with the main versions that were available on PS3, Xbox 360, and PC. They were third-person shooter games, and this is often compared to everything or nothing, because much like Pierce Brosnan got his own storyline game with his own voice and a voice of Judy Dench, 
with everything or nothing. This is Daniel Craig's version of that. Because Bloodstone features Daniel Craig doing the voice of James Bond, Judy Dench doing the voice of M, and a completely original James Bond story. So it's a complete standalone adventure that you can play as the Daniel Craig 007. And with that, let's get into our first interview. Let's talk to Mike Reyes and his experience with Bloodstone. Now, my Bloodstone experience, I'm trying to remember. It was either one of two things because it's just, you know, the two basic ways a person gets their James Bond video games. Either I bought it when it came out on release in 2010 or I might have gotten it as a birthday Christmas gift because my family knows how much I enjoy the Bond series. I got it from my dad. You know, he uh, he snuck a friend and I in the Golden Eye in the theaters after we saw Toy Story. My friend and I were like, eh, we're going to go play the PlayStation in the lobby. And then as luck would have it, Golden Eye 64 comes out. And I'm like, wait, this is the movie that my dad wanted to go see? So that's, you know, you already got someone to do the Golden Eye 64 story. You're not here for that. You are here for Bloodstone. And Bloodstone is another one. I honestly have not had too large of a bone to pick with a James Bond game at all. Like 007 Legends, even there's issues, there's things. And it also has the same sort of problem that GoldenEye 007 Reloaded had, as in you're dropping Daniel Craig into these classic stories. But even then it's like, I'm playing a James Bond video game. As long as it works and doesn't glitch out on me, I can play this thing to the end which is funny because unfortunately i haven't finished bloodstone yet but i do remember really liking it for the sheer reason that it felt like the first time since quantum of solace that there was a full cinematic james bond experience in a video game and to connect to something earlier it felt like another everything or nothing this is like the lost Daniel Craig, James Bond movie, like everything or nothing was Pierce Brosnan's lost Bond movie and the production values there. I mean, you've got this really awesome story. You've got Daniel Craig and Dame Judi Dench reprising their characters. You cast actual actors in this. You have Josh Stone doing a really cool title track with I'll Take It. I believe it's called I'll Take It All. Yeah, like you you have the title sequence, the song, the pre-credit play, and the mechanics are just pure bond i mean james bond games at their best are fully embodying the experience because this is a character that people have had in their lives for now up to almost six decades and if there's any way that you can transport someone into that world more effectively than than watching a film then it's going to be exciting i haven't had too big of an issue with any james bond game because it's getting more familiar with this character. It's getting to pretend, you know, you're taking cover and driving an Aston Martin with really cool devices or you're taking pictures of an enemy yacht. And another thing about Bloodstone is it, from what I remember of it, it had this very timely story. It didn't feel like a specter caper. It was something very much more grounded and it still felt in the earlier era of Craig films to the point where you look at the cover art I think that's a shot from Quantum of Solace because that's what it looks like. It looks like the jacket that he has on towards the end. And that might even be him pointing his gun at Dominic Green telling him to drink motor oil. That is what I think of when I see the packaging. And when I think of the game is just, it was hard bond versus everything or nothing was a little more 
fantastical and nothing wrong with that because that was the era of Bond we were in. And even though they grounded it to a certain extent, you have like a little Q spider and, you know, all the cool laser gadgets. Bloodstone is this thing where it's very much just running through graveyards, hiding behind stones and taking shots when you can and just following the mission. It's still refreshing to see James Bond told in that context. And it feels like we're sort of moving more towards a little bit more of the fantastical. We are getting more specter focused. Again, not necessarily a bad thing, but this was definitely one of those symptoms of the huge course correct that we had with the Craig era. And that's part of what I'm what I'm going to miss about Daniel Craig not being in there anymore. It's what I miss about not having any more Bond games. I mean, we haven't had a Bond game since 007 Legends. And yeah, Project 007 is coming from IO Interactive, which I'm excited because you've got the guys doing Hitman, doing a Bond game. And I feel that'll land closer to Bloodstone than Legends because it's going to be more grounded. We're going to have a new protagonist. If they really want to get crazy with it, they could do a period piece where it's you in the 60s being Bond or even present day. But Bloodstone, I think, is one of the better modern James Bond games for the sheer fact that it does treat things seriously. And plus, it was made by Activision during the height of their Call of Duty days. I wouldn't be surprised if they may have just ported that engine over. Part of me still wishes Activision had the license because then they could do like a Bond Battle Royale or maybe even just reskin something in Warzone right now because they've done it with other characters, but they don't have the rights anymore. That's something that also is concerning because we lose so much of video game history that if I didn't have this on my shelf right now, I don't know how easy it would be to get it. You have a whole level of 007 Legends that's missing technically because you have to buy the Wii U version to have the Skyfall bonus level. Thankfully, Bloodstone has none of those problems. It's just the thing that does most upset me you land that cliffhanger at the very end where like Bond is confronting, you know, the, the, the realities of the ending. And then that car blows up on the bridge and it's supposed to be another part. And the developers had that other part planned out, but they went bankrupt. They went bankrupt because of this and because of another game that they had, which I also love called Blur. Fantastic racing game. It was Bizarre Creations and Raven Software and Bizarre Creations closed down they had like a prototype build a blur to they had their plans for bloodstone and it's like okay can we at least give that over to like a writer or something and get that follow-up and one last thing that i just thought about and i'll i'll sort of end it on that you had bruce farstein writing this game the man wrote tomorrow never dies co-wrote tomorrow never dies and world is not enough and also Surprise, surprise, worked on Everything or Nothing and From Russia with Love and the Gold and the Goldeneye remake. He worked in the world of games coming from the world of movies. That is one of the coolest things that sort of started to happen at this point in video game history. You started to see orchestral soundtracks. You saw composers like Michael Giacchino making his dent in the world by doing game soundtracks. And then you had like these full instrumental things that it just started amping up the theatricality of games bloodstone 007 is that crossroad of games and movies that just whenever you land it that way i'm i'm there for it And 
that will bring us to the next game of 2010. Again, 2010 finds us in that no man's land between films. Quantum of Solace had come out already, and it would still be a couple of years before we got Skyfall. So certainly you could play Bloodstone for that new Bond adventure while you were waiting. But guess what? 2010 gives you another offering. 2010 would mark the relaunch of a classic game. They'd give another shot to Goldeneye. Bond. Everyone has something special on their wish list this year. Perhaps it's a new toy? Fantastic getaway. Quality time with friends. Or maybe a little tooth polish. GoldenEye 007 Reloaded. Rated T for teen. GoldenEye also had a remix and redo of its theme song. Nicole Scherzinger does her version of GoldenEye. It's a tough act to follow on Tina Turner, but I think Nicole does a decent job of it. Let's listen to her version from the GoldenEye 2010 video game. See reflections on the In the depths See him surface And never a shadow GoldenEye 2010 was available on the Wii, the PS3, the Xbox 360, and it also got a Nintendo DS release, and as usual, we're going to focus on the main console versions. This was a first-person shooter, much like the original GoldenEye from 1997. GoldenEye was originally released on the Wii, and then it was retitled to GoldenEye Reloaded when it was released later on on the PS3 and 360. Bruce Firestein returns once again to write a quasi-original story. It is based on Goldeneye, but it has some new story elements as well. And just to get your head spinning, the voice work is once again Daniel Craig and Judy Dench-centric. So you're basically playing a Daniel Craig Bond playing through the Goldeneye storyline 
as reimagined by Bruce Feierstein. And here to talk a little bit more about it is Becca from the Do You Expect Us to Talk podcast. fondest memories of gaming on the Wii become with um, Goldeneye. Again, not very good. I'm certainly not very good at video games, but I just have a good time. I, I enjoy the experience. Whether or not I get high score is irrelevant, but I just have a good time. I'm a big sucker for like really gorgeous graphics as well, so I really enjoy quite nice graphics. But yeah, I had good fun mainly with the Goldeneye, um, obviously working through the missions, using stealth, using all the gadgets. I think it was incredible. And having that chance to kind of play as Bond, you know, I'm sure we all enjoyed that. But for me, uh, my high point would be the multiplayer mode. You just join like a melee battle or like capture the flag or, you know, various kind of stealth games that you could play via multiplayer. I mean, I generally always died, but I had a good fun doing it. And you can use different accessories as well, sort of like a light gun or the nunchucks, for example, you play in different ways. Yeah, the best thing to, you know, the, the GoldenEye game, obviously from N64 that we had for, for that current generation. I really enjoyed that. I don't think I bought a new because I was part-time working at the time. So it was secondhand. So there might have been a few bugs, a few glitches. I still had a really good time with it. And for me, in terms of my experience of Bond gaming, that's one that kind of sticks with me the most. I'd love to see a port on the Switch. I don't think it's going to happen with the way that Eon are going at the moment. I would love to. So Barbara Michael, if you're listening, please get on it. Bond fans around the world, implore you, crack on, please. We'd love to see a port of it. Or even if they were to release a you know N64 Mini, as we have seen with you know, this, you know SNES, SNES and other Sega consoles as well. So that would be amazing. But for, yeah, say for me, that's really my happiest on gaming memory. And yeah, I would love to play that again. And we always appreciate Becca from the Do You Expect Us to Talk podcast for stopping by. And that is going to be the end of 2010. Up next, 2011. Two thousand eleven would only produce one James Bond game, and it's one of the more obscure games. It's called 007 License to Drive. It was developed by Glue Mobile and it was a Java-based game available for mobile devices. It was a top-down vehicle adventure very similar to the classic Spy Hunter type of games are some of the games that they released when Domark had the James Bond license. Fun little top-down scrolling game, but so obscure that no matter how far and wide I searched the internets, I couldn't find anybody who played it. Even Louise from Ibagay, Colombia didn't have this one in his repertoire, but I guarantee you we're going to hear from him on this episode because he's a fan favorite. But yes, 007 License to Drive ended up being fairly obscure because... It was a Java-based game for mobile phones, and by 2011, the market for phone games was very, very much being driven by the Apple iOS games and the Android-based games. So 007 License to Drive really got lost in the shuffle, and very, very few people ever played it. But again, very similar to the classic Spy Hunter game where you would drive a car in a scrolling top-down view which would also become a speedboat or a jet ski or a helicopter, depending on what your missions were. Pretty cool looking game, but unfortunately into obscurity. 
And that's it for 2011. Next up is 2012. ladies and gentlemen, is going to be a very interesting year for James Bond video games because 2012 marks the 50th anniversary of the debut of Dr. No, 50th anniversary of the film franchise. 2012 would also see the release of the much-anticipated and highly acclaimed Skyfall film. And not to rest on their laurels, Eon Productions and the James Bond folks Definitely, we're ready to capitalize on the 50th anniversary as they release 007 Legends. 007 Legends is a very ambitious game, and it's controversial in gaming circles. Some Bond fans really enjoy it, some Bond fans not so much. Most of the controversy stems from the fact that you play through various levels of the game, which include moments from Goldfinger, On Her Majesty's Secret Service, License to Kill, Die Another Day, and Moonraker. And each time you play through those levels, you're playing through as James Bond, but the Daniel Craig James Bond playing through those scenarios. And a lot of gamers just couldn't wrap their heads around Daniel Craig and all those scenarios. Personally, I rather enjoyed it and thought it was creative. The way the game starts off, you are Daniel Craig on the top of that train at the beginning of Skyfall. Money Penny takes the shot. And as he's falling to his quote-unquote death, his life is flashing before his eyes, and that's why you play through all those various scenarios. So, yes, the James Bond universe is continuity weird, but I thought it was cool and creative, but hey, there's other people that didn't like it as much. Before we get started on the interviews, though, let's give a listen to the trailer for this game. for the last time, Mr. Bond. Now that we've heard the trailer audio for 007 Legends, Let's take a minute to listen to the theme music. Now, this one doesn't have an actual theme song, but they did go out of their way to get David Arnold involved in the soundtrack. So this is the main theme as put together by David Arnold. (laughs) 
Oh, that's good stuff. David Arnold music is always, always welcome here on the show. Well, at this point, we need to get into the nuts and bolts of this game. So let me give you some of the information on 007 Legends. This would be the last game put out by Activision. Their time with the James Bond license has come to an end. 007 Legends would be available on PS3, Xbox 360, the PC, and the Wii U. It is a first-person shooter, and once again, Bruce Firestein returns to pin the script. As mentioned earlier, this is the 50th anniversary of the film James Bond, and so they wanted to bring in all those different aspects, the different films, into the game. Interestingly enough, their formula has one film per actor, featuring Goldfinger for Connery, Honor Majesty's Secret Service for Lazenby, Moonraker for Moore, License to Kill for Dalton, and Die Another Day for Brosnan. But again, all of them are done through the Daniel Craig 007. It's his voice. It is his likeness. Other voices contributing to this game, more big name talent. We have Judy Dench coming back as M. Toby Stevens reprising his role from Die Another Day. Naomi Harris as Ms. Moneypenny. And Michael Lonsdale returns to do the voice of Drax. And speaking of which... I found an interview with Michael Lonsdale about his experience with 007 Legends. He speaks in French throughout the interview, but I had the translation read by our network's very own Delvin the Dark Web Williams. Let's give a listen to that interview. It's you, but without being you, a you, but different. It's almost like having a double. It's amusing. It's amusing. It's a much more realistic approach to things. The destruction is based in truth. There is a sleeping child hidden in every adult. I remember my father buying an electric train, and he would tell me to watch whilst he played. I wasn't very happy. It's amazing for adults to rediscover their childhood, one of the wonders of life. Films are like dreams. Reality isn't as fascinating. What is fascinating is everything the film brings to people. In that chase sequence where Bond kills who knows how many people, it's good. It helps people release stress. Afterwards, they're calm. We all have childhood heroes that we know, deep down inside, are indestructible. Bond is an iconic hero. Whatever he does, he'll always win. So there you have it. Michael Lonsdale Drax himself talking about his experience on 007 Legends. One final add-on, if you want the best version of the game, as I mentioned, it's available on PS3, Xbox 360, the PC, and the Wii U, I would seek out the Wii U version. It has the Skyfall level on it that was not available on the others except by downloadable content. And since that content is no longer available online, the only way to get the additional Skyfall level is to get the Wii U version. 
So, whether or not you like the concept of Daniel Craig playing through the James Bond history, if you will, replacing the older actors, well, that's up to you. But I tell you, someone who had a real unique experience with this game is a gentleman I'm so glad he came forward to be interviewed for this documentary podcast. Carrie Edwards has an interesting tale to tell, and he's a little more involved, a little more deeply involved with 007 Legends than your average gamer. Let's give him a listen and find out why. So my story with 007 Legends starts in 2012, cruising the internet movie sites, just looking for news of the next Bond film and stuff, and then suddenly there's this 007 Legends game. There's a new James Bond video game, which is cool. It was quite a good time for James Bond video games. We've had some good ones. It was the same developer, I think, Eurocom, who had just done the GoldenEye reboot. So this was looking good, and I found myself on the official website. I was looking around, and there were screenshots of Moonraker. And that this video game, it's a, it's a kind of a weird video game, 007 Legends, because it's a Daniel Craig James Bond game. But it tries to fit the original continuity into Daniel Craig's Bond which I'll talk about more later because it kind of doesn't work, even though sometimes it's kind of interesting. But the Moonraker shots look really, really good. They had the face of Michael Lonsdale, and he actually does the voice in the game. They've got Richard Keel, Mutes, of course, playing Jaws, but his face is there. And they even had Lois Childs, although she doesn't turn up in the game, but it looked fab. And I'm clicking around this website, getting really excited, and there's a competition. And the competition is basically upload a photograph with a idea for a Bond villain, and if you win, you get digitized into the game. So I'm looking at this thinking, well, why not? And I, I'm very fortunate that I have a, a wife who is a terrific photographer, and she'd done a picture of me probably a couple of years before that looked like the poster to Straw Dogs, the Sam Peckinpah film from 1971 with Dustin Hoffman with the cracked glasses. And so I had that ready, and I thought, okay, that looks kind of cool. So I wrote a quick biography for a villain. I stole the surname off a notice board in university 20-odd years ago, I saw this name, this surname, Killfeather. And you know, Ian Fleming like, used to steal names from everywhere, didn't he? He would just steal anybody's name. And so I, I saw this in probably 1997, and it was in the back of my head, and I said, okay, there's my villain's name. And I can't remember what I wrote. I don't have it anymore. But I just put it in late at night, thinking this will do nothing. And then, I don't know, a month later, I got an email saying, you won. So two guys won. I won in the UK, and another guy won in America, and we were digitized into different levels. The American winner got on a Majesty's Secret Service. I got into Moonraker. So some emails came back and forth. My wife took me into a photo studio, put black dots all over my face so they could track it, took some profile shots, head-on shots, whatever, sent it off. And then that's it until a couple of months later. And we're getting close to the October 2012 release of the game. And I get some photo shots from the game, which are both brilliant and weird because that whole uncanny valley thing is like clearly me but clearly not right at the same time. But I'm there in the Moonraker level, not in space, sadly. I'm on, I'm on the sort of the Rio, the sort of South America part. I have the full Moonraker yellow jumpsuit and that crazy yellow headset with the big ear things. I've got one of those. So I saw the shots and thought it was really cool. And October, November time, I got a free copy of the game as well from them on the PS3. That was my choice because that's what I had at the time. And then I loaded it up. And obviously I was massively excited. And, and the game... Because I appear in it, I'm, I'm, I have a lot of affection for 
even though in the back of my mind, I know it's not that good. It's not terrible, but it's not that great. Now, I'll, I'll talk about that. But I'm there in the final level, the Moonrake level, which I think is the best level in the game. But I'm also in the multiplayer. And this is why the game really strikes me, because I am a Drax henchman in the multiplayer level. And you can have a split screen and you can have four people all playing as me, all shooting me, which I just did. I sat around with friends drinking beer doing that or, you know, Daniel Craig shooting me or me shooting Daniel Craig, which is like the most weird thing ever, but really cool. And sort of walking up close to my own face digitally. And the multiplayer is quite good fun. Some of the maps are good fun. The rest of the game itself is kind of, it's a weird hybrid. And I sort of mentioned before, it's a Daniel Craig continuity. So it starts with a bit of Skyfall. It doesn't start with a bang, actually. It starts with a train scene from Skyfall. Moneypenny shoots Bond, he falls down, and the game is kind of set as he's drowning or in the water. And it pretends like the other films featured in the game, Goldfinger, Moonraker, On a Majesty's Secret Service, Die Another Day, and License to Kill, are kind of like memories of Daniel Craig's James Bond. And you kind of skip through them. So Goldfinger, you start off in a hotel room and you find Shirley Eaton covered in gold. And then you go to Goldfinger's place in Switzerland, but it doesn't look right. But he looks right. And Pussy Galore looks right, but the voices are wrong. And it has this sort of weird dissonance all the way through playing it. But there's some real thrills in it. With the music particularly, they get some of the Goldfinger music spot on. You get, when you're in Switzerland for On A Majesty's Secret Service, you're skiing after Tracy, and who looks just like Diana Rigg. And you get bars of John Barry's theme, and that is just really, really cool and sort of lifts you. It's great to hear Michael Lonsdale do Drax again, his same performance, and he looks great. I'm a huge, huge fan and written about License to Kill, so that's cool to be able to attack Franz Sanchez and Benicio Del Toro and have Carrie Lowell in it, who is in it and did her own voice, and that looks great. But the links between the missions are a bit weird and a bit sudden. It's weird because the game was written by Bruce Feirstein, who had co-written Tomorrow Never Dies and The World Is Not Enough. And I think he'd probably done some of the other video games. I can't remember off the top of my head, but he'd done some of the video games. But it doesn't quite stitch together logically. It sort of just leaps. So you're like, okay, I've done a bit of Goldfinger and I'm going to leap out of Goldfinger. I've just done the Fort Knox scene, which is very cool, actually. Killed Ob job, great. On the plane, okay, killed that. And then, okay, we're now I'm in the snow in Switzerland with Tracy. And then, okay, we rescue Tracy and we get Blofeld, who's a weird hybrid Blofeld, who's got bits of Terry Savalas and Donald Pleasance and Charles Gray all mixed in together. And then you skip again. Then you're in License to Kill and then Die Another Day and then leave Moonraker last. And I think Moonraker is the most successful level, particularly the zero gravity stuff is kind of fun and the lasers are cool and it has a real sense of the game. So it's a sort of mixed bag. It works as a, a first-person shooter most of the time. There's some sort of driving on rail sections that are okay. And each section in itself works quite well. But I'm not sure that when together they make much sense. And the problem I have when I played it, and I was watching some gameplay videos the other day to prepare for this, and I, I looked at it and just thought, the problem is, is when I play the Moonraker one, I want a Moonraker game with Roger Moore. And when I play the license, I want a license to kill game with Timothy Dalton. I don't like this highlight hopping thing. There was a downloadable content that came out after Christmas that year, which was some more Skyfall stuff, but it's not a full Skyfall game. It's just the opening sequence in Turkey, and then there's a bit in Hong Kong as well. So that was bizarre and fun. But again, nothing felt sort of fully fleshed out and coherent. 
So whereas I think the James Bond games that work, like everything or nothing, you get a full plot. It's really a developed, fleshed out plot that's engaging. This kind of works as a Bond fan because it's like, oh, I recognize that. Or that's quite a good version of this. Or that's cool, but that's different. And some of the changes are weird because they have to change the missions to kind of fit Daniel Craig. And they, they've developed the locations to make them look modern as well. Whereas the From Russia with Love game works, I think, because it's, it's set in the 1960s and it's Sean Connery. And it's kind of, you know, that OK, that links to the movie. Whereas this kind of takes bits of the movies you love, reimagines them somewhat, and then tries to stitch them together. And I'm going to love it because I, I had a great experience with it and, and I am perpetually forever digitally placed in it, which is really, really bizarre and exciting. But I'm not kind of blind to some of the weaknesses of the game in that it works as a shooter. The stealth mechanics are a bit interesting. I'm not great at stealth in games anyway, so I just end up shooting everybody and I kind of enjoy that, so that's fun. So it's a sort of game that has a lot of affection for me, but I do know that it was kind of a shame that that's the last proper console game we've got for James Bond in nine years, which is crazy because we had such a good time. I think from GoldenEye in the mid-90s to 007 Legends, we were getting one every couple of years and mostly... The quality was good. And the guys who made this, the other games they made, I think they did the GoldenEye reboot and they did uh, Nightfire, which is great fun. And then this one is a bit sad. I did read somewhere that it was a very compressed timescale to get the game made and that they wanted it to coincide with Skyfall. So I like it. I enjoy it for very personal reasons. It has some great moments and some really fun moments. If you look at the packaging, I actually think the packaging kind of encapsulates what's odd about this is that you have a digitized Daniel Craig, and not a really great digitized Daniel Craig on the cover. And then you have a picture from Goldfinger and a picture from Die Another Day and a picture of Jaws skydiving Moonraker, something that's not in the game, sadly. And it kind of, you just, these things do not go together. They're not right. And as much as I enjoy the game, I can kind of get why it's not one of the more loved 007 games, because it's a little bit odd. But there are moments when you, you know, you're in Fort Knox and you're battling odd job or you're coming up to Pete's Gloria in the helicopter and the music's happening and you're going to rescue Tracy and there's an absolute thrill in recreating those bits of the movie. So I think there's a, a better game in there than perhaps we got, but the highlights of it are really cool. Well, there you have it. Commentary from someone who's actually in the game. Thank you, Carrie, for sharing that with us. And shockingly enough, folks, in 2012, which at the time of this recording was nine years ago, this would be the last major release James Bond video game title to come out. As of now, which is September of 2021, we still await a major James Bond title release in the video game world. There are still a few left to talk about as we begin to wrap up this documentary. And in order to do that, we need to fast forward to 2014. Twenty fourteen would give us another one of the young Bond web-based PC games. 
It was made by Youngverse Digital Limited, and it was a point-and-click style game like we've talked about before of the web-based versions for the Young Bond series. This one had more racing involved in it, and of course, it was a Young Bond novel tie-in. 2014 would be the last time, as of this recording in 2021, that there would be an online web-based Young Bond game. And while I scoured the internet once again to find someone who'd played it, I came up with nothing. It's another one of those very obscure games that was here just for a little while, and then it was gone. But I tell you what, our old friend Luis from Eva Gay Colombia stopped by, and we had a bit of a chat about how it's kind of sad that we lose James Bond games and media, much like this young Bond game. Sure, there are certain archive sites out there that archive the site, but without the software to go behind it, the game doesn't work properly. So it's like this lost media. So let's take a moment to talk with Luis and get his thoughts on James Bond's lost media. Yes, that's the problem with these Flash games, because they need some kind of uh, external resource. Yes, the code must be bound to a server that is no longer working. It's, uh, I think they shut down those servers. So you cannot pass from the email form or a certain part of the game. And that's a shame, because it's actually lost media. I actually have been watching some lost media videos on YouTube recently. There's plenty of Bond lost media. In the first decades of this <laughs> century, we have lost so much media. I remember a Casino Royale game, a strategy game that was launched in the website, in the James Bond, in the 007.com website. And it was quite cool. And it has this instrumental version of You Know My Name that has never been released. Obviously, when the website was updated for Quantum of Solace, it disappeared. And I don't know if anyone could archive this game. And I think it's not possible because it was kind of a multiplayer game, a strategy game. You have to move like uh, Advanced Wars or uh, Fire Emblem in this kind of uh, turn-based strategy way of playing. I don't remember if you managed to play with Bond, but they imagined these MI6 agents you can control and move. And it was quite cool. I played it like a couple of times because at the time I was studying at the university, I think, my last year at the University of College. Obviously, I didn't have much time to play because I was using the internet for my thesis and my all, all my stuff at the university. But I remember that quite fondly, and well, it's it's sad <laughs> that it hasn't been archived like the John Bond games. They are lost, and maybe only the, the developers have copies of those games. I am not even sure if Ian archives those games because it happens like what happened with Doctor Who in the early years. You know, they didn't value this as something that people would like to experience and appreciate in the future. So, okay, let's erase this, and nah, nobody will care about this. Guess what? We care. <laughs> <laughs> there is always someone in another place of the world who says, mm -hmm. I would like to play that game again. <laughs> I 
definitely some good points about Lost James Bond games, Lost James Bond media there from Luis. And we're not going to let Luis go too far away because he's going to be back in just a moment. But we need to move forward from 2014 to 2015. Twenty fifteen would of course give us the launch of Spectre, and the good people at the James Bond franchise wanted to have a game to go along with that. So they launched on the mobile devices James Bond World of Espionage. World of Espionage was made by Glue Mobile. It was a card-based, sort of a trading card-based role-playing game. And again, it was designed to be released at the same time as Spectre's coming out in 2015, sort of a promotional thing. Now, the only challenge there is, maybe was it possibly rushed? I ask that question because World of Espionage doesn't have the greatest reputation in the James Bond video game franchise. Quite the opposite. Which was evidenced by the fact that the servers for World of Espionage only stayed active for about 18 months. The game came out and people played it and it just really didn't catch on. And within a year and a half, the servers had been shut down and the game was done. But don't take my word for it. Let's check in one more time with Luis from Ibagué to see what his World of Espionage experience was like. of espionage okay i got news of this game thanks to a fan website they say okay there is a new game coming for mobile phones and it's going to be developed by glue and i say okay that's interesting because i've seen that they made some interesting games in the past and i know there is a mission impossible hybrid in between first and third person so it's going to be good. What can go wrong with the James Bond license in a video game? Hmm? Especially when we had this time without a, a game after W7 Legends. So it was interesting to see that they were trying to get the Bond experience into a mobile environment. Well, we had the previous experiences with uh, the Java games for the old phones and this top agent game that we saw before for uh, iOS and Android. So it was interesting. It was good. Obviously, I downloaded on the first day. I hadn't time to check more about the game before I downloaded it. Say it's Bond. Okay, it's going to be good. It wasn't. Uh, <laughs> it was appalling. It's not an action game. It's a card game. And I have no problem with card games. I played Top Agent before. It was enticing up to some point because it was kind of repetitive. I played the Top Trumps game, basically this set of trading cards, Trump cards. I say, okay, let's see what happens. But I wasn't very, very excited. So what we got with World of Espionage is barely any story. You're James Bond. You're working for MI6. And they have this kind of 
world map. They have this world map and you have to select different stories. So you begin with Dr. No. I say, wow, okay. They're trying to recreate the timeline of the Bond franchise. It's continued to <laughs> errors and whatever. But hey, it's going to be interesting to see what happens. So you're selected in the world map, a location, an exotic location. So you go to Jamaica and it's Dr. No. Everything is described. So you're driving towards the governor's house and you have to select some cards, some kind of trading cards. So you're James Bond, you're working at MI6 and you're assigned to a mission and you get some people to help you in the mission. And then I get excited and say, okay, we are going to see Quarrel, we are going to see Felix Leiter, we are going to see all these colorful characters, those fella, the guy who manages the bar and so on. And you don't. You get just generic agents. The guy with the scar on the face, young, pretty-looking woman, totally generic names. They try to recreate the, the, <laughs> these uh, bonds with the names, but in the end, you don't get invested in the game because you don't see the characters that you remember. They are just generic characters in the form of cards with different stats, with different powers, with different um, features and characteristics. So you're driving to the governor's house, but the driver is working for uh, the bad guys. So they ask you to take out a car and do something. There were cards for the actions too, like punching, hitting, shooting, whatever. So it's a turn-based card game, but executively in a very, very bad way. I didn't like it. I actually, I, did, I didn't play it for more like three days. And obviously I was given more opportunities for the game to improve. I say, okay, maybe this is just for the launch. They are going to increase the quality of the game. I imagine that it was like a beta test or something. I don't remember if it was a test, but I didn't like it. And the game didn't improve with the days. I revisited like... One month later, and basically I revisited because it I was cleaning some space on my phone and I, I think I, I need to uninstall some certain apps. And I saw the app there and I have been using it so for a while, so I opened it again. And now the game continues the same. I actually remember that they changed was the start screen. They added these dots, like the mimic the gun barrel, but it was just the loading dots. <laughs> they were the loading dots. And it was totally disappointing. The last time I used it was right before they decided to shut down the servers and discontinue the game. They had increased the locations. I remember seeing something for Die Another Day and seeing something for Diamonds Are Forever and some other original locations, but I didn't visit them because you need to advance in the game to reach those places. So it wasn't worth the time. And I think that it was a, a failure because it didn't last too long in the market. I am not sure if it lasted for six months or one year, or maybe I'm exaggerating a bit, but it didn't last too long and not many people experienced it, fortunately. So it was very, very sad and disappointing. Bond on a mobile phone. We have seen Game Loft doing interesting games with limited resources in terms of memory, in terms of devices. Glue made this Mission Impossible Rogue Nation game before, third-person, first-person kind of shooter. And we got a, a card game for James Bond. I don't know if, what, if it was based, I am speculating here, but 
probably it was based on the directives that Ian gave to the developers. Probably say no, no violence, no guns, no blood, no violence for the sake of violence is not allowed or something like that. <laughs> And there you have the world of espionage from 2015. At the time of this recording, that was six years ago, and this was the last time we'd get any kind of official James Bond game. 2012 007 Legends was the last time we got a proper console game. And here in 2015, with World of Espionage, is the last time we get a truly dedicated Bond game. We have two more games to talk about, both of which aren't truly Bond games, just downloadable James Bond content for other games. So let's fast forward the clock from 2015, three more years, to 2018. (laughs) 2018 would give us some downloadable content called Best of Bond, and it was for the already established racing franchise, Forza Horizon. Specifically, this download pack was for Forza Horizon 4. And to give you a little bit more about that, let's hear from our friend Martin from the great James Bond podcast, The Double O Files. Well, it's a bit of a background story about Forza itself. I've been playing the Forza franchise since about 2008-ish. It was then just called Forza Motorsport. The clues in the title, it was just circuit racing, uh, some drag racing and all that stuff. And they were implementing more things. In 2008, you know, technology came on and more and more, and 3D cockpits and, and dynamic whatever. And after that, they decided to make the jump to the Horizon series, which is all open world, free mode, do what you want, and they would have... The first one was set in like a sort of fictionalized Colorado. And then they did another one that was fictionalized Southern Europe, a bit of France, a bit of Italy. They did another one in Australia. And then the fourth one was in uh, Northern England and Scotland. So, you know, I've always been playing these games. I've been following them. I've been trying to get the latest news and the tidbits and, and stuff. And I've also always been making Bond cars because the thing that Forza was sort of famous for is the whole livery editor. Basically, you could put any kind of shape or sticker on any body panel of the car. So I would always have like eight friends driving around in, in red Alfa Romeos, and mine would be dark gray with a West German license plate. They're like, why is it? Oh, it's a Bond thing, isn't it? I'm like, yeah, it is. So I've had many, many 007 tributes throughout the years. And I've been following the games. You know, each iteration would be more cars added, more features added, more, more like it goes with everything. Media, there are leaks, there are speculations, and there are gossips. And I remember, because this takes place in 2018, Horizon 4, and there was somewhere in August, there was an article or someone on the Forza Reddit page uh, who posted this whole link of like this whole document full of cars because they accidentally, while testing the game, they accidentally put like a developer kit online for a couple of hours. So people actually got lots of stuff out of there. So I was browsing through this list uh, of cars and there would be like tons of Audis, BMW, Mercedes, stuff we only knew. It was all coded. But then some lines of code caught my interest because there would be like amc underscore hornet 74 i'm like hey i know that one and then you browse a bit for and then i saw ast underscore db10 bond and that's why i was wait a minute and then we had ast db5 bond ast v8 vantage bond bmw z8 bond i'm like this is going somewhere 
because at this point we already knew that uh, apart from races there would also be this feature called jobs like things on the side you could do to make money and which they said for example be a stunt driver in a movie so i was like ah so this is going to be some kind of thing you know that you're gonna like win a prize car and then you'll have a bond car or bond stickers or whatever something like that and then because i was writing for a dutch bond website at the time and I did a little bit of article about this. I said, you know, it's all speculation, but there might be some Bond stuff coming along. And there's some people now a bit excited because it's new and different and it took place in the UK. So it was all a bit logical. It's actually like developed by the European version of the Microsoft Studios, which is actually based in the UK. So it's a bit of a close to home kind of thing. And then I remember the official word coming out. I still remember the day itself. It was a Tuesday. It was September 18th. And I remember because I was at work, a bit of a slow day. It was about 5 p.m. And then I got an email, you know, the, the YouTube email saying X account, upload a new video. I was like, all right, cool. I'll watch it when I get home. And about two minutes afterwards, my phone just went pling and then pling and then it pling. It just blew up more and more and more. And everyone was uh, texting me and, and messaging me, calling me. And the first time that happened was when Sir Roger Moore died in 2017. So my first thought was, oh, God, Sir Jean, Dame Judy, Michael G, uh, anything. But. I checked and there's everyone sending me the same YouTube link. I'm like, yeah, I got the email. I'll check it when I get home. So I went home and I had dinner, just got home as you always do. And I watched the video and it was like this two and a half video with David Arnold's Bond theme saying the best of Bond car packs. So I just was jolting, jumping around the room for, for the rest of the night. And they said it was going to be a whole pack. So not just cars, there were going to be some other stuff around it and it will all be explained in the coming days and weeks. So about that, summarizing the pack itself, there were 10 cars in it. 10 Bond cars from all six actors, which is already a good thing because when people do a best of, you know, Timothy and George usually get the short end of the stick with these kind of things. But they both had their Astons from the films. You had Sir John's Goldfinger DB5, obviously. There was Roger's Lotus is Free, the white one from The Spy You Love Me. There's the 2CV from Free Hours Only. Then Pierce got his BMW Z8, which was a bit of an art choice seeing his Aston Martin tenure with the, all the gadgets. And Daniel had, well, he had three, actually. He was the, the DBS from Quantum and Casino. There was the DB10 from Spectre and also the Jaguar from Spectre, which is also featured quite heavily in the trailer. There were also some catchphrases because you had like these shortcut buttons in the game. You could press a button. You could talk to other people in the game without having your headset on. And, you know, you could just say hello or a nice ride or that kind of stuff. And they had six catchphrases, which were Bond, James Bond, shake and not stirred. Do you expect me to talk? I am invincible. License to skill and for England, James. Last thing they had is they had outfits for a game character. There was the classic black dinner jacket and a white dinner jacket with the red carnation, like in Goldfinger. All of this just sort of wrapped around the whole Bond experience to try and be a bit playful with it. That is also, for me, getting to one of the points that I really don't really like about the pack is that it's mostly sort of cosmetic in the way that you know you could put on the suit and you had the cars and uh, all the gadgets worked but they worked in this sort of a pause menu that's this feature in the game they call forza vista you can walk around the cars in 3d you can open the doors to boot you can start them a hunk the horn uh, all that kind of stuff and sure enough you know you could get in a db5 you could open up the center console there were all the buttons and you could uh, you know press a button and the rear bulletproof shield would move up and you can open up the rear lights for you know the, the oil slick uh, the overriders the everything but it was all cosmetic just in that one sort of separate menu where you could do that. You couldn't do that on the road. You know, you couldn't have a race with someone and you could just use the tire cutters to get them off the road or something like that. So that's a bit a bit of a shame, but it's sort of logical. I mean, that's just something you just can't implement into a game to have people's tires explode at 100 miles an hour. It's just not doable. 
And there's also the thing that I don't really like about it is the way that it's been implemented because the Forza games have always been a three years and over game. So they've always been very child friendly. And as a result, uh, a lot of the violence has been taken out. So you could have like your BMW Z8, you can hit the button and the rocket system would flip out, but there wouldn't be an actual rocket on it because, you know, that I guess uh, sort of uh, represents violence. Same thing with Timothy's V8, you know, you could hit the switch, the fog lights would flop down, and there would just be two empty tubes because, you know, they couldn't do the, the rockets. And with the same with Sejan's, uh, the Goldfinger Ascent, the machine guns didn't work or they didn't pop out because it all had to be sort of child-friendly. And that did give me a bit of a feeling of if you're not allowed to do it fully, uh, especially with the, the Bond thing and the gadgets are all mostly offensive, I was like, you know, if you can't do it fully or if you can't show off the lethal thing of the gadget, which it most of the time is, like, why do it in the first place? There's something lacking. I, it, it, the whole idea is good. I mean, Timothy's V8 still had the rocket booster behind the real license plate and still had the, the skis and all that stuff. So that was very cool. But, you know, the sort of the, the party pieces were not complete. And that's a bit of a, a letdown if they, especially if they are featured in a franchise that always prides itself on, on going into very thorough detail with everything they do. And the other thing within that is that it felt to me the first time, like after the initial rush of, oh my God, it's a James Bond DLC or sort of wore off, there was a bit of a feeling of a haphazardness with it and what i mean is that some cars have been made specifically for this they were completely new for the entire game for the entire franchise but some cars were quite obviously reused 3d models that they had before and then just tied it up to look like the bond one like the bmw z8 and the aston martin dbs from daniel craig were the american actual production version so it had like different lights different placement different interiors minor stuff but if you look at stuff like the Aston Martin V8 from Timothy Dalton's Bond film. That was actually a whole different generation, like a different front end, different bonnet, different rear bumper, different interior. So it was literally like someone went back to the office in the weekend and just implemented some fun stuff just to see if it works. So it just felt a bit rushed in a way because, you know, if you're going to do this all, say it's the car from the movie, make sure it is the actual car from the movie, not something that is sort of casual-eyed you know, it looks close enough because you're going to get Bond people involved and Bond people are notoriously anal about these kind of things. So, you know, just make sure that it's all correct. So that was a bit bit of a letdown when I got into it. But then again, on the other side, I have to say I do love the fact that it exists at all and the fact that they went out of the way to get the Bond license, to get the 007 edition slapped on it, to dive through 50 years of Bond automotive history and cherry pick some cars and make something out of this as a sort of a fan service to James Bond and then to what it means to, to action films and to car chase films is something that is worthy of applause in my uh, my opinion. Uh, especially if you got a team that looks at stuff like a 74 AMC Hornet, which is even within AMC fans isn't the most coveted car in the world. So let alone within Bond fans. So that's something that I uh, I really like them for it. And also the fact that there is some truly unique stuff in there, like an Aston Martin DB10. This is the first and probably the last time it will ever feature in a game or in a driving game because it's so unique and it was made for the film. And the same thing goes for the Jaguar CX-75. You know, there were things specifically made or designed this way for the film. So that's uh, you know, a commendable effort for the, the fact that they went with it and they decided to put it out there and, and, and go for this when they, you know, there's so many cars out there and so many things you can do and so many things to reference. So that's something that I really enjoy. And like I said, even though they weren't all correct, there's nothing more pleasing to a, at that time, early 20-year-old car guy and James Bond aficionado than 
sitting at night waiting for the midnight release for the game to actually be able to load out and then play along with some friends and drive through a city center, narrow streets, at night in an Aston Martin, being chased by a Jaguar while playing the Bond theme through your living room. That's just something that you can't describe uh, like how much I've been waiting for something like that to be a reality and not just be something I made myself. So I really applaud them for that because in the end, a game, whether it's Bond or not, should be fun and it should excite you. And, and that is what, what this does, what has done and still does because I still go back to it uh, from time to time, even, even though it's almost three years old now. So it's in general, I think it's a, a very solid effort, though not perfect. It's still a very worthy addition to the whole Bond franchise. And it's yeah, definitely something I can recommend to people who like racing games and who like to act like the Roger Moore or George Lazenby every once in a while. Thanks again to Martin from the Double O Files, a fine James Bond podcast, which I can highly recommend. And you know what, loyal listeners? I honestly thought this was going to be the very last game covered in this podcast documentary. But as luck would have it, in the oh, about year, year and a half it took to put this together, one more James Bond digital download packet became available for another very popular game. So even though this disc technically says it ends in 2020, well, we're going to cheat a little bit and move to 2021. In 2021, a new James Bond downloadable pack became available for the very popular Rocket League video game. It is believed its original intent was to help drum up interest in the upcoming No Time to Die film, and marketing to a game that caters to a lot of younger players is never a really bad idea to get kids interested in, ooh, what's this whole James Bond thing about? So here with a little more about the DLC packet that just came out very recently as of the time of this recording. I believe it was just maybe a few months ago. But to set us straight on it, here is appropriately our last guest for this entire documentary series it is our old friend louise from eva gay there is a related dlc for rocket league for james bond have you oh, seen that this is news to me go on it's not physical any longer it's free to play it's like a Fortnite. they changed the, the business model and they released like three weeks ago for a special DLC with the Aston Martin and you get the skin of the car. But basically, there is not much Bond content apart from the car. And originally in the previous season, they had this kind of 007 banner. And I find this very interesting because Rocket League is aimed towards younger audiences. The 007 logo is censored. It hasn't had the gun part. It's just W7 in the style of the traditional logo, but without the gun. I never seen that before, but they have this Bond theme DLC that actually didn't last too long. Yes, too much uh, on sale. I am not sure if you can still buy it. I bought it, of course. <laughs> and it only has like a tune at the beginning of every match, like the riff, the traditional bass riff. <laughs> and get the car, the Aston Martin, nothing more. Uh, well, there is a badge, like the DB5. But something that comes to my attention is that in video games, like what happened with the Forza Horizon uh, 4, 
they are relying too much on the DB5 and not actually bond. <laughs> it's just the association with the car. What has been keeping the franchise alive in video games, the car. <laughs> because we, we haven't seen Bond in a game for a long time. Yeah, actually, there is a spot on for Rocket League when they put the Aston Martin driving on the streets of Matera in Italy for the No Time to Die opening sequence. And that's it. So obviously, it's a tie-in for the movie. But they don't mention the movie. It's just W7 without a gun. <laughs> and that's it. And that is it indeed, Louise, my friend. And when I say that's it, I mean that is it for the entire journey that we have now taken through every single James Bond video game. It started all the way back in 1982 with a text-based game for the ZX Spectrum. And this volume is going to finish with a little cheat in 2021 with the DLC for Rocket League. What a journey it has been. Along the way, we've learned that not one, not two, but three James Bond actors have made their final James Bond appearance in video games. We've also learned that there's probably a lot more James Bond video games out there than we first thought. But more importantly, we've learned there's a huge community of friends and fans out there who love these things, play these things, cherish these things. And that made it all worthwhile. This has been my project that I started when things got a little locked down in 2020. And here I am, 75% of the way through 2021, and I finally finished my journey. For this fourth and final volume, although I might do addendum volumes in the future if more games pop up, but for this fourth and final version of the original Project Scope, of course, I need to thank all the people who appeared on here to help make it complete. It starts with Joe Slepsky, the voice of the Gamefly commercials, who did all of our intros, which was wonderful. This episode featured Mike Reyes, Becca from Do You Expect Us to Talk podcast, Carrie Edwards, Louise from Ibagay, Colombia, Martin from The Double O Files, and of course, that awesome, awesome original theme music that Joe November did for us is going to be how we leave you. Joe did such a wonderful job making an original tune and giving it a video game flavor. You've heard it on all the former episodes of this series. We're going to listen to it once again. So thank you to all those people I just named. Thank you to all the people who were involved in the previous three episodes. This journey has been incredible, and I thank you for taking it with me. As always, I encourage you to stay tuned to On Her Majesty's Secret Podcast to listen to all the wild and wacky things that we have coming up for you in the James Bond universe. Be on the lookout for Van and Alan, Delvin, Jason, Pat, and myself as we continue to try to bring you more Bond content. But from the world of 007 and the video games, this is Jared Albrecht, the Art Sale Artist, signing off.
Perla, ya puede ser. Tienes que ser. Well, that is it for this giant omnibus podcast documentary episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. If you just now heard it for the first time, I hope you really enjoyed that journey through James Bond and video games. If you gave it a re-listen because you listened to it way back in the in the day a couple years ago when I was releasing them decade by decade, well, I hope you found entertainment in it again. Thanks again for listening. I'm Jared Albrecht, the Yard Sale Artist, and this is Honor Majesty's Secret Podcast. So as always, you know, we're going to return. Thanks, everybody. Mm-hmm.